It's time right now for the David Feldman Show. He's talking politics and comedy too. Now tell a dirty joke if you want him to. He's just a lefty from way back. He's a union man with an Emmy for writing. Someday he's mad and he feels like fighting. It's time right now for the David Feldman Show to get your ears on right, buckle in real tight. He's got a lot to say and he's coming your way. Thank you so much, Professor Mike Steinel. He will be with us later on tonight. And the return of Jackie the Joke Man Martling. Coming up, the return of Jackie the Joke Man Martling. Welcome to the mop up for February 22nd, 2000, not 2000, 20, 2021, 2021. I'm David Feldman. Yes, I'm David Feldman coming to you from an air shaft overlooking a parking garage in New York City where we're having a balmy blizzard. Just a just a touch of a whiteout tonight, which means spring is just around the corner. Spring is only a month away, and soon we will actually want to go outside, but we won't be able to because it's still not safe. <sighs> I'm told to count my blessings. Well, it's been a year, and I'm all out of blessings. Now I'm forced to count other people's blessings, and that's making me jealous. Turns out there are some people out there who have a lot more blessings than I do, and I want them. Seems to me there's a large concentration of blessings flowing up to the most blessed among us and leaving us down below with nothing but gratitude. And I don't like gratitude. I don't want gratitude. I want blessings. Let's redistribute the blessings so some of us can do more than just participate in the exercise of futility called practicing gratitude. Because gratitude is overrated. 
It's the consolation prize for those of us coming in last place. Gratitude is for losers. America didn't get to the moon because of gratitude. Those two Muslim doctors who invented the vaccine for COVID over in Germany, they didn't come up with that vaccine because of gratitude. Speaking of COVID, this week marks the 500,000th death in America from, from COVID. That's half a million Americans dead in less than a year. Well, wow. 500,000 Americans have died from COVID in less than a year. That is, uh, that is more than all the Americans who died in World War II combined in less than a year. The difference, of course, being the Americans who died during World War II were all heroes. Well, most of them. Uh, my father was part of the greatest generation, and I met some of his friends. And I can assure you, not every American who died or was injured in World War II was a hero. I, I know that quite a few of our boys were racists, anti-Semites, misogynists who stormed the beaches of Normandy, looked up at the blue-eyed, blonde-haired Aryans shooting down at them, and thought, those are my peeps. But right now, the Americans, except, except for the nurses and doctors and people who deliver our groceries, most of the Americans who died from COVID in the past year, sadly, they're not heroes. They are victims of corporate-owned government that views its citizens as customers who need to be marketed to. And that means lied to. The 500,000 Americans who succumbed to COVID were killed by a neoliberal world order that thinks there is no problem you can't lie your way out of. Because that's what corporations do. They lie. They lie to their employees, their stockholders, and most importantly, their customers. Whatever you buy, at the very least, is twice what it costs to manufacture. That markup is the lie. The packaging, the branding, the advertising, it's all a lie, including the gymnastic leaps of psychological manipulation to convince you that the very same orange juice with a different label tastes so much better with another label and is therefore worth more. Our government is owned and operated by corporate charlatans, and so it behaves, your government behaves, like a corporation, which means it will say anything to make you just go away. Corporations and the governments they run, corporations and the governments they run, just want you to go away. You're, you're a gnat, you're a mosquito, you're a nuisance. Pay your taxes and shut up. We've had nonstop blizzards here on the East Coast. The weather in Texas is killing people. But that doesn't stop the, the lie from Republican Texas Governor Greg Abbott that climate change isn't real. It doesn't stop his lie that the grid broke down because of windmills. And here in New York, Governor Andrew Cuomo lied. He lied to us. 
He got an Emmy. He literally got an Emmy for his PowerPoint presentations last year during COVID while he was lying to us, while grandma and grandpa were being shipped off to die in nursing homes. Andrew Cuomo was busy writing his new autobiography that came out at the end of last year that was all about leadership. Cuomo's a Democrat. So is the anorexic governor of California, Gavin Newsom, who's about to be recalled for his gross mismanagement of the state's COVID response. While California was in lockdown, Gavin Newsom couldn't even keep himself from dining with lobbyists at the French Laundry in Napa Valley. While people are starving in the streets of his California, he's dining illegally at the French Laundry. That's a three-star Michelin restaurant in Napa Valley. When San Francisco was in lockdown, Speaker Nancy Pelosi, who represents the city of San Francisco, she insisted Despite a lockdown, she insisted on getting a blowout at her salon that was closed but reopened for her. And when that security cam video went viral, when it captured her violating the lockdown order, all, all she could say was that it was a political setup. Nancy Pelosi can't even walk through her own metal detectors that she installed inside her House of Representatives. Last month, she passed a congressional rule dictating that any congressperson who doesn't go through the metal detectors will be fined $5,000, except for her, because laws don't apply to Nancy Pelosi, a Democrat who owns nearly $200 million in real estate, in addition to owning stock in all the big tech companies, she should be breaking up, or at the very least, regulating. But she's corporate controlled. She's part of the government and the corporations that control us and screwed up the COVID response. So 500,000 Americans are dead, not just because of Donald Trump. They're dead because our economy the world economy is controlled by monsters, monsters like Warren Buffett, Warren Buffett, who just purchased a $4.1 billion stake in the oil company Chevron. Warren Buffett, who just purchased a $4.1 billion stake in the oil company Chevron, Warren Buffett, who made his fortune purchasing insurance companies. Warren Buffett owns all the insurance companies. Do you think Warren Buffett wants Medicare for all? Warren Buffett and the rest of these Obama-endorsing charlatans believe that money should flow to the top while the rest of us die. The world economy is controlled by people who want tax cuts for the rich when, when, times, when times seem to be good, and then they want austerity for the 99% of us when times are bad. It's an economic policy based on the lie that money, 
when concentrated in the hands of the very few, trickles down to the rest of us. It's a lie. It was a lie when President Hoover was promoting it. It was a lie when Reagan promoted it. And it's a lie right now. Our government and the corporations who own it, they knew how bad COVID was before it even reached our shores. Read the Woodward book. And they knew masks would stop the spread of this disease. We've always known masks prevent the spread of viruses. Go back and look at the photographs from the the Spanish flu. They were all wearing masks. They even wore masks during the bubonic plague. They knew to wear masks during the bubonic plague. When's the last time a surgeon didn't wear a mask? How stupid do you have to be not to know that masks prevent the spread of, of COVID. And the brutal reality is we never needed a vaccine. We just needed masks. All we needed to do was mobilize the economy for a month or two to produce masks and make everybody wear them. We just had to have our post office distribute those masks to everyone in America and make them wear those masks And we could have saved trillion dollars, trillions of dollars on a vaccine. That's it. Masks. You know, the whole country pulling together like we supposedly did during World War II, rationing victory gardens. Wear a mask. That's it. Masks. And a year later, a year later, we still can't distribute the good masks. You still can't get the good masks. Two weeks ago, the New York Times ran a story about how there are close to 100 million American-made masks, the good ones, made here in America. They've already been manufactured, and they're sitting in warehouses here in the United States. But there are no customers. There are no customers because hospitals in this country, because local government and the federal government and the healthcare industry, they have purchasing protocols that insist that the only safe masks that they can purchase, they have to come from China. Do do you get this? Our own government, our own hospitals, trust China to make safer masks than Americans can. So 100 million American-made masks, the good ones, the ones we need, are sitting in warehouses. Gee, you think the homunculus Jeff Bezos could spare a couple hundred million dollars and take those masks and just have all his Amazon delivery people working at poverty wages distribute them along with all the other worthless crap you don't need? He won't because this government, our corporations, our hospitals... They refuse to admit that something manufactured in America could possibly be any good. They made a vaccine at warp speed. They spent trillions of your tax dollars, but they can barely distribute it. They're just now figuring out how to distribute it because the money is in making the vaccine, not shooting it into our arms. The people who shoot the vaccine into into your arms They don't make Pfizer rich. 
In fact, they're a drain on profits because the people who administer those vaccines, they want to get paid. So we're a nation ruled by incompetence who lie. Lying comes very easily to the people who pay you. And it's not working. The whole thing has stopped working. What we have right now, it's not working. It's not working because nobody has any skin in the game. The people in charge, the politicians, the five richest families who control those politicians, they're all immune. Ted Cruz has no skin in the game because every molting season he knows some new skin will grow. It never occurred to Ted Cruz that it was wrong to take his family to Cancun because it's not like the Senate was in session. Our Senate was in recess in the middle of all this. After they got done putting Trump on trial in in mock horror that anybody could think of wanting to overthrow this perfectly functioning government, why would anybody want to overthrow this government? It was exhausting to put Donald Trump on, on trial. So Schumer sent the Senate home to relax and Ted Cruz went to Cancun because our government and the people who control that government have no skin in the game. They're immune to COVID. When Donald Trump, when Christie, when Giuliani get COVID, they get the best treatment. And the rest of us, if we're lucky, minimal damage. So we have no skin in the game. Because no matter how hard we work, no matter how many letters we write to our leaders, we are not listened to. If we're lucky to work, we participate in none of the bounty. If we're lucky to have a job, we are rewarded with more work, not higher wages, more work. Does anybody really think the Democrats will come through with their their age-old promise to double the minimum wage to $15 an hour? Does anybody really think that Biden's going to come through and double the minimum wage to $15? Most Americans are poor or working poor. So when those pipes, those pipes burst due to Arctic weather down in Texas, you're on your own. There are Army veterans in Texas right now living on fixed incomes. One in particular just got billed, and I'm not making this up, $14,000 for the heat that he got last week. I'm not making this up. An Army veteran in Texas has his heating bill automatically taken out of his checking account. So the power company in Texas last week jacked the price of heat, jacked up the price of heat, and removed $14,000 from his checking account. And it never occurred to the bank that maybe this was a mistake. I mean, your, your heating bill went from $70 a month to $14,000 a month. Shouldn't that raise at least one red flag? Maybe the bank could take a break from advertising how they're your friend and and put a hold on that transaction, maybe to double check with that army vet living on a fixed income. Hey, 
Do you really want to spend $14,000 on heat this week? But why would a bank care about an army veteran living on a fixed income? Didn't he read the small print when he signed up for that checking account? And now, this was in the New York Times, that army vet has to write letter after letter to see if he can get some of that $14,000 back. In the middle of an ecological disaster in Texas, with barely any electricity and still no water. Gee, I wonder why so many members of the military participated in the January 6th insurrection. Why? Why would they be so disgruntled? Maybe we should spend hundreds of millions of dollars on a blue ribbon commission to study why a certain segment of our population is so alienated and so distrustful when it comes to our government. The system isn't working. Now, this is our World War II, America, and the economy isn't working. It worked during World War II. Unions were strong during World War II. Now, people are dying and the economy isn't working. And they're lying to you about the economy. They're lying to you about unemployment. Does anybody really believe that our unemployment rate is hovering at around 6%? Does anybody believe that the unemployment rate is only 6%? Even the head of the Federal Reserve says it's a lie, that that number is a lie. Jerome Powell, the head of the Federal Reserve, said two weeks that the unemployment rate is double, double that, which means it's double whatever Jerome Powell says it is. The Economist, the British magazine, reported last week that 21% of American children live in poverty. 21% of American children live in poverty. Moody's reports that 10 million American households right now are behind on rent. The average American owes $5,600 in rent. And Jacobin says that 10,000 COVID deaths and 400,000 infections here in America are because of evictions. Evictions? Evictions? Didn't we implement a moratorium on evictions? I thought it was against the law in this country to evict. Well, turns out the police are way too busy shooting unarmed black men to arrest real estate owners from illegally evicting their tenants. And why should the police arrest a landlord for illegally evicting a tenant when those cops pick up extra cash working for the sheriff who does the evicting? There's money in eviction for our cops. When you don't pay your rent, it's the cops who remove you. It's your government that removes you. Look, I don't know what the answers are, but I know what's true. And what's true is that had we declared a national emergency last year and mailed masks to everyone and said, wear these masks or you're going to get fined, including you, Nancy Pelosi, if we mailed masks to everybody, 
most of those 500,000 Americans who are dead right now would still be alive. And Fauci knew that. We talked about this on the show. Fauci knew that, but he also knew the government couldn't distribute the masks. He also knew that if he said masks were proven to prevent the spread of COVID, then we'd all buy masks and there wouldn't be enough for the doctors and the nurses. So Fauci lied to us. He said so three months ago. He admitted that he lied to us. And he said, you know, we're not sure about masks. He said that. He literally said that. And he literally said he had to lie about masks not being effective in preventing COVID because he didn't want to run. He didn't want to create a run on masks. He couldn't trust the American people not to load up on masks at the expense of the doctors and the nurses. He couldn't trust our government to mobilize and make those those masks. And that is the single most underreported story of the past year. Masks are just as effective, if not more effective, at, at preventing the spread of COVID as a vaccine. But your government, Anthony Fauci, lied to Americans when he said he wasn't sure if masks prevented the spread of COVID. He admits to lying. He said he lied because he didn't want to create a mask shortage. And now a year later, we still can't distribute the good masks because there's more money to be made in a vaccine that we still can't get into the arms of every American because the money is in the making of the vaccines, not the distribution. So stop waving the flag. Stop, stop telling me how great our founding fathers are. Stop telling me how great this country is. Stop watching Netflix, Hulu, and Disney+. Plus. It's time to reject all of it because this isn't working. And it starts with ourselves. You know, it stops with giving up meat. It stops with no longer shopping on Amazon. You only need rice and beans and water and air. Stop smoking. Stop drinking. Stop gambling. Stop the porn. Well, not the porn. Tell this. What would you tell your kids? Would you tell your kids to gamble on football? It's time to focus your depression outward and turn it into anger and direct that anger at the corporations who are killing you. You need to reject every product that advertises to you. Anybody who's advertising to you is lying to you. All advertising is a lie. If a company is advertising, they're lying to you. In the end, this is what you would tell your kids. All that matters is love. And if you have nobody to love right now, then love yourself. Love your body. Take care of it. Don't poison yourself with garbage. The most revolutionary thing you can do right now is to love someone or love yourself and stop spending money on garbage. That's the first step. You have to reject everything. Well, I've kept Jackie the Joke Man waiting, and I think he hung up on me, but uh, I'm a little behind. Let me call 
Jackie back. We're running behind schedule because Mr. Big Mouth couldn't shut up. But I... Here we go. Hopefully this will work. Hey, Kale, nice to meet you. We got Jackie hey. the Joke Man. This, I, I, I'm sorry. Are you there? This is, this is terrible, this line. This line sucks. <laughs> Okay, I'm really sorry. So, okay, here we go. I'll call you back. Kale will be. I'm keeping everybody waiting today. We go. Uh, here we go. Hopefully this will work, and hopefully he'll answer the phone appropriately. Don't say. Yeah. yeah okay, this works, and don't say anything. We're live. You ready? Oh no. Okay, we're live. You ready? I love you, no. Jackie. It's been too long. From New York, from beautiful Bayville on the glorious gold coast of Long Island's North Shore, let's welcome our old friend Jackie, the joke man Martling. Hey, how are you, Jackie? Mommy, mommy, what's incest? Shut up and sit on your brother's face. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome back, Jackie, the joke man, Martling. A guy sees his ex-girlfriend on the street and says, hey, Shelly, it's been years. How are you? She says, I'm getting used to the pitter-patter of little feet. He says, you had a kid? She says, nah, I'm, li I'm living with a midget. <laughs> What do you get when you squeeze a synagogue? What? Juice. <laughs> <laughs> Great. I'm sorry, man. I'm having a rough day. I haven't had an orgasm for four hours. <laughs> <laughs> I know the feeling. So a couple is camping, and the first afternoon, they're 69ing. And the guy says, the Dow dropped 500 points yesterday. She says, how do you know? He says, you wiped your ass with the newspaper. <laughs> <laughs> what the chicken say when she laid a square egg? What? Fuck that hurt! <laughs> <laughs> a girl goes up to a guy in the bar and says, Have you got a light? He says, Sure. She says, Well, try turning it on the next time you're getting dressed. You're a goddamn mess. <laughs> <laughs> hey, Feldman. Why didn't they report that the two amputees robbed a bank? Why? The story didn't have any legs. <laughs> <laughs> so a few months after her husband dies, a woman's daughter calls up and says, Ma, I got a date for you. So she agrees. They go to dinner. They hit it off. They wind up back at his house and they undress. She looks over, and she's nude, except she's wearing black lace panties. Mm. He says, why the black panties? She says, my breasts you can fondle. My body you can explore. But down there, I'm still in mourning. So the next night, they go out again. They wind up at this place. They get nude. And she's only got on the black panties. She looks over, and he's nude. Except he's got a black condom on his cock. <laughs> she says, what's with the black condom? He says, I want to offer my deepest condolences. <laughs> <laughs> what would you call two Mexicans on the back of a fire truck? <laughs> uh, what? Jose 
playing host B. <laughs> that's not offensive, actually. That's not that's, even a little. Not bit. even a little bit. What six point nine? What six point nine? That's a great thing, broken up by a period. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So Dirty Johnny gets a job at the morgue, and he gets fired the first day. <laughs> he comes <laughs> home, he says, Ma, I got fired. She says, what happened? He said, I got fired for defecation of a corpse. She says, don't you mean desecration? He says, nah, I mean defecation. I took a shit on a dead lady. <laughs> <laughs> he didn't even take a shit on a dead lady. I know, I know. I know. A dead lady fell. Kid, kids today. What are we going to do about them? How many Alzheimer's, how many <laughs> Alzheimer's patients does it take to screw in a light bulb? <laughs> how many Alzheimer's patients does it take to screw in a light bulb? I don't know. To get to the other side. <laughs> <laughs> the guy says to a hooker, Romy? She says, make me an offer. He says, uh, 200 bucks in my cell. She says, you're on. They go, yeah, she finishes sucking his cock. He hands her 200 bucks and says, it's 516-922-9463. <laughs> Where have you been? What's six inches long and starts with a P? <laughs> what? A shit. <laughs> oh, where have you been all my life? I haven't seen you in months. Who cares? The bartender says, what's the matter, pal? You look terrible. The guy says, it's because I'm so goddamn horny. The last person that got me off was my defense lawyer. <laughs> <laughs> What's white and creamy and flies across the sky? What? Kingdom come. <laughs> <laughs> a guy stands at the bar and he turns the guy next to him and says, Hey, you know any martial arts like kung fu or karate or jujitsu? The other guy says, No, me, no, no, not all that stuff. Why you ask me? Uh. Because I Asian? He says, nah, because you're drinking my beer, you little cocksucker. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Will you come back next? Will you start coming back? Why did Jewish girls get married? Why? Their iPhones. <laughs> their iPhones won't take them shopping. <laughs> <laughs> All right, I'm telling you one more. Yeah, I got enough here for 14 weeks. All right, I have a great joke. I want to go ahead. I am celebrating. I just got five of our phone calls are loaded onto onto Alexa, and it's unbelievable. I gave them names, and like if you say Alexa, play "Burn Baby Burn" by Jackie Marling. There's one of our phone calls, and people are going nuts. It's so funny for well, personal video, and we should mention that for viewing personal videos. Go to Cameo.com, Jackie Martling. Go to Cameo. Cameo.com slash Jackie Martling. I'm doing so many of those things, Felton, because right. I was made for those things. You know, and I'm, I'm still pissed off at you, but we'll do that. We'll go out. Uh, can I try time. to stump you before you go? Yeah, I'm telling you, I'm, I'll tell you why I'm pissed off. You cut me off right, right when the election happened, which is the time when people really needed stupid, unbelievably ridiculous laughs because times were so bad. And then they, they, right at that time,
time, you made me sit at the kids' table. I'm like, you know, if I didn't hate Jews before, holy <laughs> Christ. <laughs> so the Queen of England decides she wants to appear like a regular Joe to the subject. You know, uh -huh. She wants to be a regular person. So she gets booked on the popular British game show, 20 Questions. So backstage, they explain to the Queen that everyone else, the audience, the people at home, everybody else will know the answer except her. And she has to try and hone in on the answer with 20 questions or less. Well, the people at the show are no fan of the royal family, so they decide they're going to have a little fun at the Queen's expense, you know. And the host tells the audience the answer is a horse's cock. <laughs> okay? A horse's Cock. <laughs> what? They bring out the queen, and the audience applauds wildly. It's the queen of England. They go nuts. And once she's seated, the host says, okay, your highness, what's your first question? She says, can it be eaten? <laughs> the host says, uh, yeah. She says, is it a horse's cock? <laughs> <laughs> I love you, Jackie. I, I feel so much better. I have a joke to stump you with. Okay. Now, Jackie knows, for those of you who haven't heard Jackie before, he is a student of jokes. There's no joke. He, I'm being serious. He is, but I want to see if I can stump you. Two old men in a nursing home, Jackie and David, are sitting around, and Jackie says, I, I, I don't know how old I am. What are you talking about? I, I, can't, I, I can't remember how old I am. And David goes, calm down. And Jack goes, no, no, I, I, it's, I, I have no idea how old I am. And David says, Jackie, turn around, drop your pants. And he sticks three fingers up his asshole and waggles around. He says, you're 95. He says, how do you know? He says, you told me yesterday. <laughs> <laughs> that is the greatest joke. That is the greatest You know, joke. Who told, my daughter told me that joke, and it's such a great joke, because you ca you cannot, there's no math to it. Anyway, I no, love you, Jackie. We'll talk no, to you next no, week, okay? No. It's great. It's great. Okay. We'll all right, I love them all. I now you got me going. Now you got, hey, you want to use one, you, you got to think a little bit? Yeah. Two army privates are burying an animal. Two army privates are burying an animal, and they're arguing while they're working. The first private says, it's a mule. The other private says, no, it's a donkey. The first private says, it's a mule. Second private says, it's a donkey. And the sergeant hears him argue, and he comes over and says, you're both wrong. It's an ass. A few minutes later, an old nun comes walking by, and she says, are you boys digging a foxhole? The first private says, no. <laughs> <laughs> All right. I love you, Jackie. What's Thank the difference between an Italian vampire and an Italian vagina? Uh, what? <laughs> an Italian vampire is a hairy count. All right. Thank you, Jackie the Joke Man. I'll talk to you next week. I love you. Okay? Thank you. I'll talk to you next week. I'll call you tomorrow, okay? All right. I love you. Thank you. Let us now go to Brooklyn, New York, where Cale Brooks is standing by. He's with Jacobin. And then we'll get to David Bacon. David, is our, I'm running a little behind. So can I get to you in a second, David? I'm leaving. It's don't, all good, man. Okay. All, jo all good. Joining us for the first time, thanks to Rodrigo, is Cale Brooks from Jacobin. Hey, Cale. 
Hey, how's it going? I'm I'm ordering Jackie on Cameo right now, actually. Good, so, good. Let's talk no about talk that. <laughs> let's talk about dirty jokes for a second mm. and Jacobin, because there are uh, people who have said to me, how can you tell dirty jokes, uh, sexist jokes, they're not, well, racist, scatological jokes, and then have a leftist on who's concerned about uh, the human condition and improving people's lot in life. Don't you realize that those jokes are incongruent with Kale Brooks' ideology? And I say, go f yourself. Not you, but that these jokes are the the those jokes. There's a time and a place for those jokes. And what I've discovered is those types of jokes. And corruption are used to keep us in line. That that when people are trying to destroy other people, they accuse them of being corrupt or they mm -hmm. accuse them of being politically incorrect. And most of the time, it's a way to disassemble a, a, a rising tide of 99% solidarity, right? Yeah, I mean, it's it's funny, there's, it's, you know, and I'm uh, representing Jacobin for a moment here, but... You're uh, Jacobin a, the joke man, I believe, right? Yeah, that's that's what they call me yeah. after hours, uh -huh. after the, after work's done. But the, um, there's a historical parallel, actually, where right before the French Revolution, there was, I think Piketty actually pointed this out, there was similar levels of economic inequality then as there are now, and one of kind of the big cultural ruptures that preceded that moment was you had all of these cartoons that people were drawing because they didn't, you know, they didn't have TV yet or uh, or YouTube or Zoom. So they're drawing all these cartoons of Marie Antoinette with like a giant cock ostrich. I don't know if you're familiar. <laughs> you, you should look at it. There's actually... Amber, Amber Lee Frost uh, pointed this out. She, she has an article uh, from a couple of years ago where it's uh, like in praise of, of vulgar humor, basically, uh, and how it's, it's kind of a necessary part of, uh, of anti-establishment, anti-elite, uh, just kind of breaking the, the stranglehold over politics that uh, certainly like middle class and bourgeois people have is just dirty jokes to say, yeah, actually, society does fucking suck, and you should make fun of it because right. it's, it is that bad. Now, what about ethnic jokes? What about uh, my laughing at the very same jokes that the the people who stormed the Capitol would laugh at? If somebody told me, like, I would, you know, Jackie mm -hmm. tells the jokes that I would never tell on this show. But uh, but what about laughing at racist, uh, homophobic? anti-Semitic jokes. Is that, uh, is that as criminal as we're being led to believe when it comes to the moral arc of the universe bending towards justice? No, I mean, it's something where it's, this is something that I don't think we're ever going to get a satisfying answer of like, what is the, the correct line? Because that is humor. That, mm -hmm. that is comedy. It's, it's treading that line probably and like and very often overstepping that line i mean i don't know i mean like the, the one the, at the end of the day the thing is that like political projects political actions especially left political action is not really dependent so much on 
like what's in your head or what's in my head or what I find funny or what you find funny. Like it's entirely based on like, can you mobilize the right constituencies, the right coalitions to affect certain political change in the world? So we're pushing for Medicare for all. Perhaps actually the way that you build solidarity in the process of, of getting there is telling some dirty jokes. But there, right. uh, there's, always, there's always a time and a place and like you don't want to be simultaneously like antagonizing someone that you want to bring into your coalition. I just don't think that, uh, I mean, everyone that like, there's this like kind of funny thing where it's like the West is only considered to have like racist or kind of ethnic jokes about the, you know, the so-called East, this kind of it's older language that isn't really used as much anymore, but sometimes, but the thing is like, you look through history and like, every single culture has has jokes about people from other places, people who look different. And so I think ultimately the point of politics is to restrain what's uh, it's to, it's to limit what people's thoughts are to just their thoughts. And that it doesn't translate into action that laughing at a racist joke doesn't translate into some kind of racist outcome where you have uh, actual real inequalities, material Mm -hmm. economic inequalities. So I think we make it so hard and it doesn't, I, I think you just have to ask yourself, what would you tell a classroom of kindergartners? Hmm. What would you, if you have if you're stupid enough to have kids and by having kids, you are stupid. What would you tell your your kids? Uh, a little later on, I'm going to have Mark Breslin on and he runs Yuck Yucks, which is the largest comedy chain in Canada, North America. And there's a, uh, a disease called Treacher Collins syndrome it's uh it causes skull and facial deformities often the people born with it are deaf they need hearing aid implants and there was a uh, a kid this kid named uh gabriel that i, I don't know 15 years ago it, he sang the national anthem at a, a montreal canadians hockey game and then Celine Dion brought him to Vegas and uh, Pope Benedict, he serenaded Pope Benedict and he became beloved in in Canada. And there's this comedian, Mike Ward, who uh, made fun of him. We went on television and imitated him, roasted him for singing off key, made fun of his hearing aid, called him ugly and... He was fined a couple of thousand dollars by the Human Rights Commission. And now it's going all the way to the Supreme Court. And it's become an issue as to freedom of speech, whether or not Mike Ward has the right to make fun of a a kid uh, with Treacher Collins syndrome. Uh, Why don't we just, you know, yeah. He should have the right to do that. But he's a piece of shit, Mike Ward. Right. You know, he's hiding behind freedom of speech. He has the right to uh, say whatever he wants on stage, but he's a piece of shit. And the people who laughed at that are, are pieces of shit. But that, I don't know. I don't see why we have to worry so much about his right to make fun of uh, uh, a 
a kid born with a, a congenital disease when uh, he shouldn't be doing that. In what world should he be doing that? Right. I mean, it is, it's, it's pretty, I mean, I'm not as familiar with it, but it's. But most of us aren't but, because yeah. we're too busy making fun of people with congenital <laughs> skull diseases here in America. Jacobin's just celebrated its 10th anniversary. Mm. Uh, Jacobin has ruined me because I grew up on the New York <laughs> Times and because of Jacobin, uh, the Times is unreadable now. Mm. It's like, what are you talking about? Like the, the. You know, they had a, they devoted half a page to boredom, like how to cure boredom during the pandemic. Mm -hmm. uh, will we ever see anything resembling Jacobin in our newspapers, on television? Well, I mean, just doing the shameless plug, but you can you can read Jacobin on its own. Right. <laughs> like if, if you want to, instead of reading the New York Times. But I think, I mean, it's, so I would I would say um, could it ever um, go mainstream Jacobin and was there a time in this country's history when something like Jacobin would be considered somewhat mainstream? Yeah, I mean, so we've had there. The thing is that anywhere where you had a healthy left political culture, uh, left political parties, uh, strong trade unions, uh, you had independent media accompanying it that in Germany, for instance, kind of the heart of, of the original social democracy, the OG pre-World War One social democracy, <laughs> like they had, uh, I mean, they had, you know, plenty of daily newspaper, they had regional daily newspapers from socialists, like in all these different parts of Germany, you had uh, scholarly journals, theoretical journals, you had uh, journals talking about uh, health, they had journals talking about biking. It, it's just like it's it was club-based kind of uh, culture and talk, and then you had more serious political conversations, but you had all this independent media that grew up along with it for the reasons that, you know, the, the press coming, you know, from these giant corporations are really just there to basically craft a narrative, not even for us. It's not really for us. It's for the elites, it's for people in power to justify why they're doing what they're doing. It's it's a means of telling them, yeah, this is why you're actually okay when your decisions result in hundreds of thousands of people having far worse outcomes, having less healthcare, being jo jobless, homeless. So for most of us, it's not even like, it's not meant to try to convince us because you're never gonna convince someone they don't need healthcare, for instance. Uh, but it does, it, do, it is a means of kind of stroking their egos and, and gives them a rationale. I mean, I do think that you could see, uh, left political press, uh, in the more mainstream. Um, but it, to me, it's something that has to grow up in tandem with, uh, a left political movement also ascending to power. And so right now we're in a weird moment where a lot of our media has somewhat eclipsed the actual political power we have in society that a lot of a lot of us the reason why we're doing any of this is uh and the reason why we have genuine audiences uh is because of the twin bernie sanders campaigns that, right. so you know and jacobin a lot of our subscribers viewers listener all you know all of our audiences largely also came out of this bernie bump so it's gonna it's kind of still an open question to some extent of how does like well how does the left media build beyond this um, but that, to me, is downstream of how does 
right? How do we build the left political project uh, in absence of having either a labor or a socialist party, having our own party being kind of a, uh, I, I need to get come up with a better analogy, but we're kind of like a tumor inside the Democratic Party that, uh, you know, we're not going away. They want to kill us. And we also are kind of trying to kill out their leadership. Um, so you, you, now, so do you personally, I, I don't want you mm-hmm. to have to speak for Jackman. You personally believe that the, well, as Jacobin's probably smartest member, I can speak. For Jacobin, <laughs> you believe in working within the democratic party and fulfilling the, the promises of the new deal. Um, I would phrase it differently. I think the party question for the left is somewhat settled that third parties are not viable, not because they they have bad ideas. It's entirely a structural fact in this country that just the way the actual electoral law is set up uh, and you can't change the electoral law unless you like are passing laws, which means you need to have political power in a party, which so it's, you know, I don't think third parties are really viable at the same time. The Democratic Party is basically just a shell for uh, driving campaign donations towards uh, kind of Democratic figureheads. So when the when the Democrats are in office, when you had Obama or now when you have Biden, uh, basically the party just exists to fundraise for the president. And then you get what happened under Obama, which is that all of these down ballot races go to the side and they lose a ton of them. Uh, because there's both a lack of funding and a lack of enthusiasm uh, because the Democratic Party doesn't really have a political project in the 21st century. It's mostly tinkering and tweaking existing things. But that's entirely side, you know, uh, that's a... Well, Jamie Jamie Harrison, who Mm -hmm. lost double digits, he lost to, Mm -hmm. was it Lindsey Graham he lost to? Right, yes. Yeah, but he raised more money than anybody else, even though Mm -hmm. he lost to Lindsey in double digits, yeah. they put him in charge of the Democratic Party. Right. Well, so so to um, so I'll, basically, I think the problem with that is just that uh, the Democrats think that you can you can win elections just by out. You know, basically, they understand that the electoral model in our country is whoever raises the most money typically wins. Uh, but the problem is that you have a far more energized Republican base at the moment than you do a democratic base, despite kind of the, the progressive upsurge right now. But again, like the progressive upsurge was not a part of that campaign. For instance, uh, it was in Bernie's with Iowa and California and Nevada, where you had an army of volunteers to send into these States and mobilize so many people to turn out and to vote. Uh, and they were able to overcome the entire party apparatus basically being against, uh, the Sanders campaign. But the, but the, the, Larger point about what is the socialist electoral strategy? I think, again, I think it's mostly settled in that we have to compete on Democratic primary ballot lines, that we are trying to basically take their uh, take their ballot line away from them to say, uh, I'm a Democratic socialist. I'm running in the Democratic Party because I structurally have to because of our electoral system. But I am something very distinct from the leadership. And I think, if anything, they should be more forthright in saying I'm actually uh, opposed to the leadership, that that this is a mutiny, effectively. Uh, And I think the long term goal uh, on the left has to be uh, what it's actually a couple authors in Jacobin have published about a year ago, uh, Dina Quisella and Jared Abbott. 
uh, it was both in Jacobin and the longer version was in our sister journal Catalyst, if you want like the, the full argument. But the, I think the, the idea is basically that we need something like a party surrogate, that we're building a political party, but how we actually run in the country, how we actually get elected for the time being has to be at, in democratic primary fights. And we have to basically uh, knock out either, um, or it's possible even Republican ballot lines, but most likely Democratic ballot lines right. for the most part. But you end up knocking out the one of those parties by taking over their line. And then maybe some point in the future, you know, you, I, you are, instead of running on the doubt Democratic ballot line, you've already been elected, but you're also a member of this other kind of party that uh, isn't explicitly running on lines. Maybe that switches in the future or something. Right. Excuse me for one second. How are you doing on time? Because we have Jacob Morrison from Valley Labor Report down in Bessemer, Alabama, who's mm -hmm. scheduled to be with us in five minutes. He's been covering the Amazon workers trying to unionize. You guys had a great piece in Jacobin. Can you stick around for a little while? Sure. Thank yeah, you. I, got, I can. Yeah, sure. I know you have something in an hour. And I want to thank Rodrigo, one of our listeners, for booking you on the show. I hope you're going to stick around today and come back. But let's now go to North. Where do you live in New Hampshire, David Bacon? Um, Northfield, New Hampshire. I'm sorry to That's keep you waiting. Running. David it's Citizen good, Bacon is running for for select man in yes. In, in New Hampshire. This is what yes. it's all about, folks. We have yes. a physics local. professor, Marianne Cummings, who is now a parks commissioner in Aurora, Illinois. This is what it's about. It's not about moping and complaining about the system. It's, it's as Kale just said, becoming a tumor in our system. And I can't think of a more malignant tumor than David Citizen Bacon running for select right. man. Tell us how yes, it's going. Well, I went to my first selectman meeting on Tuesday and I was the only person wearing a mask in the meeting. Are you so that kidding was me? very interesting. No, not one bit. And they have a whole discussion because um, the election is March 9th, but then on March 13th is the town hall meeting where we vote on the different articles and how we're going to spend our money and stuff. That's going to be held at the local elementary school in our town. The school itself has a mask policy that everyone has to wear a mask to go into school. So there was a sort of back and forth between the school and the town because the head of the selectmen is so anti-mask and the, the chief of police is anti-mask. A lot of that, there's a lot of people who are anti-mask. So because the school because the select because the so you're going to lose basically gonna you're going to lose no 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 your constituents are idiots you're going to lose saturday. oh i got yes because no they're not they're great okay because because saturday is because saturday there's no school they're going to let everyone come in they're going to divide into half half there's going to be a part that's no mask there's going to be a part that's, that's masked but because it's it's being led by the selectmen the, head, the selectmen people sitting up at the up at the table in the masks mask area will not be wearing masks. So that's kind of interesting. Um, there's six people running. On Thursday was the meet the selectmen thing where I got to meet five of them. One person couldn't make it. There were two of us were wearing masks. 
One gentleman left the a town folk person left the mask. He asked the people to put masks on. They're not doing it. One of the guys who is running, I don't know if you will remember this news story from like 2007, but back in 2007 there was a fa- there was a, a a dentist and his wife called the Browns, and they refused to pay their income tax. They owed like two million dollars. It was a it was a news story, at least up here, and I'm sure it made the uh, the, the the national news. There were three people that like helped them get guns. They put bombs in the yard and all this, this is stuff. a dentist. What? It was a dentist and his wife, the Browns. Hmm. They lived in, I think, Dr. Brown, New Hampshire. Dr. Brown, Dr. Brown. And um, and I think he drank too much of, of the, his celery soda. They all went to they all went to jail. They all, you know, felons. Wouldn't it be great the if Dr. Brown were a proctologist instead? You'd think he would be. Yeah. Um, or so if anyway, you're going to be so a the, dentist, at least call yourself Dr. White. Yes. I'm sorry to interrupt. It's almost like, um, not Pulp Fiction, that other one with the white, pink, dog, whatever. Reservoir Dogs. Reservoir Dogs, yeah. Right. Um, so... So one of the one of the guys. Did you break into Andy Rooney's office, by the way? Remember Andy Rooney? You're too young. Yeah, I I know what you're talking. No, I know what you're talking about. Okay, go ahead. It was at the end of 60 Minutes. Yes. It was like a five minute thing. Yeah, I remember that. So they they could take a break and sexually harass everybody over at 60 Minutes, a hotbed of rape over at 60 Minutes. I know nothing about that. Not sexual assault, rape. Go ahead. Right. So anyway, one of the the guy was 20 at the time. He's running. He moved to Northfield from New York. He, he hung out with this, the, the family for a bit. And now he's running in Northfield against me. Yeah. So it's it's you're running it's against him. Yes, I'm running against this felon, not the dentist, because he, he's 70 something. But the, the guy spent 12 years in jail. You know, he's and he got an article put into the, the town, the town articles that we vote on. And it's all about asking, like having the selectmen ask questions to the IRS, which has nothing to do with town government. It's a total thing. But he's knocking on doors. His buddy was there. They filmed it. It's on YouTube. He's got 500 views on our on our selectmen debate thing or whatever. So I don't know. The town still hasn't put it up. So the town's a little backwards with that stuff. We, you know, I, I, it's so fascinating. Fascinating. No, the whole the whole local government thing covers everything. Can it's you like, run by telling the your constituents that they're idiots and shake some sense? I don't sense think that's a good them? idea. I don't think I'm totally, as you know from the other, I'm totally running on. I'm saving you money. It's all about money, right. and everything can be approached that way. Like our garbage um, contract is coming up. We pay so we pay. It's too much money that we pay. I think I can. You know, there was just a study done at, 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 at over over at Dartmouth with 18 families over five months. They 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 created like just under two tons of, of um, food scraps in a five month period. All right. That so reduce the waste to the trash. You know, okay. everything is covered by town government. It's so beautiful. Here's what we're going to do. You'll come back for Friday show. I hope. How do people help you? How can people help you? Yes, I could. Let's this man needs to be. What's the city? Northfield, New Hampshire. There's like under five thousand people. I've, I I owe. I, I got signs all over. I, I'm in a people love bacon, the, right? That's the name of your. Well, I, the new one is to keep what you're making. Northfield votes bacon. That's great because I'm all you know. Yeah, yeah. So I have when you come off the highway, there's one exit to come off the highway. I have 
eight signs there. And then my one person has one sign, another person has one sign. So I I got the sign thing going. And if the you IRS, get elected, what's the name of the the city? Northfield. Northfield. You're yeah. elected selectman. I I will become the comic laureate of Northfield, well, yeah. New Hampshire. You, right? Well, one selectman has no power. You have two people have to vote to, in order to get anything passed. All so right. you need, you know, you got to have two. But the other day at the meeting on Tuesday, they were going over the town like um, employment policy. And so they were going over bereavement and one of the selectmen was a Zoom meeting and the, everything was, the connection was terrible. You couldn't hear very well anyway. So the, as a joke, I think the head selectman like was like, maybe we should add dog so that you get paid time off if your dog dies. And then they asked the guy he couldn't hear and he's like, yeah. So I think they added like, if your dog dies, you get time off. You, you can get take, take work off. Sounds good to me. All right, David um, Bacon, we'll talk to you on Friday show. Thank you, buddy. Thank you. This, this is what it's about. David Bacon and, and Professor Marianne running for office. This is what everybody needs to do. Just get rid of your Netflix account. It's garbage. Hulu, it's garbage. Disney Plus, it's garbage. Well, there's a piece in Jacobin right now that talks about the nearly 6,000 Amazon warehouse workers in Bessemer, Alabama, who are voting on whether or not to unionize. The ballots must be returned by March 29th. If they decide to unionize, it would be the first time in Amazon history in America that they had to hire union workers. They would belong to the retail, wholesale, and department store union. For more on this, we've been talking with our new friend who's been covering this story. Let's go down to Alabama, where... Jacob Morrison from the Valley Labor Report joins us, and we're going to be talking to you hopefully throughout March until uh, the workers in Bessemer, Alabama, unionize. Welcome. And also with us is Ricky Hutchinson from Weekly Marks. Hello, Ricky. Oh, hey, David. How are you today? Good. I want to introduce you to Kale Brooks from Jacobin, and you know I Jacob Morrison. Why don't we start the questioning with Rorikey? Yeah, sure. So um, Dave M uh, shared a, a post. It looks like um, uh, Amazon are up to more dirty tricks down there, uh, Jacob. Um, something about uh, $2,000 uh, quitting bonuses for staff. Do you want to tell us a bit about that? Yeah, so that was, um, there's, uh, Kim Kelly actually broke that story um, uh, to the, uh, you know, in contrast to another labor reporter who said it was exclusive, but I'll just, for the record, Kim Kelly broke that story and she got some added context that was not put into uh, the second round of reporting uh, by another labor reporter, which was actually that this is uh, the offer is what Amazon called it. it, is something that Amazon does at all of their facilities every February. So this came to, uh, uh, you know, so this came um, as a uh, as a surprise to the workers at uh, this came as a surprise to the workers down at Bessemer, because, as you know, this facility has only been open 
since March. So they have never run into the offer. So an organizer reached out to Kim and, you know, they were both freaking out because they had never seen this before. And more uh, familiarity with Amazon were able to clarify. So it's not a story. So in all fairness to Amazon, it's not a story because I read that and I... Right, right. In fairness to Amazon, this is something that they regularly do. There are questions as to the the degree to which they're pushing it out. There's questions as to who they're targeting. Um, you know, the, the, these are all questions that haven't been answered yet, but there, there is a defense there that Amazon has. Um, and, but, you know, that is... Uh, you know, just because it's part of the normal operating procedure doesn't mean that it's not a story because that just means that union busting can is really kind of part of part and parcel of their business because, um, you know, but because like when you have these high turnovers, when you purposely bake into your operating procedure, uh, a lack of a rooted workforce, you really, you really, that's union busting because it's hard to get, it's hard to get, um, you know, it's, uh, uh, it's hard to get a base an organizing committee set up when you're, when the turnover is a hundred percent every year. That's why, you know, McDonald's don't really, that's one of the reasons why it's hard to unionize, unionize a McDonald's or a restaurant. I worked in a restaurant for three years by my third year. I had been the longest, I was the most senior person and I was, you know, I, I wasn't management or anything, or I, I, I was like a team leader or whatever, but I was the most senior person there by a long shot after I had been there, left at my third year. You so know, the I mean, idea behind investing is part of the game. So, 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 so as we understand this, we're Ricky, the idea is get rid of your employees, have, have trained them, have them work there for a year, then give them a bonus to leave. How is that efficient? How, how does that benefit Amazon stockholders when you spend all this time and energy training your employees, investing in your employees, and then you want to get rid of them because higher turnover means no unions? How is that efficient? How is that good for Amazon? It increases their profit. Um, Does it? It's called a reserve. It's a reserve army of labour. So the new people come in at uh, base level uh, contract prices, which now is the fifteen dollar minimum wage, and the average wage is fifteen dollars and thirty four cents. Why is that? Well, that's because um, people don't last, and in Bessemer in particular, you know, it's a mature uh, workforce. These people aren't you know, sort of 18 year olds, they're, they're 35 to 45 year olds, 60 year olds. Um, so if you get these people uh, to just constantly be flowing in and out, cause it's after two peak um, seasons, you, you get the opportunity in $2,000 to take, to be fired. And um, if you've worked three peak seasons, you can get $3,000. So it's, it's systematic. So for them, it's cheaper to pay you off and then when they re-employ you, re-employ you when, they, when you need a job next and when they want to um, employ someone new, what are they getting? They're getting someone at minimum wage. Um, and it's taking away all that skill set, all that development. It's just, hey, let's face it, half the time they're just doing anti-union courses anyway. So they're not building um, the skill base. They're not building anything. They just want meat to move packages. 
And that's one of the reasons that, I mean, that's one of the reasons that employers fight seniority so hard. That uh, that's something that 200 steelworkers in Alabama just went on strike to protect uh, just a short time ago. Uh, Constellium is an aluminum manufacturer, just just an hour drive from here. And they were trying to completely get rid of seniority in their contracts because uh, the longer if if as is appropriate, in my mind, uh, you pay your workers more and they have more rights and they have uh, more due process and things like that, the longer that they have been there, then, uh, you know, the, the more it, you know, the more it costs to pay them. And so if you can fire a senior worker who has been there 20, 30, 40 years and put in a new person, you know, in all likelihood, they're, you know, they're going to make, the new person is going to make more mistakes that obviously, but, but on the whole, it's a lot cheaper to hire somebody for even $15 an hour or, or, you know, 10 or 12 or 13 than it is to have somebody who's been working there for 20, 30, 40 years, making 20, 30, 40, $50 an hour. Kale Brooks right. from Jacobin, what are your thoughts on this? I mean, I, I think what's already been said covers a lot of it. I would just add it's it also builds in to the work arrangement uh, precarity. I mean, there, there's precariousness is always kind of a part of being in a market economy that the boss has the power to fire you uh, whenever he decides that um, basically on his own terms. And so this is something that's been going on uh, in uh, many sectors across the board uh, for 40 so years or 40 odd years right now, because it's basically, it's saying uh, it's speeding up production, it's speeding up the amount, it's the increasing the um, both the profit rate, which is the, the yearly uh, profit margin. And, um, and well, I'm, I'm not confusing terms. So the profit rate, which is yearly and the profit margin, which is per unit. So the point is that they're looking at both and they want to, they, these are highly competitive industries between, you know, if you're a McDonald's, you're up against all these other, uh, I mean, it's not that many more, but uh, these other uh, companies that are doing the same thing. And they're constantly looking to basically snipe each other for a slight competitive edge. And so if that means that they can push their workers to be that, you know, that much more efficient to produce that many more units per hour, uh, generate that much more profit for the company, uh, it's to their benefit. And like what's been said, I mean, I, I don't think my sense is that it wasn't created this way to specifically to destroy unions. I think it's it's too much of a global phenomenon that we've seen kind of in the post-industrial world to be kind of a almost like a, um, a conspiracy or I don't want to, I don't, I'm, I'm injecting that word. No one else has said that word, but like, uh, or a, a conscious effort on the part of businesses to say, we are going to just wipe out unions. Some of them, of course, have been doing that. There, of course, is some coordination and there is uh, some business owners, some capitalists that are intentionally union busting. Union busting. But it's also the case that it is a, a basically a, a global structural transformation in the macro forces of capitalism that in the post-industrial world, we are also seeing uh, what a lot of the global South understands as informality and precariousness is going to continue to increase. This is the thing with Prop 22 that passed in California and the fear that it's, it's going to come to the rest of the country. We're, we're having uh, on Thursday where Ricky and Grace are going to be interviewing the British gentleman who sued Uber mm-hmm. and won his case in the British Supreme Court. Gig workers are employees, according to Great Britain, right, Ricky? Yeah, Yasina Islam. Uh, and uh, this is going to be a great, great story because it 
fundamentally changes the relationship of all gig workers in in the UK, right. um, and that that's going to put a lot of pressure on um, on those uh, techno companies that have completely changed the the nature of work. Let me show you a graph from Jacobin. Yeah. This is the number of strikes. This was, I think, over the weekend, Kale. This is Doug Henwood, I believe. Great piece. A uh, number of strikes or work stoppages involving 1,000 or more workers. And, you know, we've been told that this is a new wave of union activism and people are striking. But you're, the, the piece in Jacobin disabused me of this. We're not really seeing the, the strikes that we thought were happening. We are seeing unionization, but they're not using the clout of their union. And and the takeaway from that article is, I think, maybe I'm reading what I want into it, that union leaders are blaming government uh, when unions can can do things on their own, that you don't need the federal government to spark a union wave that that the new deal may not have been as responsible for the the wave of unionization in this country maybe it was just unions were better run by better people well i would just i would two things is, is that a fair is that a fair takeaway from that piece well i would so i would say two things i think on the one hand it is i think of course, the data doesn't lie on its own terms, that it is true that uh, basically these large strikes with, I believe it was a thousand or more workers, uh, it basically has flatlined since uh, the late 60s, early 70s. And that, so that is something that we're still dealing with. And so it's, I think there's reasons to be optimistic about our moment, uh, Bernie and onward. But we should also be sober that there, it's, we're certainly not on the upward swing just yet. Um, that there's still a lot of, of both organizing work and and contentious fights that need to be waged in order for uh, the left and for the labor movement to kind of be rebirthed uh, in, the, in the way that it you know the way that it was uh, a real social phenomenon that could impact people's lives say half a century ago and beyond. Uh, the other side of it, though, is that the nature of work has somewhat changed in that time. And so that's what I was saying a moment ago, that you have less and less concentrations of people in one work facility than you had in the past. That's slightly changing right now, thanks to things like Amazon. So if any Amazon Bessemer be plant, I think Jacobin points out that the Bessemer plant with 5000 employees is larger than practically any factory in the United States. Right, right. So, but but most workplaces don't have that kind of concentration, right. and and that's ultimately, I think, the when you try to explain why did you have this labor militancy and why was it so explosive and powerful 70, 80 years ago, it I think has more to do with the fact that you have a lot of people that are somewhat skilled that are an important nodes in production chains all grouped together under the same facility. Right. And so if they are able to organize together and shut down that facility, they rupture the entire system. That, it, it, so we still have things like that, but it's not the same terrain that it was back then. And this is what union organizers are trying to figure out right now. And so Bessemer might be an incredibly important milestone in retrospect, we don't know yet, but it could be 
because we're finding that these are in fact concentrations of a lot of workers uh, that can exert a ton of power uh, just because of the, play, the role that logistics plays in our modern economy of just the uh, storing and transporting of commodities, of goods uh, that, you know, there's a lot, there's more commodities moving than ever before in human history right now. So it, it's, I think it's an open question that we have to, you know, we, we have our theories of the world and we look at the empirical evidence and decide, is, is this holding up? So it's something to, I mean, for many reasons, but it's, it's something that we need to be watching. Right. And this Bessemer story, 5,000 Amazon employees in Bessemer, Alabama, if they vote to unionize, it suggested that this could be the spark that ignites a, a wave of union unionization across America. And I think one of I think it was from that article, uh, the, the author said that, again, that that waves of unionization happened not because unions were waiting for the government to make it easy for them to unionize the workers. They happened because they got a big win like the Bessemer warehouse and they they took it. Mm-hmm. I, I think the problem is right now people like Richard Trumka, who heads the AFL-CIO, and he's a lawyer and he's making six figures that we know of, you know, his hands are tied and there are laws on the book. As Michael Brooks used to say, if if you want change, you don't ask for it, you take it. That was, you know, that was one of the first things I ever heard Michael Brooks say. You don't ask for something, you take it. And uh, seems to me, if we ever get a labor department that cares about unions, they will rebuild the Teamsters because the Teamsters, nothing moves without Teamsters. And uh, had the Teamsters not been corrupt, Allende would still be in office. I mean, they shut, it was the Teamsters who shut down Chile. Uh, we need a, a Teamsters that is uh, that represents the, the the working folk. Jacob, what are you seeing down there in Bessemer? Yeah, well, you know, speak of the Teamsters, the Teamsters were actually at a uh, at a rally um, that was held down in Bessemer uh, in support of in support of these workers because apparently there was a um, there was a disgruntled former Teamster going around. To, uh, uh, at standing at the gate where the organizers were standing, trying to talk to workers. And she had this, you know, flyer that she had printed off my teamster violence story or whatever. I mean, it was just it, <clears throat> no, no substantiation to her claims at all or anything like that. But uh, some teamsters up in Boston had heard that their name was being sullied. And so they came down and brought, brought their 18 wheeler with a big, uh, you know, big, big speakers and, um, and like a podium and everything that like they weren't planning on a podium or, or anything like that. And so teamsters came and, and they wanted to hang out and, and support and show, show the Bessemer community that, yeah, you know, I mean, not only are we not scary and, <laughs> and violent, right. but we support you and we support your right to unionize. And I, I think that's really encouraging. And there's there's been so many. Let, let me just ask you about that for a second, as I started my conversation with Kale talking about how corruption is used as a cudgel against the working class, that Bolasnaro in uh, 
uh, Brazil came to office fighting this corruption, the car wash mm. corruption. Mm -hmm. And the Teamsters were under a consent decree because Jimmy Hoffa and his pension fund was building Las Vegas. They, they were creating shell organizations for the mafia. We have to wipe out this corruption. Mm. When we hear of corruption, we should be wary of it, right? Isn't it often used as a way to dismantle uh, gains made by the 99%? Yeah, I think that it I, I think that it's definitely something that we need to be uh, wary of, especially considering the source. You know, I think that working people should work to have non-corrupt institutions. I, you know, I much prefer my unions to be democratic and corruption free. But, you know, the, the, when's the, the last time a corporation was under a consent decree? That's exactly the right thing to ask because, you know, UAW has been in the news for corruption and, and a lot of their, uh, I think their last and two And Jamie effing Diamond is being brought to the White House and getting permission. Get, right, we right. need his permission on the stimulus package. Yeah, I mean, that's exactly right. Uh, UAW presidents are going to jail and we're hearing all about it. And but why are we not hearing about that? You know, the, the only met the only um, the only avenue through which they were corrupt is their being bought off by the companies. And so we don't ever you know, it is it, we hardly ever hear about the company executives being indicted or being uh, found guilty or being put in prison. And certainly we do not hear if we hear about it, we do not hear about that as an indictment of capitalism or as an indictment of companies. But when we hear about international union presidents being arrested or raise being, your uh, voice, yeah, raise I your mean, voice. <laughs> God damn it. I mean, you know, when we hear about these, when the, when we hear about these, uh, uh, you know, these instances of corruption, which are bad, which are very, very bad. I mean, that's not to deny there's very institutional bad problems in the UIW, but when we hear about that, it's used to discredit unions and working people in unionism. And, and I reject, that and everyone ought to reject that wholesale. I mean, it's it's hogwash. It's it's absolutely absurd. Unions are the instrument through which working people have achieved nearly every gain that they have made under capitalism. And because there are some bad apples, that does you know they talk about cops and bad apples and things, and they try to use that to to say that you know not all cops are bad or whatever. In this case, it's true. Like not all unions are bad, and in fact, most unions are good and a very positive thing for their members and for society. And so we we've got to reject this this silly notion of the fact that one or two uh, union officials have been indicted as an as an indictment of unions and unionism and working people. And we need a government that protects the unions from themselves. You need a, right. a, a government that monitors unions, make sure that there's no corruption and that they're protecting the rank and file and that their pensions belong to the rank and file. I mean, Jesus Christ, the the pensions that unions own could change the trajectory of our economy overnight if the mm. if the why is CalPERS investing in the companies that are putting unions out of business? This is you know mm. it it's a you need a government to to weed out the Richard Trumpkas of the world and they just we have to wrap it up uh, and uh, we have Mark Breslin coming in. You know, they just released Donald Trump's tax returns. We're finally going to see his tax returns. We're going to find out that 
you know, he's one of us, you know, that he has no money. Uh, I have a I, I don't know if this would be against the law. But if you want to run a union, if you want to run the Democratic Party, I want to see your tax returns. There has to be a maximum wealth. And if you're worth two hundred million dollars like Nancy Pelosi, that's conservatively speaking, you can be you can vote Democrat. But you're not mm-hmm. running the party. Why are we why are we if you're if you're rich, if you're the head of the AFL-CIO, I want to see your tax returns. I want to know who you identify with. I want to know where you send your kids to school, where you went mm-hmm. to school. And do you identify with the richest one percent or with the middle class or with the least among us? That, yeah. is, to me, is the single biggest question. Who I think that, yeah, I think that, I, I, you know, those those um, proposals, I think, in principle, are not are not too bad. I would be very wary of handing that off to to the, the government, you know, for exactly the fear that, that you said that that could be that that could be used as a cudgel because, you know, the majority, you know, Trump got, you know, I mean, he worked his way up through through the ranks. He's not like he's he's some executive that got hired on by the AFL-CIO. I mean, you know, he was at one point just a rank and file worker. And so, you know, I think just. A, just a rank. Right. See, that is the mind you've got. It's, well, it's a part of a culture. We need a cultural revolution where hmm. being middle class, where people don't say I'm just middle right. class. No. And that, the only and, people who are proud of being middle class are the con artists like Joe Biden, right. who are millionaires. We need yeah. a cultural revolution where if if you're a multimillionaire, God bless you. Get out of the unions and get out of the Democratic Party. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, that's exactly right. And I'd certainly be for, you know, there. you said, is it against the law? I mean, no, it's certainly not against the law for unions to set the wages and salaries of their elected officers and to say that you cannot accept any outside contributions. And same for Democratic Party, same for the Democratic Party. You could, you know, like uh, the AFL-CIO sets Trumpka's salary. We could set it lower. I mean, you know, there. I don't. I think it's and silly the speaking that, that fees and the book deals. Yeah, I think we should absolutely say that. No, we. You know, you shouldn't be accepting speaking fees. I think Trumpka, you should be happy with, uh, you know, one hundred thousand dollar, two hundred thousand dollar salary, and you should speak all over the country in support of working people, and you should be happy that you get one hundred thousand dollars. I mean, and, I, and if that's not good enough for you, go f yourself. You, go, you can be right. replaced. That's the whole point of unions. The whole yeah, point of exactly unions right. is we're doing jobs that anybody can do. Anybody with training can do mm-hmm. and and that goes all the way up to the top that goes from the rank and file in, uh, on the warehouse floor to the ceo no ceo including steve jobs has ever proven himself or herself irreplaceable as charles de gaulle said cemeteries are filled with indispensable soldiers, indispensable generals. You can all be replaced. Right. That's why we need unions, because all of us can be replaced. If, you, if being a doctor, if the money isn't good enough for you, then don't be a doctor. We don't need you. <laughs> we don't need you. 
None of you are indispensable. All right. Yeah. Kale, you really got me pissed off today. That's why that's that's why I came on. That was kind of the I was told to make you mad and to laugh at your jokes. So Yes. Yes. Have I have I done both? Yeah, because my jokes make (laughs) make people mad. Here, uh Dan Niswander uh says, Call Jacob Rurig and David. Besides strikes, what can we all do to help organize people and help create a real left workers economic movement going forward? Great question, Dan. Yeah, I think well that, that's a that's a raise really your good voice. Ra- raise your voice, Jacob. <laughs> I well, I think that's something that's a good tie-in really quickly uh, to something earlier. You know, we mentioned that there there have been a lot fewer strikes, and I, I think that it's worth mentioning that strikes aren't the only tactic that we can use, and there are reasons that we would that that we would say I'm not going to use this tactic at this time. For example, during World War II, uh, there were almost no strikes. There were virtually no strikes because workers during World War II said, uh, and there were wage freezes, and 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 you know, workers during World War II said we're fighting the fascists and we're fine with we're fine with sacrificing for our country. But after World War II, uh, working people were ready and there were more strikes than ever before in the history of the country. Uh, so I think, you know, it's worth looking at all the other tactics and, and filing of ULPs, OSHA complaints, things like that. Uh, grievances in, in that is skyrocketed. Absolutely more than we've ever seen before in the country. Um and, and, you know, uh, the House Red on Twitter, at the House Red, has a good thread on that about maybe, you know, maybe there, there's certainly, it, it's certainly not to say that we should be overly optimistic about the, the, the place where we are as the labor movement in the country right now. But there are reasons to kind of temper the concern about the fact that there weren't as many strikes with over a thousand workers involved in 2020. But, uh, you know, what can you do? I think the best thing that you can do is organize your workplace. I think, I think that's really, that's really the best thing. Um, you know, more, more than anything else, more than voting for a politician or knocking on doors for a politician or, or, or anything like that. I think if you organize your workplace and you're successful and you're able to build power on the job, I think that's, that, that becomes a good proof test uh, for other people. You know, I come from a faith tradition that really values uh, testimony. And I think that, uh, I, I think that, uh, that, um, that we valued that growing up so much because it's so powerful when you hear about, um, you know, the way that working people are able to help each other, lift each other up uh, and, and show that it's actually real, you know, and something has actually happened and people's lives have actually been made better Then I think, you know, I think it's hard to disagree with. And, and I think that it, it inspires others to do the same. So I think, you know, organizing your workplace and, and if you're, if you're looking to organize your workplace, then, you know, start looking into unions in your area, look at your, um, look at your, uh, uh, uh job, what you do, uh, see what kind, and, and look at the ideology of the unions around. There are dozens and dozens and dozens of unions and some are better than others, frankly, you know I mean? And, you know, so if you don't have a union in your workplace, really consider which one you want to be affiliated with, because, uh, that's, you're going to, you know, you're going to be with them, uh, through hell and high water going forward. And so you want to be, make sure that, that, that they really kind of align with you to the, to the best extent possible. And so, yeah, you know, look look at unions in your area. Look and look and see which one uh, best fits kind of your ideological disposition, and uh, that really that not even that, but whether or not they're a fighting union. Um, make sure that they're a fighting union and that they're democratic, really democratic. All unions are to a certain extent, but some are more so than others, obviously. And that's something to consider. And and then once you've uh, made your choice, then you know get to the damn work. Yeah, tell that dog to speak up. 
uh, hate your work. Hate your work. Work sucks. You've been convinced to love your work that you should get out of the bed, get out of the bed in the morning and can't wait to get to work. F that BS. Hate your work. Hate your boss. Love your coworker. Solidarity. The guy, usually the guy who hands you your check is your enemy. He will say he's the ex. He's Linda Blair in The Exorcist. Your boss will say and do anything to get you. You have to hate the people who pay you. They're not your family and work sucks and you can be replaced. And the people who are paying you can also be replaced. The only people who can't be replaced are your friends who you're working with. Go ahead, Kale. I agree. No, I, I agree. I would just say to those who, who would push back and say, no, I don't hate my job. Uh, even if even if you don't hate your that's boss, Stockholm it's syndrome. Still, it's, but even, okay, but speaking to those who are in that predicament, I mean, but even even if you are in that situation, it's nevertheless true that why is it that at the end of the workday, when you've all put in some some effort, you know, some more than others, and looking at the workers compared to the boss, but we've all put in some, and at the end of the day, why is it that this one individual gets to decide what do we do with all the surplus that we made at the end of the day? All the money that came in, like once all the costs are paid out, there's some money left over, and one guy, or maybe maybe a corporate board, but typically, you know, it's one guy or woman or you know whatever, but they decide what to do with that. And so the point that, I mean, I'm a pretty vulgar Marxist and I agree with a lot of what Jacob was just saying a moment ago that it, you know, a lot of it is just, we need greater democratic, we need more democracy within the workplace that the place that you spend the majority of your waking life, you're under the thumb of someone who tells you what to do, where to stand, when, and if you get a bathroom break. And so you need a democratic institution to guarantee that you have certain protective rights, certain freedoms within the workplace. Uh, And, you know, we're not even looking at like the utopia, like where, where are we going? What do we want? But in the, you know, in the actual here and now, uh, what we need to be fighting for is an expansion of democratic uh, rights in the workplace. I would just add one little thing to the, to the question that Dan had asked that again, I agree mostly with Jacob, but I also think that for most people, uh, a lot of people, it's going to be difficult to just start union organizing. It's just we're on the back foot. It's not for lack of effort necessarily. Uh, I think one of the things that um, the way politics is understood in America is largely through electoral means. And so that's how people understand their political identity, their political relationships with others. And so I do think that, especially in the post-Bernie moment, we do have to pay attention to elections, but we have to pay attention to elections that are candidates that are coming out of political movements and projects on the left that are uh, moreover beholden to those projects rather than like they should not be taking corporate donations. There's going to be enough structural pressure pushing them in the other way uh, when they're in office. Uh, The point is... uh, you want you want to build the work you want to build the labor movement and you also have to build uh your electoral power so that you can then uh change the laws you can change the actual uh terrain that you're organizing on um and just one last anecdote it's like if you if we were so lucky to see medicare for all passed uh which you know fingers crossed that we get there 
like that would be taking a massive boot off the neck of unions because the number one thing that unions are or, or are fighting over at the bargaining table or at the kitchen table is healthcare in their contracts. And so if you're able to take that off the table, even, even if we don't get full Medicare for all, even if you can alleviate the, uh, the burden that is the, you know, healthcare being tied to people's employment, if you can get that off the table, now unions could be fighting for wage increases. They could be fighting for better, better working conditions. And unions fighting for those things is going to be an upward pressure uh, across the board on uh, all other workers, not unionized. So, uh, and then the let's, one let's, last thing can is Can we do that. this? Can we, could I, 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 yeah. can, will you come back? <laughs> yeah, I'll be around, sure. Okay, we'll come <laughs> back. Uh, I have to wrap it up. Uh, okay. I, I really appreciate it. And I'm, I... This was uh, more fun than I thought it would be. Cale Brooks from Jacobin, please come back. Thank you, Rodrigo, for getting him. Jacob Morrison, you will be back, I hope, next week to tell us more about the Bessemer workers. And Ricky, thank you for bringing Jacob in. Thank, we're, I, I, I'm out of time, and I'm being rude to my next guest. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. Now, let us now go to, let us now go, thank, uh, let us go now to Toronto, where Mark Breslin is standing by. He is the founder and president of Yuck Yucks, the largest comedy chain in North America. We have to, you know what, I'm, I, we have to figure out a better time. I don't get enough time with you. Maybe we should, do, sweet. we should do six o'clock instead of 630. Maybe we will. Okay. Um, I just want to say I was listening to to your last guest, and I realized I'm not so. It's not so much that I'm a Marxist as an incompetent capitalist. <laughs> That's what my son said to me. By the way, go ahead. I, I fin- finish your thought. No, that was. That was I, I finished my thought. Um, my my son said to me, "My son's a Marxist," and he said to me. If you had been a Marxist when you were when I was a kid, we'd be living in Bel Air. You'd be low. If you could if you could have seen what you were doing for what it was, you would have stripped all the emotion out of it and just gone for it as opposed to. Yeah, you know, he has a point because um, I feel that my idealism about show business and the comedy business has. has taken away some of the opportunities that I might have had otherwise. Right. Right? Yeah, I used hey, to say, take uh, this job and shove it up my ass and give me more. <laughs> Please and thank you. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, Yuck Yucks. So, what do you think of Yuck Yucks as a name? I love it. Okay. Not everybody did. In fact, when I first started it, I was very good friends at that time with Rick, Rick Moranis. Mm-hmm. And Moranis said... What, what are you calling it? Why, why would you call it? Yeah, call it like the Comedy Factory or yeah. the Comedy Emporium or something. And I said, no, maybe you're right, Ricky, but I don't know. I just kind of like it. It's sort of unique and uh, maybe it'll... It's genius. Like, it's, first oh, of thanks. all, it's, it's not just yuck, yucks as in laughs. It's like David Feldman is playing yuck. 
Like, oh, it's got a million. Yeah. It's got so many levels to it. That, right. That I even didn't realize when I named it. Yeah, I guess I didn't even realize it had that many levels to it. Um, it has, um, for instance, it's about laughter, but it's very clearly not a giggles or a chuckles. It's yuck yucks. It's a deep, uh, mm-hmm. you know, bottom chakra kind of laugh. I didn't realize that at the time. It's got the, the K sound. Um, it's got the K sound. It's got the K letter on it, right? Yeah. Yuck Yucks. And originally I called it Yuck Yucks Comedy Cabaret and the uh, comedy and cabaret were both with K's, not C's, but K's because I wanted to make a reference to the Weimar Republic so that all my possible, you know, customers would go, ah, I get what he's doing. Yuck Yucks was not the only name that I am. that I've named businesses. I have an agency I call Funny Business, which is, of course, a, a sly wink at how completely corrupt show business is, right? Mm-hmm. But the ones that I like the best, I have a whole, I have a, uh, a company that holds my stock and stuff, right? And the name of the company is Gwartz Jism um, uh, Holdings Limited. What? It's G-W-A, I know, Gwartz G-W-A-R-T-Z, Chisholm, C-H-I-S-H-O-L-M, Holdings Limited. Now, what are the, why, you may ask? Well, I fantasized in my my mind that uh, Mr. Gortz and Mr. Chisholm, uh, the ultimate Jew and the ultimate wasp, would be having this this company together. Um, And I thought that was kind of funny. But the real reason is, is because it sounds, if you say it often enough, Quartz jism, quartz jism, like quartz of jism, right? Okay. Holdings limited. Uh The reason I did that is because I realized eventually, like everyone, I would be sued. And I would have to go to court. And the judge would have to be saying in stentorial tones, Mr. Breslin, you own quartz jism, quartz jism, quartz, and he'd say quartz jism over and over again. And in the middle of being sued, at least I'd have a laugh out of it. So I called the course chism. Then um, at one point, I had a number of different little companies. And I wanted an umbrella of them all. So I decided to call it Breslin Entertainment Group. I like that. Right? Yes. But it, what is the acronym? I beg. B-E-G. Right. Right. So I told my, I told the people on uh, the secretaries at the office, when somebody calls, you answer beg. Hello, beg. Hello, beg. <laughs> and then I gave them this little contraption that creates a little bit of static so that they would go, this is a true story. They would go, hello, beg. I said, beg. I said, beg. I said, beg. <laughs> and like you said, if I hadn't thought of these things, maybe I'd be, you know, I'd be living in Bel Air. Yeah. Yeah. Hey, um, uh, is it Mike yeah. Ward? Who's the Who's the comedian? Who's yeah, Mike Ward. Tell us about Quite the case. Yeah, it's it's reached your Supreme Court. He made yeah, fun of a kid. An I'm sorry. Yeah, we haven't got an answer yet. They haven't come down with the ruling yet. Tell us who Mike Ward is. But, and, okay. I will. I will. I will try to praise it for. Is he funny? Yes. Oh, he's very funny. Okay. He he mostly works in uh, in in French, but he has an English act as well. I've booked him. Um, but in French, he's an enormous star in Quebec, an enormous star. Um, he would be able to sell out Place des Arts, which is like a 2200 seat venue. He'd be able to sell out eight shows in a run. Okay. An enormous star. 
he's very edgy. Um, and um, he makes fun of Quebec society, the people in Quebec society. Um, it's not just this kid. I mean, he's merciless on people like Celine Dion and people, uh, certain hockey players and, and this. And in this pantheon of public people, he made fun of this kid. At the time, I think the kid was 11. And the kid um, has some kind of um, disease. that Treacher-Collins causes- syndrome. That what it's called? Yes. Richard Collins syndrome? No, Treacher Collins. Treacher Collins. Treacher Collins Arthur syndrome. Tre- yeah, it's Arthur Treacher yes. uh, with a fish and chips guy. <laughs> oh, and, uh, oh, Merv. Merv, really, Merv. Take your hand out of my asshole. <laughs> I'm not a puppet. I'm not a puppet. <laughs> ooh, ooh. Speaking of Rick Moranis. Yeah, really. He did um, the best Merv. Go ahead. So the, the kid yeah. is deformed. Well, kid, he has, that, is, you know, is, facial deformities. Right. And um, he was asked to sing at the, I guess, the opening of a baseball game or a hockey game. And so he started to make fun of this kid. This kid was supposed to die with this, but he didn't. And he's beloved, as I understand. He's what? He's beloved. He's beloved, which is why he's a great target for a comic. I mean, as I've told you, I made terrible sport of Terry Fox when I was. Uh, working as a comic and uh, you know uh, you know my line remember I tripped the fucker um, this so, is the uh, guy this was the uh, the guy with one leg who hopped across Canada he hopped across Canada he almost got to the end um, he's a complete hero they were redesigning the $10 bill recently and they, he was sort of the front runner to put on the $10 bill I have nothing against Terry Fox personally I think he's wonderful but I was making fun of hero worship and I think in a lot of ways so was Mike Ward I don't I don't think that it was the kid so much. It was people's reaction to the kid and how holy the kid had become. But, you know, uh, what happened was his parents, his mother, I guess, sued him. Uh, It went to the Quebec. It's not it's not a court. It's um, I thought it was a human rights commission. Yeah, it's a human rights commission. They have the power to levy fines and they find Ward thirty five thousand dollars and another thousand dollars for the mother he fought it he got it the the amount rescinded for the mother but it was upheld by a higher court in quebec for the thirty five thousand dollars and he's gone all the way to the supreme court saying hey this is a free speech issue um i'm not making fun just of any kid the kid is a um a public figure in in quebec and therefore he's fair game okay just for the Uh, sake of for the sake now i I talked about this earlier on on the show you have a you had a five year old, correct? I don't like to talk about that anymore. <laughs> no. no, he's ten now. Yes. Okay. You know, I have a very simple rule of thumb on how to discuss these things. What would you tell your five year old? What would you tell a group of kindergartners about this? How would you explain this to a well, I'm not sure that it's. I'm not sure that it's explainable to a five-year-old. There's lots of things that I could never explain to a, a, my five-year-old. Now that he's ten, it's a little easier, and when he's fifteen, it'll be much easier. So I don't think that that's the that's the litmus test here. Well, what would you tell your your all right your kid? Here's what I would tell. Here's what I would tell my ten-year-old. Here's what I would tell you. Here's what I would tell anybody. What Mike Ward did was completely tasteless. Completely tasteless. 
And as a result, if you think what he did was so wrong, you should never go to his concert. You should never buy one of his records. You should avoid him completely. You should tell everybody to avoid him. But it's not illegal. They right. Right. Okay. So, but how um, do you? So, okay. This I agree with you, and and his speech is protected by whatever no. First Amendment. No, we don't have a. First I know, Amendment. but it should be protected. People should be allowed to say anything. Yes, but we don't have that protection in Canada. Just so, just because this is happening here, so it makes a big difference of how this case would have gone had it been in the states. You don't have freedom of speech in Canada. Only. Only by tradition, not by law. Maybe that's better. Maybe. I don't know. Maybe. Um, I mean, certainly I didn't make any of the arguments at the at the trial, but I'm sure that um, some of the arguments were made was that this was community standard, that if you go to a comedy club, this is what you're going to hear, that they could have pulled up any number of things by any number of comics going all the way back to Lenny Bruce and saying this is what stand up comedy is. Right. But, but it's not protected by any law that we have. Right. But Lenny Bruce, again, uh, Mike Ward, I say a lot. I make a lot of mistakes on this show we go six sometimes we do nine hour shows here i say a lot of things uh that i shouldn't say like hello welcome to my show stick right yeah, uh but start. and i should be protected to say whatever i want within reason but if i said if i made fun of somebody who was born with skull and facial deformities deaf uh, human decency dictates that I apologize. And a reasonable society can zone speech the same way you zone a neighborhood. Like, I don't, I'm all for strip joints. I just don't want it near my house. So put it in another part of town. But We've zoned this area off for aesthetic reasons. We don't want that kind of business in our neighborhood. Uh, yeah, Mike Ward should be allowed to say it feels like he should he should be punished in some way. There should be a group of people who are punishing him. How do you punish him for talking that way? You punish him by not going to his show. But he sells out. He's he sells out. Well, then clearly, I guess people don't care. But but then that's how you end up with Donald Trump as president. Somebody had. Don't uh, see that. I, I'm sorry. I just don't. Well, well see Donald that. Trump did. The, there was a reporter for the New York Times who had right. some okay. genital, congenital, or genital deformity. He was busy. About, I remember that. But you talk about zones and. Uh, you know, he uh, Mike is working in a comedy zone and Donald Trump is working in a political zone. And those are two very different zones. And the things I would do, let's pretend for a minute that people were got really nuts and made me a senator. Um, do you think I would do the same kind of material um, in the Senate that I would do on your show? No, but Trump I did. Know. I know. Well, that's why he, he's odious and, he, and, he, and he's an idiot. But we, but, you know, we have. Uh... Congresswoman Green, Congresswoman Bober. We, yeah, but they're we not trying a, to be funny. We have we have they're a whole party. Inadvertently funny, but <laughs> they actually believe that crap. Right. I, again, I'm just 
keeping a show going and, and asking. I know, I know. Uh, and so you have well, here in America. I got a, a better question for you, maybe. Okay. Would you do that material? Would you do that joke? I used to make fun of deaf people. I did a bit about deaf people. What? <laughs> I, I used to make fun of early on and it killed. Uh, I made fun of lip readers and, and it was like over the top. The joke was how much I hated deaf people and old people. And uh, I was like parroting hatred. And yes, but people saw you in a comedy club. And they knew that it wasn't supposed to be. That I didn't mean it. But I stopped doing it because what I discovered was a lot of people were laughing with me and not at me. So I didn't like the response. I wanted people to laugh at my stupidity. I I completely understand that. And I remember Andrew Dice Clay saying to me, um, he said, uh, said, uh, boy, you can't pick your audience. It's too bad. And, um, you know, they don't see the irony. I thought it was great that he knew the word irony. Right. But, uh, I like I, I liked Andrew Dice Clay. Me too. Of course, I liked him. I was the first person to ever put him on national television. Right. Um, I liked him I, more than I liked Sam because Sam was real. No, I liked Sam. I know, but Sam was dangerous because Sam. That's why I loved him. Yeah, but that's why I loved him. But but I want I I just oh now I lost I'm, lost I'm my sorry. I'm just going to say something that was relevant here. Oh, yeah, I know. I mean, I know what you're saying, because I used to make sport of, of hemophiliacs. And um, I used to, uh, my joke was, you know, I, I like hunting hemophiliacs. Nah, it's so easy. You just have to kind of graze them. So, um, you know, and that was so wrong. Right. A lot of bleeding like, hearts in the audience. Well, a guy bled out in front of me, yeah, you know, in, in, the, in the show. And I... Something happened. uh, Will you let's do six o'clock when there's more time. Uh, Something happened. uh, When jokes around the uh, the water cooler made it to the big leagues, something happened where jokes you would tell your friend privately somehow made it to the big time and. I'm not so sure that's good. Maybe, but there's just not that many people doing what Mike Ward does. Um, this is not an everyday occurrence. This is why it's going to the Supreme Court. It's rare. It's rare that somebody would do something that would be so shocking and so offensive and so hurtful to somebody that it would actually wind up going there. It's it's a very rare occurrence, but I'm 100% behind him, and most people in the comedy world are 100% behind him for the simple fact that if it happens to him, who's next? Right. You know, in my I'll tell you what I think in my heart of hearts. Okay. If I were his friend, yeah. I would say, you're doing well. Pay the fine. You did bad. Yes, but if he paid the fine, even at the even at the human rights code level, it would still set a precedent. That's why he couldn't do it. Where are right, but let's see uh where are the maybe I'm wrong. Uh, the real censorship is not going before the Supreme Court. It always seems to be uh, horrific speech that goes before. Let me finish. Let me finish. It's always George Carlin's seven dirty words. It's uh, Lenny Bruce uh, talking about sex. It's Mike Ward making fun 
of a, a disabled child or rape jokes. And people say, well, it's a slippery slope. Uh, first, they stop you from uh, making fun of uh, mentally retarded. Soon you won't be allowed to make fun of your government. Well, uh, we can't make fun of the government. We can make fun of Lindsey Graham. We can make fun of Trump. We can make fun of uh, Biden. We, but we can't make fun of the people who pay their salaries. You can't make fun of the insurance companies. You can't f make fun of McDonald's. It's the, no, no, hang on for one second. You can't tell the world through comedy that McDonald's doesn't pay a livable wage. You can't go on television and say McDonald's won't even won't pay their workers a livable wage. That's why they're striking. You can't even tell jokes about the McDonald's workers who are striking right now for a livable wage. You can't tell jokes on TV that tell people that if you go to work for McDonald's, they have forms for you to fill out to collect food stamps. That you're right. subsidizing McDonald's workers. So the it's the illusion. These cases perpetuate the illusion of freedom of speech. So you can make, you know, make fun of people with cerebral palsy. Make, you know, you should be allowed to make rape jokes because soon they won't let you make the really important jokes. Well, you can't make the really important jokes on television. You can't talk about Disney's. People who work for Disney living David, in their car. David, you can't even make those jokes in a, in a comedy club. Not because they're censored, but because the audience has no interest. No interest whatsoever. To be continued. Okay. I, 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 I love you. I, I, let's do 6 o'clock next week. We have to... Um, okay. Okay. Thank you. Great conversation. Mark Breslin is the founder and president of Yuck Yucks, the largest comedy club in North America. And it's time for Howie Klein. For He's Howie. brought a guest for us. Uh, this is very exciting. Hang on for one second. Are you there? Are you talking to Howie? Are you talking to me? This is I, I'm Shervon's talking to you. Is this Shervon? This is. Ah, great. Okay. Sorry about that. Shervon. Azami is a public health activist challenging long-term corporate Democrat Brad Sherman in California's 30th congressional district. His hometown is West, uh, West San Fernando Valley in the 2022 midterm election. Sherman is running on a strong progressive platform that includes single-payer Medicare for all, rebuilding our public health infrastructure, guaranteeing housing for all, legislating on the Green New Deal, decriminalizing our immigration system, and much more. He has taken the No Fossil Fuel Money Pledge, the No Cop Money Pledge, the New, the Green New Deal Pledge, and the Patience Over Profits Pledge. I hear you're working on a mutual aid project in your community. What, what does that mean? Uh, and while you answer that, I'm going to call Howie. Okay. Thank you for being here. And uh, I'm going to want you to come back. What is your mutual hey, aid? So yeah. What is your mutual aid project? Sure. If I can uh, start a little bit further back than that, if that's okay. Yes. Um, thanks so much for having me on the show, David. It's great to be here with you and with your audience. Uh, my name is Shervin Azami. I'm an Iranian-American. I'm an immigrant. 
I'm a public health activist and I'm running to oust corporate Democrat Brad Sherman in California's 30th district because of his failures to address the needs of working people. And the fact that for the over two decades he's been in office, he's occupied his seat on behalf of corporations, not on behalf of us. And both his voting record and what he stands for, and most importantly, his campaign contributions speak directly to how he's not here. Okay, I'm sorry, I'm waiting. I'm sorry, I'm waiting for Howie. I apologize. He may no, not be no making it. At all. Go ahead. So he's, he's, I apologize. Please continue. No, no problem at all. I uh, hope Howie is able to join us. Yeah. Um, he's, he's been fantastic. It's great to, to be connected with him. Um, and, you know, before, before throwing my hat in the ring to challenge Brad Sherman, I was working on Capitol Hill as the head legislative advocate for a national indigenous healthcare nonprofit fighting to make sure the United States government honored its treaty obligations to tribal nations and native people, something that it's never lived up to do. It's broken each and every treaty it's signed with the tribes. And while I'm proud of the work that we did, uh, we accomplished a lot, everything from getting laws passed that eliminated co-pays and deductibles for Native American veterans, getting us closer to realizing things like single payer Medicare for all, uh, to long-term funding for community health centers, diabetes programs, and getting $4 billion in direct funding to tribes. For the first time, Congress bailed out tribes during a public health crisis. Even during the Obama administration with H1N1, the government sent tribes body bags as opposed to relief, as opposed to vaccines. They sent them body bags? Sent them body bags. That's correct. Uh, And it happened this year, too. Uh, There were some articles in The Guardian and other places where uh, Native American health clinics in Seattle received body bags as opposed to testing kits, as opposed to vaccines, as opposed to resources, PPE. Uh, they got body bags instead. Um, and, uh, you know, this has been the MO of the federal government since, since day one. Uh, it's not been relief. It's not been honoring inherent tribal sovereignty. We are living the remnants of colonization to this day. And the way those remnants appear in our communities are through the systemic socioeconomic inequities, racial inequities, health-based inequities, education disparities, uh, and so on and so forth. And while I'm proud of the work that we accomplished, small ideas will not get get us out of this mess. Incremental change will not get it out of this mess. We need structural reforms that directly serve working people, that uplift and empower the working class that dismantle white supremacy and that end corporate welfare. That's what our campaign's all about. Let's talk about Brad Sherman for a second. Uh, He's been there for how many years? Uh, He's been there for about 24 years. I met Uh, him last year. I was, did you, I was working on the impeachment. Uh, I I was doing something uh, with triumph, the incel comic dog. And we, uh, we were wandering around the Capitol and we, I got to meet Brad Sherman. And at the time, he seemed tired. And he was giving us a tour through Statuary Hall. And he was very sweet. He had a, a, a great sense of humor. And I, I remember saying to him, and I was taken aback by this, how do you not pinch yourself every day walking through these halls? And he said mm-hmm. to me, it's easy. You get used to it. And I remember thinking, without knowing anything about his voting record, I remember thinking, seems like a nice guy. But if you're not pinching yourself, walking through Statuary Hall, 
maybe it's time to go home. Nobody's nobody's putting a gun to your head saying stay in Washington D.C. Uh, he's tired, and he and he seems like a nice guy, and he has a great sense of humor. But I don't think that helps people who are homeless, who don't have no. health care. Uh, if you're tired, go home. You, you know, no, it's, you're not entitled to be a congressperson. Talk to me about Brad Sherman. Is he for Medicare for is he for Medicare for all? Here's what I'll say. People like Brad Sherman, they lead from behind. They leak from, from behind. Behind. They lead from behind. Oh, lead from behind. Oh, okay. They lead through co-sponsorship. Allow me to share. Obama leads from behind. Well, goes into co-sponsoring a bill because Brad Sherman has co-sponsored Medicare for All and he's co-sponsored the Green New Deal. What goes into co-sponsoring a bill, David, let's say you were a member of Congress and I was also a member of Congress and I wanted to co-sponsor your bill. What goes into that process is a member of my staff sending a one sentence email to your staff saying, please add my boss's name to the bill. You may have to add a secondary email to follow up, but that's it. You didn't have to pen a single sentence of the legislation. You didn't have to offer an amendment. You didn't so much as have to offer an opinion, but you get to add your name and then claim you support it, give lip service back to your community and be able to dodge any kind of primary challenge. Well, let me tell you what commitment to structural reform looks like. 98% of Brad Sherman's campaign contributions come from corporations and lobbyists. Less than 1% are from grassroots donors in the amounts of $200 or less. The folks financing his campaign are the ones that speak on behalf of his campaign and what he's all about. 98% of his campaign contributions come from weapons manufacturers, private equity firms, commercial banks, credit card unions, the very industries that are actively lobbying against passage of structural reforms like Medicare for All and the Green New Deal. When was the last time Brad Sherman called for a hearing on Medicare for All? When was the last time he introduced something to legislate on the vision of Medicare for All? When was the last time he called for a vote, forced a vote on Medicare for All? He hasn't. He co-sponsors bills in order to avoid primary challengers, does not do the actual work of advocating for the structural reforms we need. We don't need more co-sponsors in Congress. We need more advocates in Congress. We need what's your, what's your website? How do people donate money to you? So my website is shervenforthevalley.com. Um, and on my website, you can find my donation page, um, how to sign up to volunteer. Because look, we are, we are here to build a new political coalition in the San Fernando Valley. A new political coalition of working people, of Latinx voters, of black voters, of young voters. People are tired of the status quo in Congress people that are tired of the services they need being sold out to corporations, people that are tired of lip service in their members of Congress, and people that are so disillusioned, disenchanted by the failures of our government because our system is geared towards corporations in the top 1%, not working people. And on the topic of Bradshaw, you brought up housing. You know, housing is the number one issue in all of Los Angeles and a lot of California. LA is ground zero 
when it comes to our affordable housing crisis and our crisis of unhoused community members. Before COVID-19, before COVID-19, we had 66,000 unhoused community members across LA County. And we know, because we've heard from grassroots leaders and activists, that the issue is exponentially worse now as a result of tens of thousands of people across LA losing their jobs, losing their wages, losing their health care, not being able to afford rent, to afford utilities. We know the situation is exponentially worse. And at the same time, we know that we've seen huge increases in opioid overdose deaths, fentanyl-driven opioid overdose deaths, particularly among Black and Latinx unhoused community members. These crises, crises expose injustices, and crises always fall on racial fault lines. Black Angelinos are 8% of our city population, but 34% of our unhoused. Well, let me and ask Brad, you, let me, let me ask you. If I can just make one point yes, here. Yes, please. Brad Sherman is literally the guy to do something about our housing crisis. The reason why I say that is because last Congress, Brad Sherman became the chair of the Investor Protection, Entrepreneurship and Capital Markets Subcommittee on Financial Services. That subcommittee has jurisdiction over our federal housing finance laws, over U.S. securities, over Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, over laws authorizing new affordable housing programs. And as soon as he became chair, BlackRock and Blackstone, the private equity firms and asset management firms who have been exacerbating the housing crisis nationwide started donating to his campaign. He received 27K from them last cycle alone. So he's not there to solve the issues that matter to our communities. You should be on this show. You need to be on this show once a week. I would love to. I would love to. You need to be on this show once a week. Uh, Or at least until you go to Congress. Howie Klein is batting a thousand as always. You're 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 incredible, Sherwin for the Valley. That's with a, a a four, right? The 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 number four, correct? And he just froze on me. Uh, okay, Sherwin. S H E R V I N. The number four. The Valley dot com. Yeah, you're back. You just froze. You just froze. Sorry, bad internet where I am. Let, let me let me uh, run an idea past you. Sure. What do you what do you think somebody should be allowed to what do you think people should live on? In other words, what is an income that is you should be able to live a happy, full life on? Like being a Supreme Court justice. Are you a lawyer, by the way? I'm not a lawyer. Good. No. That's why masters of public health and a master's public administration. Uh, lawyers are bad. Uh Well, they're able to see two sides. They're trained in this country to see two sides of every story. So if you elect a lawyer, they they're built to compromise. They're 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 able to see two sides to 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 the Holocaust. They could see two sides to it. Uh, So lawyers are not trained to represent their constituents. Uh, Would you agree that are you frozen? No, can you hear me? Yeah. Could, uh, yeah. could you just shake your head a little? Because I'm worried. Yeah, that's right. Well, while I'm talking, just shake your head like you're disgusted by what I'm saying. <laughs> Would you take a pledge to uh, reveal your net worth of from course. the time you yes. Yes. are sworn in as congressperson yes. and promise that you will not make any more money 
than what you're paid as a congressperson and that your war chest will be dissolved and not go to your family, that your campaign war chest will either be donated yes. to charity or be given to uh, your successor who you endorse? Yes. A member of Congress is a public servant. Taxpayers pay our salary. We serve the people. If we are not doing our jobs, we should be removed by the people. There's a video of Bernie uh, saying very similar to what I just said from 30 years ago. He's been a huge inspiration of mine and many other progressives across the country. You brought up a living wage. Well, as you may know, about six years ago here in LA, we passed a $15 minimum wage that kicks in next year. Well, guess what? According to the National Low Income Housing Council, in order to avoid paying over 30% of your income to rent here in LA, you gotta be making $38 an hour, two and a half times the minimum wage here in LA. So how does that include service workers? How does that include gig workers? How does that include grocery store workers, sanitation workers? It doesn't. It does not. And then they blame, and what they do is, they blame these workers by saying, of course they do. Of course you they need do. to get an education. You need to go to community oh. college. You need oh. to stop being. That's, that's a new liberal talking points right there. Right. You know, putting it back on the individual instead, as opposed to creating systems that engender health and ensure people's basic necessities are met. It is not radical to say everyone should be guaranteed housing. It is not radical to say everyone should be guaranteed health care. Hey, I, what, what's wrong? Well, wait a second. Wait a second for one second. I, I'm sorry no. to interrupt you. No, 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 please. Uh, if you work at a grocery store, and we certainly saw this during the pandemic, you are more important than upper level management. Worker. You are a frontline worker. And yet think about the state and how they're leaving frontline workers behind. And then you have corporations like Kroger saying that if cities require us to provide hazard pay, we're going to shut down. They already have shut down. Kroger's is already yeah. shutting down. Yeah. Yeah. In California. Kro- day, I'm sorry. One day of Prop 22, within one day of Prop 22 passing, Uber and Lyft, their market shares increased by 13 billion. These laws and these systems are designed to exploit workers and maximize profit for corporations. Think about what's happening in Texas. How ERCA, these companies, have the audacity to send people bills, 8,000, 9,000 for electricity, do not even have. They do not even have. These are basic needs. Can anyone survive without electricity, without running water? Can anyone survive without health care, without a roof over their heads? No, the answer is no. These are basic necessities every American, every human being should be entitled to. This should not be radical. We should not be having these conversations. The fact that we're forced to have these conversations over and over again further reaffirm how rigged the system is. Rigged the system? You're what? How rigged rigged the system is. Yes. Yes. In favor of corporations. I, I am so sick and tired of politicians, candidates or lawmakers who speak in generalities around what they're going to do, who give lip service to the ideas. You go on our website, you'll see 15 different things that we're going to do to legislate on housing for all. This is what it looks like. 
When we say a single payer healthcare system, that it covers everyone, zero cost coverage for everything from medical care to maternal care to pediatric care to long-term care, this is what it looks like. And the fact that we need to go even further than that. You know, so absolutely I take that pledge because I am running to be a public servant. That is the point of public office. And, and now- Let me ask you, let me ask you, because sure. they've, they've figured out all this plausible deniability, the Democrats. Citizens United, we, we, we're, our hands are tied, Citizens United. Didn't Bernie prove that you can get the money out of politics simply by not taking the money? Mm-hmm. Can't you mm-hmm. say to to uh, to Brad Sherman, your hands are tied with Citizens United. I'm your opponent. Don't take the money. Get the money out Folks of politics. Have Folks, I tried. Um, there are a few advocates that um, are, are working with our campaign who've been trying to get Brad Sherman to sign the no fossil fuel money pledge for years. He won't do it. He won't do it. So, so you co-sponsor the Green Deal to, to, what, to what end? What are you actually trying to do for your community? How have you addressed the Aliso Canyon gas leak, the methane leak, one of the largest in which U.S. Can, history? What, what, what canyon? The Aliso Canyon. We're, it's in Porter Ranch, uh, in north of L.A., and he has yet to really address the issues. He's not, he's not worked with the state government or the federal government to shut down that um, uh, that station. And he continues getting money from weapons manufacturers that are exacerbating the problem across the entire country. We have over 3,000 uncapped oil wells in Los Angeles. And those oil wells are located in close proximity to black and Latinx neighborhoods. And Beverly Hills High. And Beverly Hills Beverly High. Hills, there's one under Beverly Hills High as well. There's one under Beverly Hills High as well. And you never hear Brad Sherman talking about this. You never hear him actually fighting for the issues that matter, for the institutional reforms that matter. It seems to me that, you know, I'm always looking for for a unified field theory that just will solve everything overnight. And I get things in my... There is no silver bullet. There is a silver bullet. There is a silver bullet. What is it? You, you, you... My, and I apologize to my audience for repeating this over and over again. But, you know, love is the answer. Right. And that bears repeating that love is the you know, nobody gets mad at you for writing another love song. Uh, this bears repeating. I want to well, see I'll your see. I, I want to see if you want to be a Democrat. I want to see your tax returns. Mm-hmm. If you are worth a million dollars, two million dollars, mm-hmm. I, I think it's reasonable if of a certain age, if you're worth two or three million dollars or over, God bless you. Really, seriously, that's that's great. If you have three million dollars and you're 65, uh, that's fantastic. And, and we'll take your vote. But you're not running for Congress. You're not Speaker of the House. Uh-huh. We want your vote, but you're not in charge. Uh-huh. That's the answer. Uh-huh. It's that well, the- simple. If, 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 if I could see one 
you know, Katie Porter, we had her on the show. She's a single mom who studied law at Harvard with Elizabeth Warren. You know, just because you're a single mom, Katie Porter, doesn't mean you identify with real single moms who don't have time or the resources to lean in. If, mm-hmm. you know, if you're hyper-educated, you come from an elite school, that's a liability in the Democratic Party. God bless you, but you don't represent us. Mm-hmm. It's that simple. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It, it's that simple, and I agree with you that, and this is one thing that our campaign is very focused on, it's taking a public health approach to all policy issues whether it's healthcare, whether it's education, whether it's foreign policy, whether it's immigration. What does that mean? The public health discipline teaches us to look at the root causes of our issues, as opposed to putting band-aids on bullet wounds, look at true structural transformative solutions that go back to the core of why the issue exists. For example, on the topic of Medicare for all, let's use the topic of housing for all. We think about the generational impacts of things like redlining, of denying black and brown communities the opportunity to generate wealth by purchasing a home, by creating a strong black and brown middle class, where you had racial covenants in so many different housing units across all the entire country and here in Los Angeles as well. And we see the remnants of all those things today and the way the San Fernando Valley set up, the San Fernando Valley was set up as a white enclave. That's why we have so much single family zoning. Hey, so one of our guests, uh, uh, you, you're going to get a compliment. Joe, I agree with you. Joe just sent me a note. One of our listeners, Joe, I agree with you 100 percent. Say it. Well, thank you, Joe. I appreciate that. Joe just said. All right. Now, Joe. Joe just said we he thinks we just found our our next Bernie. I agree. I agree. Well, I uh, I that's uh it's a very very high compliment to provide. No, we mean I, loser. Uh, You're going to lose. You're not. No, I mean DNC in this role. Who's a DNC? <laughs> no, I mean it, it. You know, earlier on in the show. Uh, I said, you you know, you can either be depressed or you can be angry. And, and the anger has to go outwards. You have to direct your anger. You, what they want you to do in this country is blame yourself. It's yep. your fault you're, you're broke. You, it's personal responsibility. It's your fault you're working 40 hours a day bagging groceries you, you shouldn't have been smoking in the parking lot in fifth grade. It's your fault. And that's why we criminalize things like mental health. That's why we criminalize substance use. That's why we have a trillion dollar war on drugs because the approach is criminalization and incarceration, not healing, not justice, not meeting the community where they are at. You know, last year amidst a pandemic that cost. 500,000 people, their lives, led to millions losing their jobs, their wages, their healthcare, their homes. We minted 46 new billionaires 
America's billionaires entrenched their wealth by over one trillion, higher than that stimulus package that was signed into law in December that provided a measly 600 bucks to the working people, to working Americans. So that's means tested. They, oh, it's not targeted. You know, we, we need to lower the income threshold. We need to do this, we need to do that. So that's fine. We, we always balance the budget on the backs of working people, but forget the deficit even exists when it comes to corporations at top 1%. Yeah. That's the way our system works. Right. You know, working I, this way for years. For some reason, uh, not for some, I'm quoting Michael Brooks. Uh, and one of the first things I heard Michael Brooks say is you get nothing in politics by asking for it. You have to take it. You have to take it. And I want to I want a candidate who says I am going to take Jeff Bezos's money. We're going to rewrite the tax code and take his money. It's our money. Amazon doesn't pay taxes. It's no, our not. money and we're taking it. Yes. And yes, why isn't that? I mean, how could you not fill a, a stadium of Trump supporters who would cheer at that? We're coming for you, Jeff Bezos. We're re we got a bunch of accountants who understand the tax code and they're coming for you, Jeff Bezos. You're only going to have a billion dollars because we're coming for our money. Why? Well, why is that so hard for candidates to talk that way? Because we got to change the culture of politics and the culture of what we value in this country. People value Jeff Bezos. They say he's a people aren't Elon Musk. They say he's a hard worker. He got there because of his own. He picked himself up by his bootstraps. Bullshit. All the work. Bullshit. Exactly. exactly. You do not get to that point without, without committing several crimes, without exploiting people underneath you. You exploited their labor to entrench your wealth. That's you cannot have a billion dollars without you cannot, committing you crimes. Workers. You cannot be a billionaire and not exploit workers. Exploiting workers is very general. Crime, t not paying taxes, is criminal. Absolutely. My father had friends who went to jail for not paying taxes. Mm -hmm. People here in the United working people, low-income people, for not paying cash bail, they go to prison. We always criminalize poverty and celebrate wealth beyond means. Right. That's not the way it should work. Right. I uh, absolutely agree with you. That's why on our plan too, we have a bold economic justice plan. A lot of it modeled off of Bernie's plan, everything from imposing a tax, a 2% tax on Wall Street speculation to repealing the disastrous Trump tax cuts uh, to putting a, a tax on capital gains, on net assets above 32 million, and also bringing back the marginal tax rate at 91%. A lot of these folks on these conservatives, these GOP folks who say, oh, we need, to, we need to go back to the, the glory days of, of the American middle class, back when Jim Crow was rampant, back when white people were fully in charge. Still to this day, they are. And we think about what the marginal tax rate was, back it was 91%. For nine years straight, it was 91%. When the quote unquote middle class was created, the booming years of the 50s after World War II, 91% marginal tax rate. We need to bring that back. And that's what our plan calls for. Right, right.
Sure. We either redistribute that wealth, defund our military industrial complex, and fully fund housing, fully fund healthcare, fully fund education and the basic needs of the American people. That's what our campaign's all about. Shervin for the Valley, S-H-E-R-V, as in Victor, I-N, the number four, thevalley.com. Shervin for the Valley. Dot com. So when are, the primary is what, like a year away? When are the primaries? June 7th, 2022. So we have quite some time, um, but we're going up against a well-financed corporate Democrat. What's he's he worth? What's he worth? Well, he's got 2.4 million in the bank from his corporate campaign contributors. 2.4 million. In his bank? When he leaves well, office? I'm talking about his campaign contributions, 2.4 million. And in what's he worth? Assets, what's he worth in terms of assets? I'm sure it's in that same ballpark. I'm I don't know exactly how much, but I think we should find out. Should I think I out. think I think we should find out how rich his kids are, what his kids do for a living, and oh, the kids, that's not fair. Leave the kids out of it. Uh you judge a politician you know, they love to, to, to bring their kids out when they're running for office. But then when you question why they got a two million dollar book deal to discuss their crack addiction, that they're off limits. My kids are then don't then don't wheel them out for votes. Don't bring them out at Grant Park in 2008 and, and, and say, look at my beautiful family. But when one of them graduates from Harvard and takes a job as a a TV writer at Netflix at the age of 23 as Obama's kid. Netflix pay taxes either, by the way. Netflix doesn't pay taxes. Obama's kid just took a job as a television writer at Netflix. Uh, you know, she's entitled to be happy, but it questions her parents' values. This is what this is what this is what your Harvard education got you a writing job on a TV show. There are, I believe Obama said he would never leave us. He left us. I'll I'll tell you my question. I absolutely question Brad Sherman's motives. I question why he's in office. I question whom he actually served. Well, actually, no, I know the answers to those questions. Corporations, the top 1%. But one thing we haven't talked about yet, you brought up speaking fees. And that took me on my own little mental tangent. There is an Iranian separatist group called the Mujahideen Echalk, M-E-K for short. And they're an Iranian separatist group that was classified as a terrorist organization until 2012. They were removed from being a terrorist organization by Hillary Clinton when she was Secretary of State. And after their new leader started providing a lot of very handsome speaking fees to both Democrats and Republicans. This is a separatist group that when you talk to my family, they remember the bombings and assassinations of the MBK during the Iran-Iraq War in the 1980s. Your, your family's from uh, Iran. My and, family's from Iran. And, and from um, Italy. So I was born in Italy. Uh, my parents, they fled religious persecution in Iran at the time of the revolution. Uh, my family are all Baha'i. Um, Baha'is are a religious minority in Iran that have been persecuted since their founding. And they, they fled for their lives. Uh, they fled with the skin on their backs and 
try to create a new life in Italy. I mean, that uh, must be really there. tough in America for you to have Americans say that you're both Italian and Iranian. I mean, that must I, I would. It's amazing you have any hair left. I, I would have pulled my hair out with all the Americans saying, so you're Iranian and Italian? Well, it's it's funny. You know, I, I always say I I learned responsibility from my mother and service from my father. Right. Uh, my father, he became a, a gastroenterologist in Italy. And then we moved to the States. We moved to the States because my mom's brothers were both out here. They're both mechanics. Uh, they were, they moved out here in the eighties. They're like, you all should come out here. It's better out here. And they decided to join them. And my dad went back to school. Uh, he's now a family care physician, uh, primary care doc here in the Valley. And my, my mom was our, our breadwinner when I was a kid, she worked in retail for most of my youth. And that left me being raised by my grandparents. And so I, but you know, uh, as much as they tried and tried, I, I'm currently not literate in Farsi. I wish I was, I do speak Farsi, uh, but I was too lazy when I was a kid uh, to learn to read and write the language. And, and your dad's a gastroenterologist, so he's literate in Farsi as well. Farsi and Farsi. Yeah, this is. is the nightmare of going longer than 35 minutes with me. I'm just, Now everything you say, just this is why people should not get their news from comedy writers, because uh, go ahead. Sorry. I, I apologize for the Farsi joke, but it's no, uh, not at all. It's not our all. chat room. I, I, I I'm trying to impress our chat room. So you're, you're dead. And then your father is a successful gastroenterologist. Not here. No, he, he was a gastroenterologist in Italy. But when we moved to the States, his medical license was not accepted. Uh, the country doesn't accept for a lot of foreign uh, medical licenses, except from certain countries like the UK, maybe a couple others. And so he went back to school and, you know, in his mid to late thirties, going back to medical school, learning a new language. These are the struggles that my parents went through. These are the struggles of so many immigrant families across the country. And Los Angeles has the largest population of Iranians outside mm -hmm. of Iran. It's referred to lovingly as Tarantulas. Mm -hmm. And yet to this day, Brad Sherman touts how he was one of 20 semi Democrats who voted against the Iran deal. Even though we have the largest population. Of why, why would he be against the why would he be against it? Well, he is a, a very pro-Israel, hawkish, neoconservative Democrat. Um, one of the most hawkish you can imagine. And, you know, last Congress, when Jamal Bowman ousted Elliot Engel, that opened up uh, the House Foreign Affairs sheet. And Brad Sherman, technically, is the most senior member of the Foreign Affairs Committee. And he scored a distant third in his bid for chair. Because he and didn't raise enough money. Well, uh, it, I think it speaks to, to an extent, how hawkish and neoconservative Brad Sherman is. That even a party like the Democratic Party that still continues to finance our endless wars, that still continues to prop up our military industrial complex, even they rejected someone like Brad Sherman and put him in a distant third, did not vote for him. But on the point that I wanted to make with the MBK and the Iranian separatist group, Brad Sherman received, I don't know how many tens of thousands of dollars for speaking at one of their rallies in DC. He was the only Democrat to do so. You know whom else spoke there? Rudy Giuliani, hmm. John Bolton, Mike Pompeo. 
Good people. That is the company that Brad Sherman keeps when it comes to foreign policy. Is he, do you think he'll debate you? I'd love to have him debate me. I'd love to. And you know what the problem I, is? If you come at him this way, people are going to say, why is this young, good-looking man with a full head of hair beating up on the old guy? And It has everything to do with the policies. At the end of the day, public servants were lawmakers. We are policymakers. We are supposed to be debating the policies. We're supposed to have people in office who care about their constituents, who serve their constituents. Not sometimes, not in the morning, not from 2 to 4 p.m. in the afternoon, but every single day they are in elected office. And afterwards, they are public servants. They're supposed to be there for the community. And Brad Sherman is not there for our community. He never has been. And I will not shy away from speaking truth to power. Well... You'll come back next week? I'd love to. All right. Uh, let me give your website and everybody, if you're an American citizen, go to Shervin, the number four, the valley dot com. Shervin for the valley dot com. S-H-E-R-V-I-N, the number four, the valley dot com. Let's send Shervin to Congress. I'll talk to you next week, I hope. I'd hope so. Thank you so Thank much. Thank you. you, uh, you my, the people, we, we love you. And if you take a look at what people are saying in our chat room here on Zoom. Uh, Thank you. They, so they love you. Yeah. Oh, somebody just said oh, Shervin versus Sherman. That's funny. You know, what, you know what's funny? My field director, actually, his catchphrase has been Shervin beats Sherman. So oh. that's, a, that's a good one. Okay. Well, my chat room is very funny. I hate I hate the people in the chat room, but they're very funny. Thank you, Shervin. They're they're grotesque. Thank you so much. They're the chat room. They're grotesque animals, Laura House. They're grotesque. <laughs> Let us now go to Texas, where comic and comedy writer Laura House is standing by. You are the head writer of a show on the BBC, The Secret Life of Boys. Yes, uh, BAFTA winning. You won a BAFTA? Nominated. Uh, the show did. But here you are in Texas and you can't even take a bath. <laughs> I can't even take a bathtub. You can't even take a bath. When's the last time you had a bath? Picked a weird... <laughs> um, well, I try... Yeah, we, well, I took a couple last week. They were just very, very cold and... Um, what I don't know where to go with this bit. All right, so so I listen, like the idea of a bafta. You you BAFTA. haven't had a, a bath. You're depressed. I understand. <laughs> I, I haven't taken. I'm depressed. We're all depressed. That's why you haven't taken a bath, as I understand it, right? Yeah, I picked a weird winter to come to um, Texas. Yeah. So what about personal responsibility? Whoa, I'm running against Shervin, by the way. <laughs> so can we just talk about that? <laughs> I'm running against both those guys. They're both jerks. I'm going <laughs> to, what are we running for? I'm going to do it though. Do I you, like it. Do you I'm live in the San better. Fernando Valley? Didn't you used to live in the San Fernando? I Valley? did. Yeah. That's what I consider home. The, the valley. people make fun of it, but it, it's my favorite place in, in Los Angeles. I'm just very basic. I think. Right. I just so like will you campaign for Shervin? Yeah, I would do that. Yeah. So let's talk about personal responsibility. You're in Texas. Oh. Okay. Are you in Texas? Yes. Okay. What, what city? I'm Austin? not in Cancun. That's for sure. <laughs> 
Well, my my kids were like, I want to go to Cancun. And I was like, I don't even have kids. <laughs> so I'd be a, at this point, I'd be a better senator. I'm going to run against him, too. I'm going to uh-huh. just run against everybody. <laughs> what, what 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 city are you in? I am in a I a suburb of Dallas. It's called Grand Prairie. Mm-hmm. Um, and can I just tell you? So I'm. The story is, and it's so. I I kind of. It only just kind of hit me today, really, after we came out of this weird winter. That like this was maybe a weird weird thing to do. Sherman Oaks, fun. Um, <laughs> I. Um, That's lame. Don't look, he, hang on for one. No, can, hang on for one second. Hang on. There are detestable people in this chat room. I know them all personally. I've met them at office hours. They will take you down a path. You will not find your way back into the conversation. I, your chat is my, my mosh pit. Your chat is where I go, ah, oh, just catch me. And they pass me around. Here, I'm going to show you left. John Hayes. Here, while you talk, I'm going to show. <laughs> you made us what we are. This is John Hayes from the chat room. These are memes. Where are you going? So you're walking out on me. I'm going to show some photographs, some memes from John Hayes. Oh, my God. This is these are the. All right. So while you're talking. Oh, my God. That's so great. Please don't read the chat room because I, I, I that you're going to go distant on me. OK, so you're nope. in a suburb of Dallas. I'm in a suburb of Dallas. I'm. Um, uh, gosh, we can't. We're. You know, we're going right now. I can't ask you to queue up your bit, but if I were to ask you to queue up your bit, now would be the time. So I'm in, this is where I grew up. This is the town where I grew up. And, um, you know, so pandemic hit, obviously I was working last year and in, was in Ireland with Secret Life of Boys. We were, this is an amazing slideshow. We were. See, focus. <laughs> <laughs> we think were, of the podcast even, listeners don't think i don't even know how to make a meme why why is that this is what i'm up against in the chat they're telling me not to read the chat which is my yeah, favorite look at that eventual so my i inherited a house here um because my my father passed away Ba-dum-bum. <laughs> <laughs> go ahead how passed away is he? Hang on, do um, I, I, I didn't, I, you know what? Let me see what I got here. I'm sorry. I don't have uh, nothing. I got no. But I'm in my, I'm in my dad's house. So he, he passed and then we were going to sell the house and then the world shut down. And so we didn't. And s- <laughs> Exactly. So I'm in his house. So it's full of stuff like this because he carved. He is a very country guy and he carved. There was hundreds of these, but we most of them are in my brother's house. But we this is a gar. And these are he, those are fish that he didn't he, that he carved. He carves, he carves stuff out of wood and um, it's very charming. And we have like giant wooden spoons and stuff that hang on the wall. It's just, it's very country. There's a lot of wood paneling and- I'm gonna do that to my kids. (laughs) Just leave behind stuff that they wanna throw out, but they can't. (laughs) No, it's very, um, I love these. It's beautiful. I think it's very uh, sweet. But uh, anyway, so it's a very, it's just a little 
house in outside of Dallas and um, every and it really it was everybody said the virus would be really bad in the winter. And since I didn't have to be in L.A. because we're all just max headroom now, mm-hmm. I was like, let's go sit in that hillbilly house near Dallas. And, and you're still with him. Who? You're, are you still in a loving relationship? <laughs> yeah. Good. Yeah. I'm here with Brian, um, the trumpet player and my dog. And um, and you last time we talked the two of you were enjoying all the splendor of the middle-class American lifestyle that has eluded both you and me. (laughs) You're like a refrigerator that makes its own ice, (laughs) right? It's unbelievable. It's so so funny. um, It makes you happy, right? Well, it is. I've never had a refrigerator that makes its own ice but i'm told it makes you happy there's water right in the door (laughs) you're you're making fun of my capitalism aren't you no 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 i i'm getting to a point now where i'm i i'm thinking i i would like to have a window that that just looks out at a a toxic waste dump as opposed to the brick wall i I open my window oh you'd rather i'm just looking at a brick wall well, yeah, this is like Rikers was, Island. What was your life like before the lockdown? Like, did you leave much? I mean, no. What a weird thing to be confined. Were you allowed out of your apartment before? No. A year ago? No. No. It's been the same. I have. It's, uh, stuck. it's, it's Manhattan. You walk outside, it's 20 bucks. <laughs> it is. It's like you go outside and they go, give me 20 bucks. Not not the people on the street. If you they've figured out how to monetize, they've commodified everything in, in Manhattan. Yeah. Yeah. So go ahead. So you're enjoy so t- you got the door. So Yeah, no, the like the do they tell you like how the dog has a yard and wow. the, she's only ever been tethered to me in in out of doors. Mm-hmm. And so she's she's like how we'll be when all this ends. She's in the yard just like, What what am I I can just I can go anywhere? Oh, it's just this is incredible. And when do you think this ends? Oh gosh, twenty twenty three? Mm-hmm. No, I don't know. It's um, you know what this is. Let me t- let me tell have you. You decided what, on the show when it ends. Are, are you let me tell you what's under? going on here because we just did COVID Town Squares with Henry Huckamacki and the irritable immunologist. Okay. Mm-hmm. Now this is when COVID ends. When uh, we lived in LA, I would load the kids, the dogs, the wife into a van. And we would drive up to San Francisco. And invariably, someone had to use the restroom. Mm-hmm. And <laughs> I would say, we're almost there. Mm-hmm. We're almost there. Mm-hmm. We're almost there. Because I didn't want to pull over and mm-hmm. waste time. And that's what's going on with COVID-19. We're all in a van And the guy in the driver's seat, this time it's Biden, and he's saying, we're almost there. Just hold it in. If you can just hold it in a little longer. Mm. And it turns out 
We're not almost there. You think this will be going on? You think it'll be like um, some of us are, are going to be we're five minutes away until like December or until like 2024. I think, I think some of us are going to shit the van. Oh, wow. Um, yeah, I don't know. It's weird. It, it's honestly we've been here just like three months and it's been it's been great because it very much felt like. Yeah, we're just going for winter and then we'll figure it out. Like when you give yourself a a date, we'll figure it out. And Mm -hmm. now it's like, like, oh, I have to figure it out. (laughs) And now I'm like, "Ah, I don't know what to do, but we're missing our stuff and our stuff is in storage. Do you really miss it? Do you really miss it? Honestly, missing. What do you miss? Because I have. I share a storage facility with Jim Earl in L.A. Interesting. Yeah. That's intimate. Yes. That's like a, the odd couple mm-hmm. with a storage facility. And I can't remember what I miss. I know I have stuff. I, ha- I know I have everything from my life. Ah, well, what do you miss you in ha- your storage? You have an apartment full of that's an apartment full of your stuff. Right. And your storage is just some extra stuff. Right. You're talking about where where I'm recording this. Yeah, from? where you live right now. Yeah, this is pretty much all I've got. Right, but I mean, you live in a home. That's your stuff. You moved there. Yeah, this is. We just we just packed bags. Do you know that in New York people like leave... I'm living with all my dad's right. <laughs> all my dad's stuff. These are lamps that people in New York throw out. Oh really? Yeah, they're not bad. Yeah. Um, the show, yeah, no, by I'm... the way. What? The show. What? They threw out and I just got it. Oh, Somebody that's left amazing. It. What was it called? Conan O'Brien's uh, kids what? show. Conan's kids really? had a little. You should not have changed the name. <laughs> His kids had a little show when they were living in New York <laughs> that they did just, you know, they made a fort. They put some blankets over their bunk beds and they did this pretend podcast. And then when he moved 10 years ago to New York, he left it on the side of the road and I took it. Nobody really? was using it. All right. Hey, uh, I heard carry over. I heard um, you were. Ir- I miss my art on the wall. That's the answer to your question. Okay, I, let's talk about personal responsibility in Texas. And also clothes, because we only brought five. That we just packed a suitcase. We right. did the opposite of the Beverly Hillbillies. Let, let's talk about your lack of personal responsibility in Texas. Oh yeah, no, it's my fault. We didn't have heat. Yeah, why? Why didn't For you one, have heat? Why would you do well, that to the power grid? For one, I unplugged the power grid. And in retrospect, maybe I shouldn't have. <laughs> so when you say personal responsibility, it hits hard because I literally, I thought it would be funny. <laughs> I thought it'd be like an airplane in that moment where you're like, oops. And um, <laughs> man, I did not know there would be icicles on ceiling fans when I did it. Well, but, it's the wind. It's the green it? energy that caused it all, didn't it? Yeah, isn't that amazing um, that they're like, this is our opportunity to shit on <laughs> on sustainable green energy. We hate it. We don't even really use it that much, but we're we want everybody to think we hate like the indoctrination is is incredible. But um, do people no, believe just, that? I mean, what are people saying? Are, are, do, are, do they believe that? I don't interact with anybody. Right. Um, you know, like it was part of coming here was just like. To, to bunker down we went out to get some food yesterday and 
it was like a summer day. There was a 75 degree difference um, between last last week. It was one degree. Oh, hang on. It's how I'm being rude. Hang on. Yesterday it's it was 76 degrees. Howie. Uh, we, we got a burger, Tom. Howie Klein. Yeah, I just got your message. And I, I'm sorry I missed the show. I, OK, uh, but we're, we're live. So just don't volunteer any information. We loved him. Oh, oh, oh good. I'm glad. We love yeah, him. Yeah. Yeah, that's great. He's, I told you you love him. He's great. He's really smart. Will you come back with him next week? Yeah, of course. Okay. Uh, I mean, I was thinking bring somebody else, but I'm happy to do something. Bring somebody else. else. We'll bring I, Shervin back. Uh, but I, I, I'm I being rude to my guests. I love okay, you. I love you. We <laughs> love you. Everybody's was missing you. I'll talk to you soon. Okay, thank you. I'll call you tomorrow. Thank you, Howie. Bye. Bye. Sorry, Howie just had a check-in. That's sweet that you that you love each other. I, how can you not love Howie Klein? I don't know. Do you read Down with like, Tyranny? I just like that you say it. Okay, so uh, go ahead. So I, I was rude to you. I apologize. No, I don't know what happened. I've never been in a... I'm used to apartment living, again, as mentioned. Am I distracting you with that picture of the jet engine? No, I like it. Could you not find a bus that had crashed into a wall or something? <laughs> okay, sir. Tell me how you are. When, when I rode on the Rosie O'Donnell show, you know how you have, um, uh, and not the not the one everybody saw, the one that was on OWN just for like six months. Mm -hmm. You know how they'll they'll advertise on the side of a bus? A bus with her ad on it had crashed, and there was an image online of, of the bus with her name on it, like, crashed into a wall and i was like this is the best description of the show i've ever seen I've what would she seen. like to work for i hope everyone was okay yeah uh challenging yeah challenging it's challenging a, a, a stern taskmaster let's talk about something happy like the disaster that was texas this week <laughs> But Rosie let's can't. Rosie let's can't. Li let's let's lighten it up with a happier subject like trauma across the state of Texas. Okay, Rosie is like I'm like Rosie. I'm like really? I'm like Rob Reiner. I can't or, or or Aaron Sorkin or Rosie or Ellen. I can't treat people nicely. I don't have mm. time to treat the people who work for me as human beings because I'm saving the world. Oh, yeah. The people who work for me, I treat them like pigs because my, because they get in my way. They prevent me from saving the world. That's fair. Do you ever yell at that racy leopard print blanket behind yes, you do. just for fun? Yes, I do. I yell at, at my imaginary Don't look stick. me in the eyes! <laughs> that I get. Seriously. If I were Johnny Carson, if look I were Johnny shoes. Carson or David Letterman, you weren't allowed to look at David Letterman. Oh, really? Yeah. And if I were David Letterman without the makeup on, I wouldn't want anybody <laughs> to look. makeup on. God, have you seen the jokes they did about Britney from 10 years ago? Oh, yeah, that they've been going back around. Oh, my but God. Yeah, they don't they don't they don't hold up well. Also, They're like guys. They are. They should be brought up before the Hague. You know what I love about it, though? That means there there was a significant shift in our consciousness collectively 
because now it does look weird, just like old movies that have weird racist stuff. And we go, oh, gosh. So to me, it's kind of thrilling that it's like that was no big deal at the time, like collectively, like Disney, the way the, the Leno stuff about, you know, just, just these old men railing about a young girl or the, you know, Letterman creeping on Lindsay Lohan. And that now we all collectively go, Oh, that's awful. I like, that's genuinely thrilling to me. I'm not making this up. Disney plus is putting trigger warnings on some, uh, 20 Mm. year old episodes of the Muppet Show. Oh, they, on the Muppet Show? Yeah. There's because, I guess uh, like they I guess Miss Piggy getting tag teamed by Kermit <laughs> and Oscar the Grouch. You know, yeah. at the well, time it was considered Yeah. Also, um he wasn't on the Muppet Show, but that's cool. Um yeah. uh, busted. <laughs> but that would be a funny but we have to wrap it up, but that would be a funny, it bit. A funny bit. It would be a funny bit to politically incorrect Muppet show. Yeah. But apparently there are like 20 episodes. Well, she was very aggressive with Miss Piggy sexually. Yeah. Well, calling a woman a pig is not not nice. It's so hard to say because she is technically a pig. So it's that is true. It's a it's a gray area. (laughs) Hey, will you come back next week? Um, I'll come back. If not, I know I'm doing Pepitone's podcast. Oh, if you do Pepitone, you can't do mine. (laughs) Oh yeah. You're like comedy clubs in the same town. Yeah. Um, I want you to know that, um, there was a lot of horror here in Texas. Um, but, uh, it's warmed up now. So hopefully we're going to be fine. When do you Um, think you'll get a, it was, it was genuinely very, like it was a huge it was a travesty because it was just greedy dicks in charge of energy, just like Flint not having water. Horrible. I'm sorry, we we you you we we uh, you, we didn't hear what you said. Like what? What? Like Flint not having water? Like these just horrible bad governing is so disappointing. You mean the, the people? You're saying that you're apologizing as a Texan. You're apologizing <laughs> for your. No, I, I'm saying I'm using your international platform to say, like, I feel really bad. That for what you did so to the power grid. <laughs> and that I probably should not have unplugged the power grid. That was and that wanting again, to take, live and learn and wanting to take a bath and having potable water. <laughs> is, yeah. At a time like this is as is expecting too much from your government. Oh, my gosh, that guy, <laughs> that guy, the mayor of Colorado City. I know you have to go, but this stuff is crazy. Um, I, I'll come back soon. And um, I have a little podcast called Tiny Victories. That's a, a maximum fun little 15 minute. And who do you um, host it with? Annabelle Gerwich, New York Times bestselling author, Annabelle right. Gerwich. It's just well, why don't the two of you? I've been trying to get the both of you to come back on. OK, I'm sure I'm sure we'll Here, come watch on. this. We've added something. You know how low rent the show is right i i want to show you one thing we have now coupons coupons here hang on for one second watch this this is worth watching if i can find it we'll be right back it's time right now for the david feldman show he's talking politics and comedy too he tell a dirty joke if you want him to He's just a lefty from way back. 
He's a union man with an Emmy for writing. Someday he's mad and he feels like fighting. It's time right now for the David Feldman Show To get your ears on right, buckle in real tight He's got a lot to say and he's coming your way As, uh, isn't that something? I, I have to unmute you. It almost looks like yes, a real production, amazing. doesn't it? Yeah, no, it was fantastic. Did who? What did a fan? Somebody's do that? A, somebody's learning After Effects. Oh man, yeah. that was real That's cool. cool. Isn't it? Thank you, Laura. We love right. you. You are missed. We also love Dr. Harriet Fraud. She's the host of Capitalism Hits Home, and it's not just in your head. And I have to unmute you. Uh, there we are. Uh, I have a question for you, Dr. Fried. I, I just want to show you the burning engine on the plane. You're, uh, I was thinking if I were sitting in that plane, and this is a Boeing, I, I would be so angry that I couldn't even have my life flash before my eyes. I'd be so busy thinking about the incompetence and the greed. Uh, what advice would you give to people who are flying a Boeing uh, not to be enraged? Well, uh, first of all, don't fly a Boeing. Right. But the second thing is you should be enraged. You should be enraged that your money is taken and your life can be taken too as long as they're making money. And that they, like the Texan... Uh, Ele Electric Reliability Council of Texas, ERCOT, decided to make more money and let people die. And those are that's capitalist greed, that all you see is profit and you don't care. You have no respect for the right to life, to use a hackneyed slogan. Well, let's talk about AOC, because, yes. uh, you know, she's a lightning rod. She's got a big mouth. And what is she doing going down to Texas and raising money? That, that was, shouldn't she stay out of them, their parts? No, she's an American and she's a socialist and she's a feeling person. And she How has, did she do? What did she do? She raised the, $5 million as of this morning. I'm sure it's more now. And then she went down because they needed help in their soup kitchens. She went down to help in the soup kitchens and she's there giving out food in opposition to Cancun Cruz <laughs> hasn't said a word now that he's back. And what it brings to mind is the difference of a principled socialist candidate and a Republican capitalist candidate, because candidates have two things 
that they have to bear in mind. One is a responsibility to their constituents, and another is a responsibility to their donors in pay-to-play America. Well, uh, someone like AOC, who gets her donations from ordinary people, millions of whom help, that's one thing. Cruz, who gets huge corporate donations from groups like ERCOT, the Electric Reliability Council of Texas, which sounds like a name from 1984. Mm -hmm. uh, They allowed this disaster that's killed 58 people and stranded millions of people in Texas. But she feels that her responsibility is to the people of the United States. He feels his responsibility is so much exclusively to his donors that he, he didn't even consider that leaving in the midst of terrible tragedy for the people he ostensibly represents might look bad. It didn't occur to him until it was brought to his attention because his idea as a good Republican is, I'll do whatever the hell I want and then I'll raise enough money from my donors to blanket the state with publicity and work on gerrymandering so I can be reelected. The, the semblance of responsibility to the constituents was completely absent from his mind. He doesn't and, believe in government, but he used the police for an escort to the airport to, to yeah. get to Cancun. Of course. And he believes in sewage and he believes in fire protection and he believes in highways and he believes in all sorts of tax write-off he gets and he believes in his high salary and his free medical care, all of which he gets from the government. However, what this shows is what has happened to people in the Republican Party and many in the Democratic Party too, in which the constituents disappear and the donors are all that is worried about. And so people can die. They can freeze and die. And that's, you know, that is what it says. This is a socialist who's out there caring about people and serving America. She was giving pizza to the Teamsters at Hunts Point. Yep, she's there as a citizen of the United States, representing the working people of this United States. The people who died in Texas, well, 58 people died so far, primarily lived in trailers where the walls aren't thick, there isn't much of a foundation, and they weren't protected from the cold. Some 11-year-old died in his bed. He froze to death. That there is... All those people whose oxygen machines only work on electricity who died or who are in much worse shape for not being able to breathe, they are irrelevant to someone like Ted Cruz or Donald Trump, whose disaster on COVID has cost us a half a million deaths more than any other country in the world because he thought it would make him look bad that he sold the protective equipment and was unprepared and didn't want to look bad. Meanwhile, half a million people are dead in the United States. So what we're talking about here is we're talking about the right to life, which lines up a whole lot 
more closely to socialism than it does to capitalism. And we're looking at Texas where they chose not to be on the grid because they'd have to be regulated. If you're going to be on either of the two geographic grids of electricity and energy in the United States, you need to have regulation. They didn't want to spend the money on regulation. They knew there was a report this year. They knew that they had to weatherize because extremes of temperature were happening, extremes of heat in the summer and of cold in the winter. But it costs money, so they decided not to spend the money and risk the lives and the comfort and the homes of millions of Texans. And, you know, there is this idea, shrink the government to the size of a thimble and then throw it in the ocean. But, of course, that's not true of the salaries for the Congress and the senators. And it's not true of all their perks. And it's not true of the oil depletion allowances that Texans get, wealthy Texans who own the wells, for depleting our national resources, which are under all of our ground and don't belong to them anyway. What is this? But it's the triumph of capitalism. And if you look at the at ERCOT, so ironically called the Electric Re- Reliability Council <laughs> of Texas, their CEO gets $883 million a year. Whoa, 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 $883 million a year. The median income for Texans is 30000 and a little over, a little over $30,000 a year. And he is being rewarded for this performance. Are, are you sure it's eight, $883,000? $883, oh, 883000 Eight, no, 883,000. I'm sorry. Close to a million. Okay. I, I thought you said a million, 883 million. 883,000. Close to a million dollars a year right. for doing the wonderful job that he did. Right. It's like what George Bush said to uh, the person who was supposed to be regulating flooding. You've done a great job, Brownie. Meanwhile, right. New Orleans was submerged. Okay. The, you know, this has nothing to do with serving the people. And so that it was an expose of capitalist priorities, usurping people's right to basic comfort, because temperature regulation is something humans need in order to survive. There are basic needs. One of them is temperature regulation. They can't be in some freezing or, you know, 100 and over, Hundred, I think, ten degrees heat, and Texas, which denies climate change, along with the Republicans, the Texan Republicans, people like Cruz, are consigning their people to suffer right. by their non-recognition and also by their malfeasance in wanting to keep up profits. Because this Electric Reliability Council of Texas that controls this has been paid off by the energy companies. Two-thirds of Texas's energy of Texas energy comes from energy companies that are right on hand in Texas and have the, the money to bribe the Electric Reliability Council of Texas, ERCOT, who makes the rules here. And what's really cute is there is one area of Texas that didn't have this because they are on the grid. 
the national okay. grid that's regulated. The national grid. And they agreed to regulation in order to have help. And they did get help in this storm from New Mexico and Arizona, who are also on that part of the electric grid. And that was El Paso, Texas. And they did not suffer. They had a four-minute lapse of their electricity, and then it resumed. They got the help you need because that's part of the grid. You are reliable. You have to help others if you have extra, and you are helped by others. But you do have to follow the rules. There is inspection. There is some kind of restriction on unadulterated profit. And so El Paso shows what you could do if you had some sense of responsibility for your people. You get on the grid, you pay for the kind of regulation that's necessary and the protection that's necessary, and you save millions of people from starving and freezing and being without water, having to go out and get snow and then have nothing to boil it with if they have an electric stove, or sometimes if they have a gas one as well, the disaster and the illness that this means, because it's irrelevant. If it's people are just a cipher in a profit ledger and all of our basic needs like water, like temperature protection are commodified, then you only think of them within the terms of protecting the price of your commodity. And I should say, because I was quite impressed by it, that there were people in this horribly stricken area that had tried to turn on their lights and they couldn't, and they went elsewhere and left the electricity on. Well, they came home to $17,000 bills because the more scarce the electricity, the higher the rates. So if the lights were left on, some of their rates went up 10,000 times. Another capitalist tour de force. This is bizarre, and it's a bizarre excrescence, a sort of outgrowth of capitalism. And it shows that basic commodities that we need to live on, like air and clean water and healthy foods, housing, temperature regulation and shelter, cannot be commodified. You know, that that, that is inhumane that that is against the right to life. And and so that I think this is really an important thing that's happened here in Texas, because if ever there were a contrast between AOC, who is a champion of socialism and hated by the Republicans for it, and Cancun Cruz, Mm -hmm. There it is. And the depravity of them that he tried to say that he was just being a good daddy because his kids needed to go to Mexico to be warm. Well, he had just gotten on the, the uh, public media saying shelter in place to be safe and also that don't go to Mexico. It's full of COVID. OK, but then he was exposed. His neighbors who his wife invited to come to Cancun because it was horrible out. Love them so much that they leaked that to the media. And the airline tickets, he said, you know, Tucker Carlson said he had a round trip. He just was protecting his family. He was going to be right back to the state. Well, you're not supposed to 
put your family first when people are dying or understate, but that was a lie and the airlines showed that he had a ticket for a very long weekend. So, you know, it's a depraved set of values that doesn't include protecting the people you ostensibly represent. And that I think there's no better illustration of it than this debacle in Texas. Really, uh, it totally captured my imagination. And I think the tide is turning because in Texas, the mayor of Colorado City, Texas, when he said, don't you ask the, the government for a handout, pull yourself up by your own bootstraps and protect your family. Of course, It's, he, it's sink yeah. or swim. That's right, because don't ask the government to pay, to help you, just pay taxes and let me get a tax write-off. And there's the president, their adored one, who now is finally having to release his tax returns, which showed he paid $750 a year for several years and didn't pay other years and paid more than the average street cleaner. You know, what? That this is, and this is success, ripping people off that you're supposed to represent. And it is so entwined with a capitalist system where making money is the virtue no matter how you got it. And in this case, at the expense of millions of people in Texas. So we'll see what happens, but I think that it may be a shift in political allegiance. And I think people like AOC illustrate that perfectly. They denounce her and she's there. She raised $5 million. Cruz is just very quiet, raising nothing but trying to raise his image and keep it going, raise money so that he can gerrymander the state further and get enough votes to keep the graft coming in. Um, it's very dramatic. So I like to pass judgment on people. Me too. <laughs> I, I think that we don't have enough judgmental people on our side. Yes. So when my kids were young... I uh, was offered a job in New York and I was commuting. And uh, at some point I had to decide whether or not to move my family to New York. This was, I don't know, 15 years ago. And because I, because I didn't, it wasn't healthy for daddy to be commuting. And then the question is, do we want to uproot the kids and move them into New York? And the answer was no that they were in a school, they had friends, and we decided daddy's ego had to take a back seat for the well-being of the children. Mm -hmm. Not that I was a great father, and not to be self-righteous, but I know a lot of fathers and mothers who said, you know what, I'm going to wait. Uh, you know, I, I really want this job, but I don't want to miss my, my kids growing up. Uh, and uh, I'm making I'm do, I'm making enough. Ted Cruz has a what a ten year old and a thirteen year old. I said earlier, and people get pissed off at me for saying this. I think child protective services should take those kids away. He's never home. He's no. busy flying from Texas 
to Washington, D.C. He's an absentee father. And then when he is with them, he instills nothing short of satanic values. Your neighbor is freezing to death. Let's roll up our sleeves and catch the next flight out of here. How is that not a form of child abuse to, to teach your kids that you don't take care of your neighbor, that you abandon? How is that not the height of immorality? Well, his morality is getting rich makes you good. Being poor makes you bad and deserving of whatever happens to you if you're poor. So I'm getting us rich. Also, perhaps the kids think, great, let him go to Washington. I hate the guy. He's resoundingly disliked. But it, it is neglectful. And it's built in. The way fatherhood is made in this country and the responsibility of men to support their families is so pressured. It can, you know, it's, it's not very compatible with family life. Now, the flip side, and I'm going to get my mother's going to kill me and my best friend is going to kill me for saying this. We all love the Obamas. Uh, He had uh, two small girls when he ran for president. And I remember thinking when they came out at Grant Park in 2008 when he won, I remember thinking, well, they're going to be they are Princess Elizabeth and Prince Margaret. Exactly. This is this is American royalty. He's creating the, the, these kids are special. Mm-hmm. Over the years, I've come to realize who would do that to your daughters. Who would do the, who would run for president when they're that age, and and then be by necessity, an absentee father when your, your kids are that young. Because you can either be a good president or a good father, but you can't be both. Well, it's I impossible. don't know what he was trying to do. It calls his values into question. Why would you run for president with two small girls. It calls your values into question. And it's, you know, it's been borne out with him. They, they, you can tell that they've gravitated to the, the wealthiest 1%. They have the home on Martha's Vineyard. They have their Netflix deals. And, you know, I don't see Obama down in Bessemer marching trying to unionize well, that was AOC. that's AOC right. and union people I don't see Michelle and Obama right. I don't see them marching with the McDonald's workers no, and I see the daughter I see the daughter fresh out of Harvard taking a job as a television writer and that speaks volumes to to something a disconnect in values don't attack I'm not attacking the daughters I'm attacking the parents Well, those are their values. Their values, he and Michelle Obama, as the Clintons' values were, that the best thing that you can do is be accepted by the corporate elite in the United States and Goldman Sachs. And that is your future, and that is why you're royalty. You go for it, and you kids will be treated better because you're the Obama children, and we will too. 
And he looked good because he was more, he was less crude. Although he's the one who smashed all the occupies on the same day. Right. And increased the zone, the drone flying. But, you know, because. Excuse me for one second. I, I'm getting angry because I, I get complaints from my loved ones when I trash Obama. He was the one who told the African-American community as president to pull up your pants. He told African-American parents, stop feeding your kids Popeye's chicken, personal responsibility uh, while trying to make a grand bargain with McConnell on Social Security and the safety net. Uh, So if he's busy lecturing parents on how to raise their kids, I disapprove, Barack, of how you raised your family. I disapprove of you being president with two small girls, and I disapprove of you living on Martha's Vineyard, and I disapprove that your oldest daughter graduated from Harvard and has taken that education to go do something stupid like be a television writer. There's something missing with your values. He has different values from yours. I mean, his values are making it in corporate America is wonderful. And being accepted in corporate America is wonderful. And he might say to himself, as some women do, you know, like Sheryl Sandberg and others, because I am black or beige or whatever, and I am uh, in a position of prominence, I am a symbol of the wonders of a moderate black person. And one of the reasons our country went into the toilet was he didn't fight for the underdog. He was always showing he was not the angry black person by letting himself get stepped on, by letting him his suggested people as judges be refused. He didn't want to be angry. You need to be angry at injustice. Yes. But he was keeping up an image and his values are that his children now are royalty. And so is he. And there were a lot of black people who didn't really look at the fact that they were much worse off after his tenure than they were before because there was a brownish face at the top. That's identity politics. It's not class politics. The African-American community was worse off when he left office. Economically. Economically, because he didn't, because they wiped out all that income from owning homes. That's right, because he didn't bail out the homeowners. He bailed out the banks with no strings attached so that they could pay lobbyists and then be able to do it again and have the same kind of risky securities and the same kind of behavior. And he didn't rescue the subprime mortgage holders, which would have rescued a lot of his people who were sold subprime mortgages and grabbed them because otherwise, because of racism, they probably wouldn't have gotten mortgages and because of lower incomes. So he didn't serve his people at all, except as an emblem. And that's what he wanted to be, a wealthy emblem. Right. Joining... It's not my values either. Uh, John, you have a question. I, uh, Henry Huckamaki joins us. John, your your hand is raised. There's Professor Adnan Hussein. I'm going to get a, a handle on today's show because we have 
Dr. Gerald Horn, who's about to join us. And I want to make sure we, we it doesn't turn into a... John, you had your hand yeah, raised? It was for the previous uh, section you did with the uh, Laura House. You misspelled my first name. <laughs> you know, no, you misspelled, you, you misspelled uh, it. It's without an H. I'm sorry. I'll redo it. <laughs> sorry. I've done that before. It was. They were great pictures, though. Oh, I've got more. I'll send okay, you more. Send me more. And uh, sorry about the name. Uh, let me let me wrap up here with Dr. Harriet Fraud. Uh, before you go, anger. I I I woke up today and I said either I'm going to be depressed or I'm going to be angry, and I choose anger. And I've noticed a lot of people on the show today are ang are angry. Anger is better than being sad and depressed, right? Yeah, anger. What depression is? Anger turned in on the self when it actually, in this case, certainly deserves to be directed towards those people who are ripping off our people. Right. And that is righteous anger that we shouldn't take out on ourselves. Right. It's healthier to lash out at the injustice. richest, at injustice or the 1%. It is healthier right. not to internalize that you, there's something wrong with you. You know, if you're so smart, why aren't you rich? That was a saying that to blame yourself, because that's the program of capitalism. Make people feel that they're inferior. That's why they don't have a decent income. Right. That everyone chooses and they choose badly. And that's why they don't have money. Rather than that it's all designed to siphon money out of them and give it to the top. And it's gotten much worse in the last Five, four or five years since Trump came in, but it was already en route ever since the 60s and the 70s. Great. The 70s. Thank you, Dr. Harriet Fraud. Your two Thank podcasts you. are Capitalism Hits Home and It's Not Just in Your Head. And if people want to get help from you, uh, I can't. They can send me an email. I'm moving um, my house in March, so I have less time than usual, but they can send me an email at hfraad at gmail.com. You are beloved here, uh, and thank well, you. Well, I love being here. You have wonderful, wonderful energy and hope and reach. It's well, very exciting. Well, thank you. Thank uh, you. We have Dr. Gerald Horn, who's joining us, and I think you know who he is. Uh, I'm a little nervous. I've never seen anybody write as many books. Uh, it's, I'm overwhelmed. I don't. I don't even know where to begin. Let me uh, thank you, Doctor Fraud, and because I'm moving, I have to miss Gerald Horn. I'm sorry. Bye, Gerald Horn. You have Bye, to unmute everybody. yourself. Thank you, Doctor Fraud. Let Bye. us uh, uh, before I bring in uh, Doctor Horn, Professor Adnan Hussein is back. And Henry Huckamaki is back. And joining us is Dr. Gerald Horn. He is the author of The Bittersweet Science, Racism, Racketeering, and the Political Economy of Boxing. It's published by International Publishers, and it came out last year. And we just, oh, there you are. Thank you for coming back, Professor. Oh, thank you for inviting me. You're uh, an Henry and Professor Hussein are going to help out in the questioning very quickly. Uh, you're so prolific and 
uh, I'm a little overwhelmed by, by all your books, and I don't I don't know where to start. And uh, I guess we should start with boxing, and I'll allow Professor Hussein and Henry to ask the much smarter questions. But I'm a fan of boxing. Uh, Jack Johnson and the idea of the African-American as a savage. Is boxing considered uh, an act of intelligence? And if it is an act of intelligence, if it's a science, how were how was the, were the white people uh, living under Jim Crow able to reconcile the fact that Jack Johnson was smarter than they were? Were they able? They they knew that boxing involved intelligence. How were they able to reconcile that Jack Johnson was smarter than they were? Well, I don't think you should assume that there is a certain amount of rationality involved in a white supremacy. It's, it's basically a kind of confidence game. Uh, it's basically a lie. It's basically rife with contradictions. With regard to the specific point that you raise, uh, when Jack Johnson, who was born in Galveston, Texas in 1878, became heavyweight boxing champion in 1908, defending the championship in 1910. This was in the midst of a, an analysis, so-called, of masculinity or black masculinity that suggested that uh, black men in particular were not real men because real men do not, quote, allow themselves to be enslaved or do not uh, allow themselves, quote, unquote, to be subjected to Jim Crow, they were fundamentally yellow-bellied cowards, to use the phrase of the day. Obviously, this was an elaborate, spurious rationalization for oppression, but it would have been difficult to convince the bulk of Euro-Americans about that. In any case, once Jack Johnson won in the ring against his Euro-American competitors, the coin was turned over and it was suggested that actually these black men were bestial and brutes, uh, that they were not real men, but they were not real men going in the other direction. So this is the kind of shell game that you used to see performed in Times Square in New York before the pandemic. Right. Uh, now, Galveston, whereby, he didn't grow up. I, I believe that Galveston was a multiracial, well-integrated city growing up, right? So he got different ideas in his head about his place in society? Well, I'm not so sure about that. I mean, Galveston is also a Jim Crow town. I mean, as late as 1860, you had uh, enslaved Africans uh, imported into Galveston from Congo, for example. This is, what, six, 18 years before he's born. So I think it is fair to say that uh, Galveston had a vibrant black American culture. You may be familiar with uh, Barry White, the velvet tone crooner whose roots were in Galveston. I lost uh, my virginity. I lost my virginity to Barry White. Not to his oh, music, to Barry White. No, I'm sorry, I was just making a joke. Yeah. <laughs> I, I get the point. Or little Esther Phillips, uh, uh -huh. whose anthem... Home is where the hatred is, could be a national anthem for black America. They're all from, from Galveston as well. 
Right, right. Boxing, it, to me, is like stand-up comedy. That, that it is. I always said that st- I'm a stand-up comic. Uh, I insist I am. The people who watch me perform don't know what it is. But I always insisted that stand-up comedy was a sweet science, that you, you, you do the training, you build the muscle, and that, you, you know, it's garbage in, garbage out, and there's a lot of dancing, and you don't let the audience know how smart you are. That a good stand-up doesn't tell the audience he's smart. They they figure it out at uh, you know when when necessary. It, boxing can you you know Leon Spinks just passed away, and he was considered in the seventies a punchline. He had beaten Muhammad Ali, and he became a punchline. And and a fool. Can a fool beat Muhammad Ali in the ring? <laughs> well, obviously, the term fool was misplaced at best. He was a Do you remember, though, his being a punchline? Of course. Of course. Of course. But, you know, I mean, you, you can't take seriously uh, what comes out of uh, certain strands of U.S. culture, when it, particularly when it comes to evaluating uh, black people, since the country is so suffused from top to bottom with a violent racism, which of course is one of the poisons that right now is sinking the country uh, with every passing day. Right, right. But boxing does require. Is that your takeaway when they call it the science of boxing? That it is a pursuit, an intellectual pursuit. Well, what, what I take from that is that it's a, a multiple pursuit. Uh, it involves physicality, obviously, in the first instance, but it obviously involves a certain amount of intelligence as well. Uh, you may recall that it was the writer for The New Yorker, H.A. A. Liebling, who titled Boxing the Sweet Science, because if you watch certain boxers, if you watch even a, a contemporary boxer like Floyd Mayweather Jr., who is one of the most well-paid athletes uh, in the United States right now, if not the world, uh, he can tie up an opponent, which is not easy. I mean, he can deflect most of the punches or evade most of the punches thrown by his opponent. It was oftentimes said of Jack Johnson that he turned his opponent into Jack Johnson's assistant. That is to say, the opponent was helping Jack Johnson kick the opponent's butt. Mm -hmm. Now, that's not intuitive how you perform that particular task. It takes a certain amount of skill, a certain amount of practice. Uh, But I think that one of the points that my book tries to make is that uh, boxing, even though understandably we talk about the well-known names, uh, for every well-known name, there are scores, if not more, lesser-known names who have suffered brain damage, uh, who have died prematurely, uh, who were sucked into the maw of organized crime and were exploited shamelessly and cruelly. In some ways, boxing is a metaphor 
for capitalism as it exists in the United States, insofar as it involves violence, white supremacy, male supremacy, cruel and shameless exploitation, and gross profiteering for a handful. Do any of the heavyweight champions uh, end up with any money? Oh, sure. Oh, sure. I mean... um, Did Ali end up... Well, I think where does the money go? Where, where, where does it all go? It just, I, you said sure, so I guess some of them end up with the money. But I, I always assumed that the money is taken by promoters and then they owe money to the government. That's not true. That is true in many instances. It would be unfair to suggest it's true in all instances. Right. Certainly, that was true for Joe Lewis, but then and part of that was political because Joe Lewis, who was the heavyweight boxing champ from the late 1930s to the late 1940s, was closely tied to the organized left in the United States of America. And in a country as conservative as this one, that's bound and destined to deliver hard times, particularly if the political climate began to change with the onset of the Red Scare, and his aggressive moves to try to move from the ring to the executive suites in terms of a kind of takeover of boxing, which was then opposed by certain organized crime figures, which led to one of his partners being prosecuted criminally, uh, leading to a precipitous loss of wealth for Joe Lewis and his partner, And, of course, then he was tied up with all these tax cases with the Internal Revenue Service of the United States of America. But when you say he was tied to the left, in what way? How was he? Well, if you look at I have a book coming out, uh, paperback in a few weeks. It was published in 1994. It's about Ben Davis, a black communist elected to New York City Council in 1943, reelected in 1945, ousted unceremoniously in 1949, put on trial and jail by 1951. There's a picture of Ben Davis and Joe Lewis in the book because Joe Lewis was one of his major supporters. Joe Lewis was a supporter of Henry A. Wallace, who ran the last serious third-party campaign in 1948. Uh, Many of these, uh, Colin Colin Kaepernick, who justifiably and understandably is getting quite a bit of publicity, the uh, University of Nevada Reno-trained quarterback who played with the San Francisco 49ers and then protested oppression against black people and then in many ways was ousted and has not been allowed to uh, basically perform in that sport. Uh, He does not come out of the blue. There's a long tradition in history of black athletes, not just boxers, but as Kaepernick's case suggests as well, uh, quarterbacks uh, who, if you saw the film One Night in Miami, which of course focuses on Ali, but it also focuses on Jim Brown who's still in the land of the living, was a well-known footballer, as they say, and was also um, not as far to the left, shall we say, as Jack Johnson, but certainly had certain political instincts uh, that, uh, to an extent, he executed. Right, right. Uh, Before I open this up to Professor Hussein and Henry Huckamaki, getting hit in the face... Some people can get hit in the face, and it's not a big deal. It's it's bracing. To others, it's the worst thing that has ever happened to them. 
Uh, I've been punched as a kid uh, growing up. Is there any value to getting punched in the face? Does it, does it, I'm being serious, but we, we have, uh, an entire generation, including my kids. I, I told my sons to always walk away from a fight. Don't ever get into a fight. Uh, I wasn't raised that way. My father once told me, you know, you know, go, go get them. And, uh, you know, I came home with a black eye and uh, my father wanted to know what the other kid looked like. And uh, uh, and we've been taught that that is abusive and wrong and we have to raise our kids. And I have raised my kids differently. But I meet a lot of people who have never been punched in the face. And I sometimes think, boy, if they... Just one sock, one sock could have changed this person, straighten out their thinking. Is there any legitimacy to that thinking? I will say this, that um, I, I list a number of reforms with regard to boxing, and one of which is headgear, which I think would mitigate a lot of the brain damage that routinely is but is, is there endured. something intoxicating about getting hit in the do, do some men wake up is there something to being hit in the face that uh excites somebody i can imagine that that some it does but uh, well, well a bo i would think a boxer who gets hit in the face doesn't necessarily think it's the worst thing that's ever happened since it's 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 part of the job right no i think boxers try to avoid getting hit in the face they try but it's to not a tra it's not trauma face. right for them well for some it could be i mean you know we're, we're, we're we've entered the bog of speculation right now i mean obviously for some it could be for others it could not be i mean i guess it depends on your physiognomy the structure of your skull, right. et cetera. But in any case, the purpose of a boxer is to hit someone else in the face, not necessarily <laughs> to have himself hit in the face. Matter of fact, their whole game plan is to avoid getting hit in the face. Or as Mike Tyson, the retired or once retired champion once said, everybody has a game plan until they get hit in the face. Right. And of course, uh, he had good reason to make that analysis since he hit so many people in the face and saw them lose their wits as right. they were being pummeled. Right. Dr. Gerald Horn is author of The Bittersweet Science, Racism, Racketeering and the Political Economy of Boxing. It's published by international publishers. Doc Dr. Uh, Horn, uh, I'm so glad to have you here. Professor Hussein, it's good to see you again. Well, it's good to see you, and it's good to see Dr. Horn again. Um, we recorded a guerrilla history uh, episode with him about the counter-revolution of 1776, and that should be coming out this Friday. So people can oh, uh, look forward to listening to him talk about uh, that topic um, as send well as link, this one please. today. Sorry? That send me a link, please. Absolutely. We will do that. Um, I wanted to ask you about boxing um, as well. Um, like many uh, a youth in the 70s and 60s and 70s, um, 
I idolized Muhammad Ali. Um, he was the greatest for me. And Leon Spinks's defeat of him was crushing for, you know, <laughs> eight year old boy. Um, but um, I wondered, you know, I didn't know at that age about the radical history and or this tradition that you are excavating here about race and boxing all the way back to the 19th century with Jack Johnson and so forth. Um, but I came to know a little bit more about his politics and, of course, his Muslim identity and affiliation with the Nation of Islam and so on. And I wondered if you um, see him as just another episode in a long continuous history that might have some, you know, particularities related to the times and the personalities of, of those involved, or if you feel that there was something uniquely challenging about the way he combined his politics, particularly the anti-imperialist orientation that seemed to be so dangerous, you know, it wasn't just about race and, and so on, but also he fused that with a critique of U.S. war in Vietnam, for example, and refusing to be inducted. So I wondered if you might, you know, tell us a little bit more about how you situate Muhammad Ali in this, in this framework. Well, I see both sides of the equation as you sketched it. Um, to a certain extent, he was part of a continuum. As a matter of fact, if you look at Jack Johnson, the champion I mentioned a moment or so ago, who was very much invested in the Mexican Revolution, 1910 to 1920, mm. uh, who traveled extensively throughout Europe, not least because he was on the land. He was escaping fraudulent persecutions from the U.S. government, uh, who after regime change in Mexico City, uh, had to come back to the United States and face the music and be in prison. Uh, by that time, his boxing career was over, but he still traveled in Europe and in fact started a socialist newspaper in Barcelona, Spain, which he said was his favorite city. And then you have uh, a continuation with Joe Lewis, whose ties to the left I just articulated, but then you have the Red Scare and the destabilization of socialist-oriented movements, particularly the U.S. Communist Party, but socialists in general. And that creates a kind of ideological vacuum that is filled by various forms of nationalism, which is not just a U.S. phenomenon. You could see that phenomenon all over the world, not least in Afghanistan, for example where you had a destabilization of the left uh, sponsored by U.S. imperialism in the late 1970s, <clears throat> mm -hmm. late 1970s, and then a distinct collaboration between religious zealots and U.S. imperialism against the left, which then <laughs> led to the rise of these forces who were about, I'm afraid to say, to seize power once again, probably before the year is out. And in the United States context, that led to a resurgence of the Nation of Islam, which had come into existence in the 1930s. Like many black nationalists in the 1930s, and like many nationalists generally worldwide in the 1930s, uh, they were militantly pro-Tokyo, pro-Japan. I talk okay. about this in my book, Facing the Rising Sun. Right. That's where their concept of the Asiatic black man comes from, which many rappers invoke today, although I'm not sure of their 
aware of the origins or the etymology of that particular term. And so when Muhammad Ali, or the man then known as Cassius Clay, was rising into prominence and trying to avoid being shamelessly exploited, which was the lot of so many boxers, uh, he found that the Nation of Islam was the kind of backup that he needed, mm-hmm. particularly their paramilitary force, the Fruit of Islam. And that led to a kind of marriage uh, between the two, which is represented in the film I just referenced, uh, One Night in Miami. So to a certain extent, uh, Muhammad Ali represents a continuum in terms of this anti-imperialism. I just referenced Jack Johnson, for example. Mm -hmm. But with regard to the war in Vietnam and his militant stance against the war in Vietnam, with regard to his uh, Islamic identity, uh, with regard to his unique ability to generate box office by turning himself into a kind of villain in which whereby people would pay to see him defeated and then oftentimes leaving disappointed. Uh, There was a certain uniqueness to that. But even with that, he admits freely that he drew upon uh, the previous example of the wrestler Gorgeous George, mm-hmm. who uh, wrestling fans, and this is a literate audience, so I take it there are no wrestling fans in your audience, but uh, Gorgeous George was this wrestler. You know, he used to have his blonde hair uh, permed. He would destabilize these masculinist tropes, not only with his hair, but perfuming the ring before he would enter, for example, which then would outrage the uh, hyper-masculine customers who were fans of wrestling, who would then pay to see him defeated, uh, restoring what was right about masculinity in their minds. And oftentimes they too went home disappointed. And Muhammad Ali said that he consciously drew upon that. And as I say in the book also, uh, there is this contestation between uh, Islam and Christendom, Mm -hmm. uh, which you could say goes back 1,300 years, uh, goes back to how the Muslim forces uh, control Spain uh, for hundreds of years. When were Africans introduced to boxing? Were they introduced to boxing through the slave trade? I talk about, well, that's, that, let me finish this point, okay, then yeah. I'll get to your point. Um, and so Muhammad Ali was playing upon that historic conflict between uh, Christianity and Islam. For example, George Foreman, uh, one of his major opponents who he defeated in in Congo, then Zaire. Rumble in the jungle, yeah. Exactly. He touted himself as a Christian minister, and there was this undercurrent of uh, Christianity versus Islam (laughs) with regard uh, to that. Now, with regard to Africans and boxing, as I say in the book, uh, boxing is one of the oldest sports known to humankind, uh, perhaps second only to track or running or sprinting. But it's also fair to say that with the inauguration of the African slave trade, uh, that Africans felt a need to develop various kinds of combat involving their fists 
and feet. Now, to a certain extent, you see that with regard to capoeira, which you may know, you can go online and, and see, see it, uh, which uh, is very popular in Brazil, presume roots in Angola, just across the Atlantic. And uh, it's a kind of uh, choreography come combat, for example. I also talk about in the book about Madagascar, which was a node of the African slave trade, uh, which also developed various kinds of martial arts and combats uh, congruent with the rise of the African slave trade. Uh, having said that, there have been a number of prominent boxers from Africa, Azuma Nelson, you might recall, uh, who was a featherweight from Ghana, or John Mugabe, uh, M-U-G-A-B-I, from Uganda, for example, Dick Tiger from Nigeria. Um, and in fact, uh, I talk in the book about at one point, uh, U.S. Uh, capitalist entrepreneurs seeing how black Americans were doing so well in the ring said, well, you know, black Americans have African roots. There must be similar people with talent in Africa itself. And so they began this sort of chase to produce more boxers coming from the African continent. Although for various reasons of that particular expedition proved largely to be fruitless because you know, there's, there's a contradiction uh, that's in the U.S. discourse. I mean, for example, whenever you, you see Black Americans excel in certain realms, the uh, narrow-minded and the barely literate oftentimes ascribe it to nature. It's in their thighs. It's in their uh, physiognomy, so to speak. But with all these black American sprinters, or even Caribbean sprinters, for that matter, from Jamaica and Trinidad and Tobago, they're not that many from West Africa, for example, which should, should lead to an inference that maybe it's the environment that's helping to produce these kinds of athletes. For example, when I was referencing masculinity a moment ago, there was this decades-long struggle, if not centuries-long struggle, amongst black Americans to disprove this idea that they were not real men, for example, which I think leads to a, a kind of overcompensation in the area where masculinity can be displayed, uh, which is one of the reasons, for example, uh, in professional sports, you, you, particularly US football, you see so many black Americans, but also with regard to these sports, oftentimes the criteria for evaluation or objective criteria what I mean is you can either run 40 yards in 4.3 seconds or you can't. You can either jump up uh, six feet, five inches, or you can't. Whereas with regard to other uh, walks of life, the criteria are oftentimes very subjective. I mean, for example, what are the criteria for being a coach in these sports? Well, I guess leadership skills, but what are the metrics for leadership skills? I mean, what are the objective criteria? And once you move away from objective criteria, you open the door for the pestilence of racism. And I think that's one of the reasons why minorities in particular in the United States where white supremacy runs amok are oftentimes attracted to walks of life where the criteria for evaluation are objective. Mm -hmm. You know, you can either 
run fast or you can't run fast, for example. This the is why my parents, sorry, this is why my parents told me I should go into science and not history. They said it's, exactly. a, it's objective. You know, history, it's subjective. They won't like your ideas. They won't like your approach. Um, but you can't be denied. You can either solve the mathematical problem or you can't. And that's your, you know, that's what you rest on. So, yes. But it's interesting that that idea about um, the match being uh, the boxing match and what takes place in the ring being symbolic of some wider conflict that the parties represent reminds me very much of the idea of the medieval ordeal. And so something like the Song of Roland, which was a French epic that's a crusader sort of epic set in Spain, Charlemagne fights the Saracen foe and his um, main uh, vassal Roland is the great Christian hero. And he, um, you know, has a kind of battle that is an ordeal you know, that proves that Christianity is correct, is right, because he's, Christians are right and pagans are wrong because he, you know, has a heroic, uh, is undefeated, right, in, in, in this. And so that seems similar also to the way in which Joe Lewis was held up as uh, a represent. So it could change a little bit, uh, interestingly, the dynamic there, fighting Max Schmeling, right? It mm -hmm. became an ideological battle between these two systems. So, so strangely, this white supremacist environment um, uh, where race was so significant or important in boxing, they could review. He, he forced white racist Americans to root for an African-American. Yeah, that's, a, that's kind of an interesting uh, case. I wondered if, if you had a, a take on this um, uh, reversal, you might say, of the normal racial dynamics of, of uh, white supremacy in the case of U.S. combat, you know, uh, democracy and U.S. fighting against, you know. Do we know? Nazis. I mean, I was reading about Lindbergh, who was a racist and loved Hitler a lot more than we're allowed to know who, how many Americans were rooting for Joe Lewis and not Schmeling? I'm curious. Do, do we know? Well, I don't think we do know, but it is a, a, an amazing reversal because in one of my books, I talked about um, a black American bullfighter in South America where the Euro Americans were rooting for the bull as opposed to the matador, for example. Now, of course, my liberal friends would say, oh, that's because they were pro-animal rights. <laughs> but I'm, I'm not so sure. Now, with, with, that's with a lot regards, of bull. <laughs> exactly. Uh, with regard to Joe Lewis, uh, as you correctly suggest, it was not only his battle against uh, Max Schmeling and this battle against uh, this representative from fascist Germany, and of course, you had to then take seriously the idea that there was growing opposition uh, to fascism in the United States. The fact that Joe Lewis could receive such support in the United States, even though he was a U.S. national, because it was not it wasn't uh, preordained or foreordained that he would receive so much support. And the same holds true with regard to his uh, bouts against the Italian fighter, Primo Guarnera, uh, who he was battling at the same time that Italy was invading Ethiopia in the mid-1930s. 
And that, of course, led to conflict in the streets of New Orleans and New York uh, between Black Americans and uh, Italian Americans, uh, for example, who many of whom tend to root for Canera. There was a so, huge influx of Italians who came through New Orleans to America. Oh, absolutely. There, yeah. there, as a matter of fact, um, you know, there were lynchings of Sicilians in New Orleans in the 1890s. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's very illustrative because it almost brought an Italian attack on the United States. And the United States uh, scurried to try to have some sort of resolution of what was turning into a, a major diplomatic debacle. But what that illustrated is that uh, one Wasn't of the Columbus Day, Greek- excuse me for one second, Columbus Day, I think you said this, I think I read this in one of your books, or you said this on the show, Columbus Day was invented to make Italians uh, white. Well, I wouldn't put it that simply, but certainly it was part of that process by which these European groups who had faced discrimination to a greater or lesser degree are ushered in and inducted into the hollow halls of whiteness. But what I was saying is that what the Sicilian incident in New Orleans illustrated is that one of the many reasons why Native Americans, the First Nations, as you might put it in Canada, and uh, Black Americans have been treated so atrociously is that unlike the Sicilians, they did not have some nation that was willing to go toe-to-toe with Uncle Sam uh, once they were treated rudely and roughly. And that's one of the reasons why they were, or I should say we were, taken advantage of. And of course, that then fed in simultaneously to the idea of developing a Pan-Africanist movement, uh, which would then lead to a strength in Africa uh, that could then intervene on behalf of uh, Black people in North America. Henry uh, has been sitting patiently. I'm a patient guy, David. What can I say? Uh, Professor Harness, nice to talk to you again and again. Uh, as Adnan mentioned earlier, listeners, we're going to be releasing our episode of Guerrilla History with Professor Horn this Friday, talking about the counter-revolution of 1776. So keep your eyes peeled for that and make sure to subscribe to Guerrilla History on your podcast player. But I'm going to take a very tenuous link from something that you mentioned previously into a point that I would like to get you on the record on because I would be remiss to not get you on the record for it. So you mentioned the Nation of Islam earlier in regards to Muhammad Ali, and I'm going to use that as my very tenuous through line to bring up the fact that yesterday was the 56th anniversary of Malcolm X's assassination. And listeners, we released an episode yesterday on Malcolm X's assassination of guerrilla history. So be sure to listen to that if you haven't already. But uh, yeah, yesterday was the 56th anniversary of Malcolm X's assassination. I would be remiss to not have you uh, more or less commemorate that anniversary uh, on the air right now. And the, the deathbed confession, of course. Yes, which we, covered, which we covered in the episode of Guerrilla History. Oh, okay, great. You mean the New York City police officer? Yeah, says, yeah. yeah Raymond he, Wood, right. Right. Yeah, that was a very interesting episode. I haven't read his exact letter. I've read articles about the press conference on uh, yesterday, this past Sunday. Um, It's obviously a a, a tragic episode, this killing of Malcolm X in February 1965, 
as he was in the process of evolution, as he was just back from a tour of Africa uh, where he was meeting with heads of state, particularly in Ghana. I talk about this in my biography of Shirley Graham Du Bois, the spouse of W.E.B. Du Bois, and trying to develop this international block against uh, white supremacy. And obviously in that same context, uh, taking a more nuanced view towards the wing of the movement represented by Martin Luther King Jr. It's, it's, it's obviously a tragedy, it, it, and, and I should mention in this context, since we're talking about the 1960s, and we, I mentioned the movie uh, One Night in Miami, uh, I, I would uh, recommend the movie Judas and the Black Messiah, uh, which is out now, which represents the, assassin, the life and assassination of Black Panther Party leader Fred Hampton of Chicago, uh, slain in his bed by the authorities, 99 bullets shot towards him, one shot from where he was resting in bed, apparently drugged by the authorities before he was killed. Apparently an autopsy showed that he had enough drugs in his body that he might've died in any case if he had not been shot. But the, the film, which was done with the cooperation of the Hampton family, in some ways is an ideological breakthrough. What I mean by that is that the historians, bless their hearts, I don't think they've done a very good job of teasing out the ideological distinctions between and amongst these different groups and factions and tendencies. Uh, for example, uh, they throw a blanket over them all and call them all black power. When actually during that particular time, there were sharp conflicts uh, between and amongst uh, Fred Hampton and the Black Panther Party and, and the so-called cultural nationalists, for example, uh, who have managed to survive. And he was a film, socialist, correct? Fred Hampton. Oh, absolutely. He's yeah. one of the first, one of the few U.S. films that raises the S word and even raises the C word, uh, communist, without a sneer. It, 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 it's, it's quite something. Uh, it, it, it's, it's, and of course, you know, many people have complained because the film focuses on the Judas in part, the informer uh, who works with the FBI to make sure that he's assassinated. But I, I, you know, I have this, this theory of um, film criticism that uh, to the extent that our art form is capitalized, to that extent, it becomes difficult for progressive content to emerge. So therefore, a poet with a pen and a pad can be as revolutionary as they come. Next is a novelist. Next is a theater person, a dramatist. And then finally, there is a, a movie, which are highly capitalized projects. And we're talking about millions of dollars. We're talking about uh, the those in the 1% at the apex of uh, finance capital and monopoly capitalism. And so it's not easy <laughs> to get progressive content through that kind of system. This is Warner Brothers. Exactly. And so uh, I, I take off my hat uh, to, to this brother, uh, Shaka King, 
and uh, his comrades who were able to make this film. And he talks about the struggle, the struggles that he had to go through. Uh, but in the end, I think it was worth it. But in any case, um, uh, I, I think in some ways, since we're talking about cinema, in some ways, uh, this Fred Hampton film outstrips the Malcolm X film of Spike Lee, which I think is worthy. But, you know, that film came out in 1992, um, almost 30 years ago. And one would expect some sort of, at least I would hope we would expect some sort of ideological progression <laughs> since 1992, uh, if not artistic and creative progression. Did Malcolm X talk of Marxism? What was... His. Well, Ma Malcolm X had a relationship with the Socialist Workers Party, particularly after, which was a tr Trotskyist formation, particularly after he left uh, the Nation of Islam. As a matter of fact, if you, if you look at a number of his uh, works that carry his name that came out after he was uh, killed, assassinated, many of them come out under the imprint of Pathfinder Press, which is the publishing arm of the uh, Socialist Workers Party. And of course, when he was traveling abroad, uh, he could not help but encounter uh, those on the socialist path. The purchasing power of the African-American community. I remember the Reverend Jesse Jackson in the early 80s speaking about the purchasing power of uh, that African-Americans were a nation. And of themselves and the influence that they could have uh, is that I would think that, well, anyway, that's, I wanted to ask you about boxing. What did, <laughs> what did boxing look like in the North and the South before the civil war? What, what would an African-American, were there African-American boxers in, in the North who were able to, to, compete. And I would assume just uh, that, that there was boxing on the plantation, but for the for spectacle for the, the, uh, the white people. Most of the black American boxers um, before the U.S. Civil War, before 1861, found it necessary to migrate overseas particularly to the UK in order to pursue that sport. Certainly there was boxing amongst the enslaved population for the titillation and entertainment of the property owners. Uh, I also talked on the first page of this book about the so-called battle royale, which survived slavery. Uh, this is a process whereby uh, nine young black men, seven, eight, nine young black men are blindfolded and put in the ring to go at each other. And then the one who emerges triumphant gets a prize of some sort. It's a, a, a blood sport to put it mildly. And that survives slavery. And indeed, uh, I talk about uh, Bo Jack, who was a black lightweight champion in the 1940s in the early 1950s, at one time, one of the biggest draws in Madison Square Garden, he used to endure the uh, Battle Royale in his hometown of Augusta, Georgia, the same hometown as James Brown, the uh, singer and dancer and band leader and performer. And obviously that 
the help to steal him for the kinds of bouts that uh, he endured in Madison Square Garden. What kind of promoter did Donald Trump turn out to be when it came to boxing? Well, was he in fact a promoter or just a front? I would say a, a bit of both. I mean, a lot of a lot about Donald J. Trump we really don't know. Now, you probably notice that today his tax returns will finally be released, which should lead to a prosecution probably as early as this year. Uh, one would only, think. One would think. Yeah, I I think that there's a, a likelihood. Um, on income tax evasion or, or various kinds of frauds. And in the process of defending that case, hopefully more will come out about his various ties to organized crime because it's very difficult to be involved as a, a promoter in boxing without being in bed with organized crime. I mean, they're the silent partner. And many have, have made reference to the point that Mr. Trump himself oftentimes spoke in the tones of a mob boss <laughs> in a very uh, crude manner. And uh, as they say in the South, uh, I think he got that honestly. Uh, right. That is to say, uh, he wasn't faking. <laughs> I mean, that, that, came, that came from his associations. Right. Now, he didn't, I remember he, he praised uh, man of, somebody for not flipping, you know, wasn't being a rat. Right. Cone exactly. flipped, he was a rat. Right. Where does so that come we, from? We, we shall see. I don't think we've heard the last of Mr. Trump, who one of the characters in my book says that uh, he's so dishonest that you shouldn't believe what he says, even if his tongue has been notarized. And um, I think that basically sums it up. Uh, I hope Henry, Henry, did I answer your question? Uh, yes, you absolutely did. So I'll allow this to, uh, you know, keep going on with this thread. I only have one last thing that I can mention at the okay. very end. I, I have one final question that sure. I want to, and thank you so much for taking time to do this. This is uh, uh, Don King. Is he what we saw? Was he like Trump? Was he fronting? Was he just a salesman or was there something what was who was he and how exploitative was he? Well, Don King, who was still in the land of the living with roots in Cleveland, Ohio, uh, getting his start as a kind of numbers runner uh, in Cleveland and serves a, a term in jail. He's all, also lifted up by Ali, uh, who allows Don King to promote some of his fights, which gives gets Don King's foot in, the, foot in the door. Don King winds up making quite a bit of money uh, through various enterprises. Uh, for example, he was heavily invested in the MGM Grand, Grand Hotel in Las Vegas uh, through Kirk Kirkcorey, uh, a so-called billionaire of Armenian descent, as you might infer from his name, uh, who was also heavily invested in Hollywood and uh, Las Vegas casinos and then took on Don King as a partner. Kirk Kikorian, like anyone who's invested in Hollywood or casinos, because both of those industries are mob infested, to put it mildly. And so they have those kinds of associations. And Don King also had those sorts of associations. I wouldn't necessarily call him a front, 
uh, I, I would call him uh, an independent actor in very murky, shark-infested waters. Uh, and he showed uh, that he could uh, perform adequately with that kind of barracuda-like competition. And certainly there's no lack, there's no dearth of boxers who complained about being uh, exploited by Don King. But as I say in the book, it's, it's rather curious because uh, you can find a lot on the record with regard to Don King's exploitation of boxers. However, sometimes you would think from reading news accounts that he was the only person doing it. It's almost as if the journalists were saying, don't you know only Euro Americans are supposed to exploit black boxers, not black Americans exploit black boxers, for example. Right. And of course he played upon that uh, rather adroitly, uh, which won him a fair amount of sympathy. Uh, amongst black Americans, at least. Why is the mob so involved in boxing? Is it because of the, the component of gambling? Well, that has something to do with it. Also, it's a business that generates cash, uh, which then facilitates money laundering. Uh, you will find uh, that one of the reasons what organized crime got so heavily involved in the movie business to begin with is because people oftentimes pay cash at the box office and then it generates money that you can then use to launder your ill-gotten gains. And the same holds true for restaurants as well, which, uh, which, which of course, obviously it raises questions as to uh, what is going to transpire as we move towards the digital dollar or the digital loony for that matter, <laughs> and the, the digital yuan, which will probably uh, precede the other two, because obviously this will make uh, laundering of money more problematic unless you're able to bribe the authorities, which you never can rule out. I, I'm utterly convinced I'm not making a joke. And I mean this. This entire country is a money laundering operation. You mean the United States? The whole country. And that's why when you say Donald Trump is going to go to prison, I don't think they're going to pull on that thread because once we find out where all that money comes from, I live in Manhattan. This whole city, the, this whole island is a money laundering operation. Empty buildings uh, supposedly owned by shell companies, supposedly owned by oligarchs. I think once you start pulling that thread, the whole system collapses. But we, we shall see. I don't think they're going to prosecute Donald Trump. We'll see. I think that there's a lot of pressure to do so, not only by uh, the Manhattan District Attorney Cyrus Vance, but the New York State Attorney General, uh, Letitia James, by the Fulton County, Georgia DA. Uh, Fannie well, Bullitt. I think the Fulton County DA can prosecute him for the phone call. But, you know, but I don't think if you start looking into where Donald Trump's money came from, uh, Henry, I, I just. I, I hope you're right, uh, but I I think the whole movie industry is laundering money for drug cartels. I mean, the proximity, there's a reason L.A. was set up so close to the Mexican border. It was to escape uh, Edison uh, uh, enforcing the, the, the patent on the projectors, but it was also to get money 
out of the country and into the country. Henry, go go ahead, please. Sure. So I, I just want to uh, announce one of the upcoming guests that we're going to have on here because it's somebody that Professor Horn is quite familiar with. On March 15th, I have organized to come on none other than Professor CBS, Cherise Burden-Stelly, who co-wrote W.E.D. Dubois, uh, A Life in American History with you. And so I'm going to use that link to uh, finish off this episode with one of the interesting characters that you write about in that book, Marcus Garvey. I don't think that too many of the listeners here are going to be familiar with Marcus Garvey. And so for the last few minutes, why don't we have you uh, introduce who Marcus Garvey is, because we'll certainly talk about uh, certainly talk about him more with Dr. CBS when she comes on. Um, but yeah, why don't you, why don't you, I just give you a few minutes to uh, introduce who Marcus Garvey was. So he's born in Jamaica in the 1880s, dies in London, circa 1940. Uh, in between, he travels in the Circum-Caribbean and comes to the conclusion that is easy to arrive at, that oftentimes, whether he's in Jamaica or Costa Rica, that black people are at the bottom of the socioeconomic pyramid. So he, in his early life, he's influenced deeply by Booker T. Washington, uh, who has this idea of building these black enterprises in order to support uh, black life. And of course, famously clashes with W.E.B. Du Bois, whose biography you just made reference to. Um, but in any case, uh, Marcus Garvey winds up migrating to New York he builds this organization, the UNIA, the Universal Negro Improvement Association, uh, which tries to have shipping, uh, have ships that will transport people to Africa, uh, tries to build various kinds of enterprises. Now, what's interesting about Marcus Garvey, and it's a very interesting lesson in historiography, is that today, I think that Marcus Garvey's reputation uh, at least in, in certain black circles, has been uh, rehabilitated to a certain degree. But in the 1920s, when he was standing trial, uh, were, which led to his being imprisoned, when some of his comrades were being accused of roughing up, if not killing, political opponents, uh, when uh, he wound up serving a, a term in federal prison and then being deported back to Jamaica, uh, his reputation in many circles were, was not as positive as it is today. In fact, you may want to reference the uh, recent uh, biography, two-volume biography of Hubert Harrison, who was one of uh, Garvey's comrades and uh, had a falling out with him. But I think that one of the reasons why Marcus Garvey's reputation has been burnished o over the decades is because he was able to stir anti-colonial sentiment, not only in the Caribbean, elsewhere, but also in Africa. Uh, in my book on Kenya, for example, uh, there are Marcus Garvey chapters, or excuse me, UNIA chapters in Kenya. There are UNIA chapters in Cuba, uh, which of course has a substantial black population. There were UNIA chapters in uh, Southern Africa, for example. So he's a, he's a very uh, intriguing figure uh, and has been the subject of numerous studies and biographies. Fantastic. Thank you, Dr. Gerald Horn. You are the author, in case you forgot, <laughs> you've written so many books. Uh, your latest book is The Bittersweet Science, 
racism, racketeering, and the political economy of boxing. You can purchase it by going to international publishers, intpubnyc.com. That's the best way to purchase it, intpubnyc.com. The rest of your books are available on Amazon, which, uh, but I, I don't think this book is available on Amazon. Is that correct? Well, it is, but they keep uh, losing track of the stock. Oh, okay. So, the, but the best way to buy the book is I in, go to intpubnyc.com. And I urge everybody to pick up one of the books written by Professor Gerald Horn. Uh, it's an honor to have you here. And I, I, I think without embarrassing you, Professor Horn, I'm going to thank Henry and Professor Adnan Hussein for introducing us to you. Uh, thank you, Professor Hussein, and thank you, Henry Huckamaki. This is it's uh, this is why you anyway. We don't do commercial breaks, so I have to watch what I say. I'd be way more effusive. Thank you, <laughs> Professor thank you. Gerald Horn. I hope you come back real soon. I'm going to thank. Professor Hussein and Henry immensely right now. Thank you. Thank uh, you. And good luck to you all. Thank you. Wow. Uh, Professor Hussein uh, and, and Henry, we have, we have some time to talk, if you can stick around. How do you account for uh, being able to write so many books? And, and uh, how do you explain that? You should ask uh, Dr. Horn. He's oh, he's still here. Still here. I, I promised him. <laughs> oh. I, I, I said this interview would only be, we agreed it was only going to be an hour, not a day. So, Oh, I see. But, but if you want to stay, obviously, we're, we're doing a, a well, post. No, I, was, I was trying to actually I was trying to figure out how to sign off. And oh, I'll. I'll uh, OK, I, I can I can do that. So we'll talk about you behind your back while we. OK, yeah, okay. fair enough. Thank you. We're thank you so much. Uh, I'm going to remove remove Gerald Horn. There we go. Once again, uh, thank you, Henry, and thank you, Professor Hussein, for for sharing him with this audience. He is uh, it's breathtaking. How do you explain it, it, somebody writing uh, like that? Well, I mean. Um, I think, you know, it's interesting. He has such diverse topics, but there are threads of connection between them. So it's almost as if uh, the research for one project opens up possibilities to explore something a little further uh, in a new project that becomes a new book. And um, so, you know, the three books that we were talking about in our episode of Guerrilla History start first with this counter-revolution of 1776, but the background that he did in that work became basically the apocalypse of settler colonialism, which was about the uh, 17th century, so the immediate backdrop, you know, 1600s and the Glorious Revolution and situating what happens in the American colonies 
a little bit further back. And that led to him looking even further back in a future book a couple years later that was published last year, The Dawning of the Apocalypse, right? So, um, but even all of these ones, you know, his, his works on Cuba and Kenya is once you start opening up and, and, and actually looking at American history, not from the perspective of um, the sort of internal discourse and myths we tell about ourselves, but from an outside perspective and link it to global history, suddenly there are all these vistas that open up and uh, he has been basically writing against the grain of American history and, and how you understood the black experience in exciting inciting ways and i think also it's cumulative so he built up a huge store of knowledge over the course of his career and in the last like five ten years he is just absolutely um you know putting all of that knowledge to use and just quickly putting work out as well it's actually really wonderful we had in this episode um, a wonderful wide-ranging discussion, as we said, about early American history and origins and so on. And then we asked him, well, uh, what are you uh, working on next? And then he listed four projects that were seemed so disparate. Um, and he was bemoaning that, well, COVID has really put a crimp in his style because he can't travel to do some of the research. And so he's had to shift to various other things. But it and he's teaching year, four four books maybe to come out like it's right. very possible that he'll publish four books next year and he's teaching well i don't know you know i mean uh i think he's probably uh, you know at the stage where maybe they don't make him teach too much more uh but definitely uh he's still you know a full you know, academic uh, with with uh, university students to to teach and so forth so yes yeah i want to ask henry a question sure uh, and let me just add one quick thing in with what adnan said in in regards to compiling knowledge over the years when you listen to professor horn you understand very quickly that the man's memory and retention of knowledge and interconnection of the knowledge that's already floating around in his brain is on a, a different level than most other people because throughout the interviews that we do with him on your show, David, throughout the episode that we'll be releasing on Friday of guerrilla history, we'll bring up a point and he'll cite a specific source that he read 35 years ago, what chapter it came from, who wrote it, what year the person that he's referring to was born, et cetera, et cetera. His memory and his ability to connect the things that he had previously absorbed is obscene. And that's what it has allowed him as Adnan says, to basically write with increasing frequency. If you look at the number of books that he publishes a year, it used to be, you know, he'd publish a book every year or so. And then, you know, 15 years ago, he was publishing two books a year. And then all of a sudden now he's publishing three books a year uh, until, of course, COVID hit. And as Adnan mentioned, he, he complains about a little bit at the end of our episode for not allowing him to get into the archives as much as uh, he would like to. So I have a question. I was watching you and we should do some follow ups on COVID town squares. There were some questions that we didn't get to answer. You've been stuck in America for a year. You're hopefully you, not for too much longer. But do you, yeah. you, you want to go back to if you don't mind my asking? Oh, yeah, I'm going back. <laughs> and so but now that you're I mean, I would assume 
your this, this year how, has not made me ha, has not engendered me more to uh, the country that I'm currently residing in. But you, I would assume that your horizons have expanded beyond immunology. I know that you were always a Marxist, and st- but uh, uh, you know, in a, studying history, I'm not sure it has, David. Uh, this is who you've always been, in other words. Essentially, yeah. Oh, okay. I'm not sure that. I mean, most people might think like, oh, yeah, you know, you've been at the U.S., you haven't had, you know, your studies going on and, and whatnot for the past year or so. You must have a lot of time to explore in, in more reading and whatnot. But uh, I, I wouldn't necessarily say that I've been reading more diverse topics now than I ever have been. I always tried to read a diverse range of topics, and I, I don't have as much time for reading as a lot of people might think I do, um, you know, even though I'm not doing my studies at the at the moment right now i do have a lot of uh projects and things that i am working on so you know uh, I, I can't say that this year has like really expanded my horizons in any um marked way i mean perhaps i i have a few more of the books um and the bookshelves upstairs and down the hallway and we've got like four bookshelves I've got access to books that I had previously purchased when I was living in the U.S. and then had moved away from and was not able to read them. Okay, So I've got I, access to them, but, I, you know, it's, I would say, a negligible effect. Uh, Professor Hussein, I, I want to ask Henry about COVID because I'm, I'm getting conflicting stories about COVID. Uh, I was reading David Dyan today in The American Prospect, and he was celebrating the rollout that we're really... Are you, are you grimacing, Professor Hussein, as to what I said, or were you just adjusting yourself? Oh, I thought you were. So th- there's a story we're getting from really reliable. You know, if David Dyan says that the Biden administration is doing a really good job on COVID and getting the, the vaccines out, and I'm seeing stories about the possibility of uh, uh, you know, something resembling herd immunity in May or June. And then we do COVID Town Squares Saturday. And Henry, you're making a funny face. Well, I wouldn't say that, you know, we should be too fatalistic about things. But I do think that some people are getting a slight, uh, slightly rosier picture of how, how the situation currently stands than we should be. It's the same thing that happened in the summertime. Uh, it seemed like there was a lot of people, including a lot of intelligent people, people that have relatively good politics, that seemed to be thinking that we were right at the edge of the tunnel. You know, the tunnel's in front of us and we're just about to emerge into the sunlight. Well, we are certainly farther along the tunnel now than we were then, and the worst is almost certainly behind us. But to say that we're right on the precipice between darkness and light, I think is a little bit premature. There are a few things that we could trip over at the final hurdle and end up face planting on, which would uh, allow us to remain in that tunnel for a longer period of time than would otherwise be necessary. But I wouldn't say, like, let's be fatalistic. I wouldn't say that, you know, there's no way that anything is going to get better in the near term. We certainly have encouraging signs. We have a lot of positives that we can take. And people like David Dan are, are covering this relatively well. I just think that there are a lot of people who are making the same mistake over and over again by taking small positive pieces of news and stitching together five positive pieces of news and impl- inferring that that's going to be 
that end of the tunnel. Unfortunately, it's not five positives that get you right to the end. It is a cumulative uh, a cumulative effect of positive things over the course of time that are required to get you there. And we're well along the way, but we're certainly not right at the end right now. We're going to see if in Toronto has a question. I, I said earlier in the show, this reminds me of when I used to put the kids and the dogs and the wife in a van and drive to from Los Angeles to San Francisco and, you know, 30 minutes in, Daddy, I have to pee. We're almost there. We're almost there. Just sit tight. We're, we're almost, it's right around the corner. We're almost, in, uh, This it feels like that, that they're telling us, just wait till April, just wait till May, just wait till Ju- a year from now. What are we looking at? Uh, so what we are looking at and what we should be looking at, I think are two related, but different things. So by that point, we're still going to have to be, here's what my, my, uh, inferences are of what the situation will be like in a year, given what the situation is today and what we can expect. I would expect that the situation of COVID is more or less under control. However, by that point, we will have more variants out there which means that we're going to have potentially new variants that are able to evade the vaccine that people have already gotten now and are in the process of getting now. And what that means is that people are still going to have to be getting shots because we're going to have to be developing boosters. Uh, It's possible that we could need boosters every year for the next few years. That's that's possible. But a variant of COVID-19, not COVID. A variant of COVID-19. Which means that the vaccine would be somewhat effective on a variant. Almost certainly. Without seeing what that variant is, you can't say with absolute certitude that, yeah, you know, the vaccine is going to at least reduce the severity. You you can't really predict what those variants are going to look like. And and some variants could be weaker, correct? Some some variants could be weaker. Some could be stronger. However, the thing to consider is, is that in order for a variant to take over and become the predominant variant in society, it has to have some sort of advantage over other variants. It either has to be more transmissible, which, of course, would let it spread faster. It might be less deadly and more transmissible, but it also could be more deadly and more transmissible, but more transmissible better able to evade vaccines so that other variants that are out there are getting uh, kind of squashed down by the vaccinated population. But then you have a variant that isn't as affected by the vaccine, and that's going to become more predominant. The point is, is that as a variant becomes more predominant in society, that is because it has some advantage. And over the next year, we can certainly expect that we end up generating some more Variants, And one of the reasons why is because countries like the U.S. are not doing a good job. So you, you mentioned, and I'll just leave this uh, on this note. But Well, I have another question. Yeah, I'll leave this point on this note. So you mentioned David Dan writing today uh, about the rollout and the, uh, how effective it's been. And it, it has been fairly effective. And I did see that column that he did. And he has a newsletter called The First 100 Days that you can subscribe to get it in your email every day. Uh, the, the rollout has been effective in the United States and there have been other countries that have been even more effective. Uh, I believe the U S is in fifth place in terms of vaccinations right now. Um, in terms of the percentage of the population that have been vaccinated, but one thing to consider, and this is something we talked about in COVID town squares, and it's worth mentioning now 
is that COVID is a global disease, global, right? Variants, okay, so mutations occur all the time in RNA viruses, all the time. Within the same person, you will have mutations that occur. Most of the mutations don't do anything. However, once in a while, a mutation will cause some impact on how the disease acts. And if that if those impacts are beneficial to the virus, you end up with a variant that ends up acting differently than previous variants. The way to prevent new variants from happening is to ensure that everybody in the world is vaccinated. Because if you say, okay, well, the United States, we're all covered here. And I I said this during COVID town squares, perhaps you'll chop it up and put it on YouTube. I would recommend that at this point. Um, you'll say, okay, the United States, we're all going to be vaccinated. We're all going to, you know, 94, 95% of people are going to be immune to the D614G variant, at least. That's great. COVID is going to be pretty much done with the U.S. Done. Well, not really, because at the same time, places like South Sudan or uh, you know, Vietnam, for example, there's these areas in the world that are developing nations and they don't have access to vaccines right now. And there's not that much money going into ensuring that they get vaccines right away. There are some nations that are pledging money to ensure that eventually these nations are going to get access to vaccines, but that's going to be sometime down the road. Now, what happens if the United States is all covered by a vaccine and these other countries aren't? Potentially, you're going to have new variants popping up in these countries, almost certainly, because as I said, these RNA viruses racket mutations all the time. It's just a matter of time until you get new variants that act differently. So then what happens if you have that variant and one of those variants gets around the vaccine that we've already given to everybody in the U.S. and it gets into the U.S.? Well, now it starts spreading again, and you have to go and make another vaccine and vaccinate everybody again. Well, let me ask you this. You're shooting yourself in the foot by not taking a global perspective on this pandemic. Okay, so tonight uh, our president is doing a candle lighting ceremony at the White House, and uh, American flags are flying at half-mast for the next five days to honor the half a million Americans who have been killed in less than a year by COVID-19 that uh, that matches the number of Americans killed in Korea, Vietnam, and World War II in under a year. Would you agree, Henry Huckamacki, that this is a, a, uh, a crisis? This is a monumental cataclysmic disaster? Certainly. And this is a crisis and a disaster that was of our own making. Okay. So let me paint a picture for you. Okay. Sure. Let me just mention one thing. It it didn't have to be that. Well, this this is what my, this is my question to keep this in mind. It didn't need to be this bad. And there's going to be just as much written about how we failed as there is going to be written about how bad things were in the history books in the future. Okay. Uh, When I was growing up, Henry, presidents used to come, on TV in prime time and make Oval Office addresses. And it was the weight of the bully pulpit. So Nixon would explain why he was sending more troops into Vietnam and he would scare the shit out of the American people. And 80% of the American people said, yes, send 
hundreds of thousands of boys in there and bomb the shit out of that country. They're coming for us. That's the power of the bully pulpit. Yeah, people got the image of uh, Viet Cong coming over in PT boats across the Pacific to invade San Francisco or something like that. Okay. You know, where, where did these fantasies okay. come from? But you're right, that All was right. manufactured. So the President of the United States comes on national television and says, forget the vaccine. Forget the vaccine. You either wear a mask or you're fined $50,000. We're not messing around. This is a national crisis. Forget the vaccine. Everybody in this country, mask up or you're going to be fined $50,000 or we're going to arrest you and put you in a prison where nobody gets, get, gets any masks. Put your mask on for the next month. And if you're not wearing one, we're coming for you. And we're not giving you a vaccine. You have to wear a mask in a month. What would the numbers be like? Well, what, one thing that we can look take at away is the political the, component and yeah, all the it was just it, sure. Let's look at how the UK has been doing recently. The reduction in cases. So, of course, there's other factors at play. I mean, that's why we've seen a reduction in cases here in the U.S. and we haven't had a nationwide lockdown. But let's look at the U.K. They've had a nationwide lockdown. And what's happened? A dramatic, incredible reduction in cases where now they're going to be looking at reopening individual targeted sectors of their economy again, uh, starting with places like schools and, and, and things like that. Now, they're also planning on making sure that when they reopen these things, those people that are going into work first are going to be the ones that are getting the vaccine first. And Britain is one of the four countries that's doing better than the U.S. in terms of its vaccine distribution. So what we can see, though, is that even though they've had a better vaccine rollout than we have, it hasn't been an incredibly better vaccine rollout than we have. It hasn't been the difference between uh, vaccines per population of Israel versus the U.S. It's, it's just slightly better than the U.S. And so what we can see is that when they went into a nationwide lockdown and have all of these public health initiatives in place, you're able to cut transmission incredibly rapidly and incredibly effectively. Now, wearing masks is not the same as a nationwide lockdown, but we know that masks are effective. And How effective? If we didn't have a vaccine, if we only if I said I'm the I'm the new uh, Fuhrer of the United States and I said, you know what, you're not getting your vaccines. You, you get You have to wear you have to double up on the masks. And if you don't, you're going to prison. No vaccines for you. What happens? Yeah. So there's been a lot of studies that have been done on this with some slightly different numbers. But in general, these numbers are going to be what holds. If you're the individual who's not ill and you're wearing a mask and you're around somebody who is ill, if you compare the likelihood that you would get sick if you weren't wearing the mask and you, if you were wearing the mask, your likelihood of getting sick if you were wearing the mask would be reduced by about 60 percent. And in that's herd immunity, that, as I understand if, it. You're getting close. You're getting close. It needs to be between probably 70 and 90 percent, uh, especially with these new variants that are coming out that appear to be more transmissible. But even if you do get infected, you know, there's still that 40 percent chance that, you know, you still would get infected. 40 uh, percent of what you your odds already were. You also might be a less severe case because you're going to have less virus coming into your lungs, even if you do have some. And we know that the initial viral load 
is at least somewhat correlated with severity of the disease. Now, if the person that is ill is wearing the mask, you're reducing transmission by about 80%. If you're both wearing the masks, now it's just math. You take whatever probability you would have had to get ill if you were both maskless, you know, sick person and healthy person. If you then have the healthy person wearing a mask, it's 60% less than the odds. And if the person that is sick is wearing the mask, then it's 80% less than that. So you have a massive reduction and listen, that would be heard. You may, that would be herd immunity. You would, you would be well over herd immunity type protection at that point. And listeners, just because there's a, a new study that came out within the last two weeks or so, um, it appears that double masking, you may have heard this in the news, but if you haven't, I'll make sure that you hear it here. Double masking appears to dramatically increase the efficacy of wearing a mask if you are the healthy individual in that scenario. It also would in, in, uh, help dramatically if you were the ill person and preventing other people from getting ill, which is nice for me to hear because I've been double masking every time I've had to go out this whole time anyway. But if you wear that double mask and you're the healthy person, the reduction in risk goes from something like 60% to almost 80%. So we could, we could wipe this off the face of... If we had lockdowns in areas where there was a lot of transmission and in other areas everybody was required to wear at least one mask, yeah, we could have it down to really, really low levels until people could get their vaccines and then wear masks for perhaps another six months to a year after everybody's been vaccinated and then ta-da, roughly no more COVID in the United States. But would we, if, if we could, if we could get too. everybody, yes or no, answer the committee, answer the committee. Forget the vaccine. If everybody would just wear the effing masks. Yes or would no? We, would we be able to eradicate it? Is that the question? Yes. Um, not quite, not for some time, because again, keep in mind that those reductions in percentages still allow for some transmission. So you're still going to have some small amounts of transmission that go around and it's going to be very slow. But yeah, the reduction is going to be dramatic. You almost have it completely stamped out by, you know, four to six months of everybody religiously doing that. So here's, here's the answer, Henry. Masks have to cost $5,000 each, and somebody has to get rich off masks. Then everybody will wear masks. Well, you know, you're bringing up an interesting point. We actually have a surplus of N95 masks right now just sitting in warehouses that aren't being used. I'm not sure if that's been mentioned on the show yeah, before. Yeah, at the top of the show I talked about it. Okay, great. Yeah, we have a Explain why masks. that is. Well, they've been cranking out masks, but the hospital workers have still been instructed to only use one N95 per day. And they and the protocols, the purchasing protocols demand that they only buy the hospitals, only buy the masks from China. They don't trust American made masks. Yeah, that is also another uh, aspect which I haven't read as much about, but but uh, certainly the component that the individuals that most would benefit from wearing an N95 mask are still limited in terms of the N95 masks that they can use, despite the fact that we have N95 masks sitting in warehouses at this point. Now, early on in the pandemic, it was an issue, but uh, yeah, not anymore. Anyway, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to stop talking yeah. because Adnan has been completely shut out by me. Adnan? 
Uh, that wasn't you, Henry. That was David who shut me out. I apologize. <laughs> I'm, I'm on one right. today. No, I, we, we learned some important and interesting things. I mean, this is something that I said um, as soon as the vaccine was announced that um, if you don't do it globally, what's the point? You know, um, it's not going to really work or accomplish. So it has to be, in fact, also the proprietary control over these vaccines needs to be released under this you know, emergency pandemic situation, and there should be generic production of these vaccines. Um, you know, the WHO and should be organizing um, production facilities across the globe so that the vaccines can be administered as quickly as possible. So, yeah, I agree with 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 Henry. It's a very I'm, serious issue. I, I know I said I would stop talking, but <laughs> it's just a problem on this show. Yeah, we all Adnan, you mentioned tend to- you mentioned something here. I, I don't know, Adnan, were you around still after the uh, pay-per-view ended on Saturday? Or, or did you leave a little bit before that? Uh, I think I was there to, to, to the end. Yes. Okay. Yeah. So to the very after, end, because as I understand, the very end, I understand it my ended and then there were, you know, my daughter uh, came in and I think it went till afterwards. six in the morning. Blame your yeah. daughter. You're just like Ted Cruz. Anyway, <laughs> uh, after the pay-per-view ended. So after the show itself ended, we had a little bit of a, just a chat with some people and uh, I reminded people and I've talked about it on this show, but, not for probably the last five or six months, that there is a process that we can break these pharmaceutical patents. Mm. Uh, and this is directly in line with what Adnan was just mentioning. And I've been an advocate for using this pretty liberally uh, for at least five years now. The process is called compulsory licensing. And I'll explain it very briefly because I want people that are listening, if anybody still is listening, to... Uh, Join me in being an advocate for increasing the usage of compulsory licensing. So here's the thing. Compulsory licensing is when you've got drug companies that have patents on different drugs, right? The drug companies then will negotiate what they're going to sell those drugs at in different countries. And the the, uh, national governments generally are the ones that are in charge of negotiating those prices with the companies, Now, the companies have the upper hand in this negotiation because they have the patent on the drug. Sure, the government can make make a stink for the companies, but the companies ultimately are the ones with the patents in their hands. And so while there is some give and take, a lot of the times, particularly in countries like the United States, where the politicians have uh, financial incentives to uh, favor the drug companies in these negotiations because they might get... uh, well, anyway, they might uh, financially benefit from it in some way, hint, hint. We in the United States have much higher pharmaceutical prices than other countries for the exact same drugs. We all know this. Now, there have been instances where in, the, in times of a public health emergency, there have been drugs that companies have tried to profiteer on in terms of jacking up the prices during a public health crisis to try to make a profit because they know that the government needs to buy these drugs for this uh, public health crisis. One example that I gave was the 2001 anthrax attacks uh, in case anybody remembers this. So what happens then is the government will try to negotiate those prices down because we need the drugs to treat the people 
or protect the people. It depends on what the drug, the pharmaceutical is. So they'll negotiate. And in general, the, the company will try to, will reduce the prices to the level that the government wants and they'll buy it. Then, but what happens in other cases is the company will refuse. And this is what happened in 2001 with ciprofloxacin, which is the antibiotic that's quite effective against anthrax. Uh, the patent uh, and was held by uh, Bayer in, in Germany. And they wouldn't de- negotiate the prices down. So what the U.S. government threatened to do is use a compulsory license. And so now I'm getting to the point. Compulsory licensing is essentially where the government can then break the patent on a pharmaceutical in order to ensure that the pharmaceutical is available to people that need it in a health crisis. Brazil did this back in the 80s or 90s uh, with, I believe, an anti-malarial drug. And the U.S. threatened to use it against Bayer in 2001. And let me just say, when uh, they threatened to do that, Bayer immediately said, oh, yeah, that lower price that you were saying that we should take, that sounds like a good deal to us. We'll take that deal. And they dropped the prices dramatically to sell to the U.S. so that we were able to get a stockpile of Cipro in case there were more anthrax attacks. So here's the things to consider. By using compulsory licensing, we can ensure that we have the drugs needed in order to keep people alive during public health crises. And another thing to consider, most of these drugs are made on the public dime anyway, at the very least the basic research. But in a lot of cases, the entire research pipeline was done in public institutions before being snapped up and patented by for-profit institutions. So why is it that taxpayers are funding the research to do it and then are getting bitten in the wallet because the companies are able to profiteer off of it because they have the patent. If companies are unwilling to give good prices for their pharmaceutical drugs, we should at least threaten them with compulsory licensing. And there's my spiel on that. Very good. Very good. Henry Huckamaki, subscribe to his newsletter. Go to patreon.com forward slash Huck 1995. Professor Adnan Hussein, as always, it's great to see you again. Hope to see you. Nice to hope, be back. And I, hopefully we'll see you uh, on Friday or Thursday, whenever we do our show. Let us now go to Aurora, Illinois, where Professor Marianne Cummings is standing by. She is Parks Commissioner, a Parks Commissioner for Aurora, Ooh. Illinois, and uh, a professor of physics. Good to see you. Oh, great to see you. Hey, and what... What a great show, Saturday night. Well, that's Henry. I mean, that was an amazing and set irritable. of that. That was just a it was an amazing lecture we got treated to. Now, how much of it were you able to understand? I was talking to my daughter. Yeah, I could. You know, I could understand some of it. I have been really challenged since, uh, really, since last summer when I joined this group. Every time uh, Irritable and Henry come on, because it's just. Uh, it's like drinking water out of a fire hydrant, right. you know, when you're trying to get information. But, you know, just I, as you said, just repetition. You know, you just like I write down questions when they, when they come to me. And uh, and then I go on Al Gore's Internet and try to find some answers. And uh, is it you know, easier having a background in physics? Yeah, I think it is, because in, and it's easier in the sense that you're not intimidated by the presentation of uh, of quantitative information. Right. These are immunologists. You know, some of these plots are pretty damn complicated. 
These are immunologists who are cutting edge science and they're dealing with viruses at the at the most basic level, you know, down to the proteins. And it's almost getting into the physics of the the proteins. it's, It's unbelievable. I mean, like. Particle physics, really simple. <laughs> At the very, very core, really simple. Some of the mathematics gets a little sophisticated. But immunology, at the core, very complicated. So when you're I mean, studying just, something, when you take on something like physics yeah. or, or immunology, it, it, you have to accept everything at face value. You can't question what you're being taught. Right. You have to say that these are the laws of nature and learn them. Maybe later you can question them. I say that, uh, you know, we get very limited amount. Data means very limited amount of information. And uh, and you just have to be ruthless with what you understand. For instance, little physics lecture I did a couple of weeks ago there. I mean, going back to just basic first-year problems, they're really good for physicists to do, and all physicists should teach a first-year physics course at a, at a local community college or something because, you know, like every, it, every chapter in those books, like hundreds of years of human endeavor went into, like, coming up with F equals MA. I mean, not even Galileo did that, or Leonardo da Vinci did that, although Galileo came very damn close. So that's what I'm saying. And you always have to be ruthless about just the, the most basic stuff when, when you're going through these problems. And do you have, you, you get how, how close are you to, I don't, Aurora's near Chicago, right? Yeah. As a physicist, when you go to Chicago and look at those buildings, are you comfortable getting in an elevator? Yeah, yeah I'm, I'm pretty comfortable. I'd be probably comfortable in the newer buildings than the older ones. But uh, um, but it's weird that you should say that because I was into, oh, God, you know, it's, this is like a bad nightmare. Building seven of the World Trade Center. <laughs> That's next week's show. Yeah, next week's show. No, but the thing is, is that even when when that when 911 happened, I mean, I'm an amateur when it comes to this kind of construction. And when I looked at the buildings came to come down, they look like these were controlled demolitions. Mm-hmm. But I happened to be working with material sciences at the, as scientists at the time, because I was uh, designing a target that held liquid nitrogen, which can be explosive. And you have to, you know, make sure that, uh, you know, that what you're doing, you want to have a very thin window so the beam go through, but it wants to be very strong. So I was working with these guys and then they were explaining to me, um, you know, the uh, construction of what they call mostly air structures were uh, buildings that a were designed with these steel cores, but with, like aluminum alloys for all of the other support structures. And their big concern at the time was being able to get slammed by a Category 3 hurricane. So all of these new alloys were, their their tensile strengths were very close to their ultimate strengths. In other words, when you bend like a coat hanger, you can bend it a little bit, it comes back, but but then you bend it a little too much, and then it, you know, you've kind of... uh, uh, it, you have compromised the structure. So that's 
So that, that was the nature of these things, so that they could spring back. But the other nature of these things is that they, they conduct heat and stress. They're designed to um, minimize local stress by just maximizing stress, the uh, ability for all the other components to share stresses. So in other words, if you have some enormous object, like say randomly a 747 slamming into the side of your building. Um, it was kind of silly when they were just talking about the, uh, about the, the heat of the fuel. You're talking about all that energy that slams into the building. It gets, it, it gets uh, transferred to something, it gets transferred to heat. And really? all of these structures take the heat. Oh. And, and in fact, it was so, they were designing these things. I think they designed it for a DC nine to slam into it, you know, for a city airport, they were not, they were not anticipating like you know, the, these enormous jets to, and they were, and they were not designed to withstand them. And it also uh, presupposes, by the way, that the people yeah. who built the World Trade Center made sure that everything was up to code. This is New York City. Oh well, you know. Um, the World Trade look, the, the, these uh, buildings, the other thing they pointed out was that these buildings were also designed to be able to be, to be taken down, is in other words, you know, they, to be able to come down straight when you were, if anything should ever happen to them in a cataclysmic way. So the bottom line is uh, that uh, there's a reason why people go to graduate school. <laughs> structural mm -hmm. engineering and material science. I mean, there's a lot to learn. I learned a ton of that ton, kind of stuff at the time. And the people who would also know this about those structures, who had an advanced degree, who had advanced degrees in mechanical engineering, was Osama bin Laden. Hmm. <laughs> you know, his family runs the biggest oh, that's right. they, company in the world. That's right. They build the, the whole yeah. mall where the Hajj is held. So it's like, but he also was educated. He was in Baton Rouge for a while. My, a friend of mine knew him. That's the weirdest thing. But his whole family was over there at, I think, uh, Louisiana State University or one of the universities. But anyway, my point is, is that, uh, yeah. Um, so I, what I'm amazed by is just, and, and you get humble when you study science too, because Everything you kind of take for granted. I mean, you know, little plugs, tweezers, you know, a box, of, a box of toothpicks, as old uh, as old Herman Haggerty at Fermilab would say. Box of toothpicks, you know, two hundred and fifty of them, and they're perfect. How do they make those things? Buy them for fifty cents a box, and I'm like, damn if I know how they make these. I things. thought they grow. Aren't there toothpick <laughs> farms that they grow and they harvest them? Yeah, you would think they're so perfect. Only nature could be this perfect. No, yeah, it's like, you know, when you think about just every single mundane thing you see in front of you is an industrialized, you know, this little thing of chapstick, industrialized process went into making that. And, you know, a lot of people put know-how and thought into doing it when I go to banks and I see they still have the old check sorting machines. My father designed one of those check sorting machines. Really? He was, before, he became, before he went to law school, I remember when he went to law school, he was- That's how he paid for law school, by yeah, keeping well, some of those fact, checks. They sent him to law school. They, my father uh, was 
maybe took a couple of, of drafting courses at night at, uh, at University of Detroit. And then he, there were the kind of jobs then where smart people out of high school could earn a decent living, also get trained if you have the motivation to. And uh, when he was there, he designed the check story. My father was very good at gizmos. Uh, he went on and, you know, he, yeah, I remember when he was just two people in a law office and he had one of the biggest law offices in the state of Michigan when he tired, retired. But, uh, you know, it was that kind of that kind of thing that's kind of evaporated, you know, in this country. A lot of our industrial capacity, a lot of our, you know, ability to make things um, it's, it's, it's it was brought out. Uh, at the beginning of this pandemic, when not only masks, but there is just a whole array of stuff that is like sole source type of, of suppliers that we rely on China to produce masks, <laughs> masks, but other surgical, other surgical equipment. We uh, we don't make nuclear isotopes in medicine in this country. We we're beginning to now, but almost all of our uh, isotopes for nuclear medicine made in Canada, made elsewhere. Our drugs are made. Most of our drugs yeah. are coming to us from. So it's, uh, and that would be great if we really did have one, just one world type of system, but we don't. And we've, as a country, uh, monopolies, which have no allegiance to any country whatsoever, or in any state, I mean, they have uh, rendered us as a country extremely vulnerable. You know, I was thinking, speaking of skyscrapers in New York, mm -hmm. uh, I think New York City, Manhattan, is going to be post-apocalyptic in about five years. With the thing we're on right now, Zoom, there is no need for offices anymore. Certainly no need for the offices that Wall Street has. People... Well People might think that, but, you know, I, I kind of remembered watching a video as a kid where they, where they were saying that television, they had predicted that television would end the movie theater because people would stay home and watch things on the TV, which they do now even more, but uh, people want to go out. They want to go out, but they're not going to the kind of movies they used to go to. No. The, the movie industry was uh, pared down by television. And these the, these offices in Manhattan are very expensive. Mm -hmm. And they've overbuilt them. Forget contracting COVID by being in there. <laughs> Zoom makes these offices unnecessary. So I think New York, as you say, there's no loyalty. These banks on Wall Street, Merrill Lynch, they've already, the hedge funds have already relocated to Palm Springs and Palm Beach. They're out of here. I think this town, which has created well, most of the suffering in America, I think most of the suffering in America flows from the tip of Manhattan. I think Manhattan is going to pay. would be like Madison Avenue, like Mad Men? No, I think Wall Street. I think you can oh, trace... I think you can trace all the the pain in this country to the tip of Manhattan, to the hedge fund managers and the the commoditization of our lives to the tip of Manhattan. I think it's going to be 
uh, empty in five well, years. That's we we've run this experiment and now we've run this like end game capitalism now where we've allowed finance to dominate. And literally, my uh, uh, Saul and my former colleague uh, Bill Foster, now our my congressman Foster, was uh, was trying to explain to us how we can't reform Wall Street because that's the source of our strength. That's what America has to offer. And I'm like, we're all looking at each other, going, what, what. I mean, they who said that? that in a few keystrokes. Uh, my congressman, said scientist, scientist and businessman, Bill Foster, was saying that, you know, you have you can't break up the banks. You can't be the big, gigantic uh, uh, financial institutions are America's strength right now. And, uh, you know, we were all listening to him going, this is this is D.C. brain. This is like this guy getting wined and dined, told he's smart and a genius 24-7 by the guys that fund his and other people's campaigns now. There was a and time, he, there was a time when the financial sector was about 8 to 10% of our gross domestic product. Mm-hmm. Now it's up to like 30%. And what and it's do they- taking over. But it's also- What it's, do these people do? They, it, it's, well, it's, they-, they they play games. They try to uh, they they try to uh, amass power, and they it may may be nominally thirty percent of our economy, but everything now, even oil. I mean, oil, big tech, everything is is now dictated by finance. I mean. I was, uh, you know, a friend of mine, uh, acquaintance really, but she wanted me to like, you know, apply for a job at Sears. The Sears has a big uh, headquarters, world headquarters up near Schaumburg. I don't know if it's still there, but they had a derivatives department. I mean, Sears, like because the of the credit cards, right? Yeah, but it was no, it was more than that. It was like they they were branching into quote financial instruments. It wasn't just their credit card. This is what real- she. This is what killed GE. Uh, well, this is, I know that at one point they were making way more money off of, uh, what was it, GMC than their, uh, no, this was General Motors. And they were making, you're right, they were making more money off of their financial division than they were making cars. Right. But, uh, you know, I wanted to take that back to uh, what's going on in Texas right now. So, you know, I was kind of wondering, because I everybody forgets, you know, Kenny Boy Lay and all those people. Remember that? Enron. <laughs> the, the whole Enron. Um, yeah, I personally know people who were bankrupted by that. Person who worked for Enron, her, her father, rather, and uh, they had all their wealth in Enron stock. And that was pretty dramatic. It's really, uh, it's very dramatic for somebody to have had money and in status, you know, middle class or rich and to have lost it. It's, it's a certain kind of rage, you know, like, and you don't even know who to be mad at. I, I kind of joked to him. I said, you know, for that, it, that, that funeral for old Ken Lay, I would have demanded if I were any of those employees to like pry open that coffin. <laughs> Right. I still think he's down in the Bush family plantation in Paraguay or wherever they bought those hundred thousand acres. Um, but anyway, the um, the recent uh, power outage, um, there was a law, in fact, uh, that and it was signed by Pappy Bush on his way out 
Um, it was called what was called the Energy Policy Act. It was kind of a you know a mild sounding name, and it ha- and it wanted to have market solutions to encouraging green energy or renewable energy. And I think there was I think what people a lot of people know about it is you know the um, the low low volume flush toilets kind of were promoted by this, but they also allowed all of these um, all of the states whose utilities were subject to federal regulation to get off of regular, uh, federal regulation. They thought that, well, maybe these littler utility companies, I mean, there was, I'm sure there was Brookings Institute or American Enterprise Institute policy papers, how that was going to like make energy much cheaper and affordable, more flexible. And of course, all of these guys forget that big players take advantage. And uh, Enron was one of them, but Houston Power and Light or uh, whatever that country uh, company became was another one of those. And so it, it allowed, it allowed these companies to just uh, hold to essentially have oligarchic or monopolistic power over big regions. But then for the kicker, um, uh, George W. Bush won as in his last year as governor signed a bill that required people to pay what they called market-driven prices. Again, it was marketed as, no, this isn't price fixing. This is going to be the natural. You're going to use the power of the marketplace. But it locked people in. It obligated people to pay those prices so that when that poor chap comes home having you know had the lights on for a week or so, uh, he's got left with a $16,000 bill. Now, by the way, I'm hearing a lot of these stories. Where's Biden? Where are I the mean, banks? These are automatic. Before we no, talked about, I mean, the, the, the bank, he had automatic payment, bill payment in yeah. his checking account. The bank, there was no red flag. That Wait they, a minute. I thought banks, if you, if there's any withdrawal of $5,000, I mean, the bank, has, doesn't the bank have to notify the FDIC or something about this? You know, that's yeah. why. Rush Limbaugh was taking out four thousand nine hundred ninety nine bucks, you know, to kind of for his walking around money. Anyway, uh, no, but the thing is, is that certainly this is a natural emergency. Certainly, Biden has the power to just end this. You know, no, there's going to be no price gouging. We're going to, you know, use our powers as, uh, and, and I'm sure there's even there's even. Uh, helpful, if maybe unconstitutional, clauses in the Patriot Act to allow him to do that. But he should just come in. He should have done that last week and said, no, you're not going to do this. You're not going to subject millions of American citizens to this predatory nonsense in the middle of a, of a crisis and an emergency. And I don't know, they're lighting candles on the lawns. Right. Maybe, maybe they'll have a light show if we hit, you know, a million dead. Has COVID. he done a, a national address, you know, that used the bully pulpit yet from the Oval Office to declare war on poverty or to declare war on guns or to declare war on racism? Has mm-hmm. he, has he? No, I mean, they don't look, his handlers want to limit his public appearances. I mean, I, I would, but I, it, and then the, look, it, 
if, if there's no leadership in the White House, uh, so there was a law that there was a national law that was signed by a president, uh, that can be easily done. And, you know, and as much as I like watching Ted Cruz get utterly humiliated. Because, He'll be reelected. You know, of course he will. But what I'm saying is that, you know, the entire, all this attention. I like him better than Beto. He did, didn't they? I, I, I like him better than I like Beto. Beto's a complete and utter fraud and a liar. Yeah, well, and he's been propped know. up by a Republican father-in-law. Oh, I know. The, the whole thing was that was nasty. And, you know, in honor of Malcolm X, who always said that, you know, I'd rather deal with just people who are evil people who are just straight up evil, who right. are in my face racist, who don't hide what they are. Rather than these backstabbers who pretend to be liberal and pretend to, you know, to really want to help me and then just, you know, stab you in the back. So there's a bit of that. And also he's I noticed that he was out with Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. A friend of mine who's down there says, yeah, he's running. There's talk of him running uh, for governor against Abbott. Um, whenever that comes up, I think two years from now. So, you know, good on him. That, that, that he'd make a, that's a, it's pretty much a ceremonial office being governor yeah, of Texas. Yeah, as a matter of fact, people forget, too, that uh, George W. Bush was was a governor. It's one of the weakest. I mean, yeah. you can be a, like a larger-in-life type of figure like, uh, who is it? Um, you can be and, an idiot like Rick Perry. You can be, you an, can idiot be an idiot like, like Bush. Rick Perry. Who was the gal that was the uh, other Ann Richards. Ann Richards. No, I was thinking of Ann Richards. She was kind of a larger-than-life person who was pretty popular. But, uh, oh, the, who there, there was a Texas uh, journalist who died a few years ago. Molly Ivins. Uh, Molly Ivins, who used to talk about Rick Perry, said, Rick Perry's so dumb, he's going to make people long for the intellectual pros- prowess of George W. Bush. <laughs> but anyway, this is... Yeah, but George W. Bush's lieutenant governor is apparently the one with all the power. Right. I mean, he has the power and he has some kind of like president of their house or something. He's, he can work with the legislature. He can like oversee the legislation. And that was a, uh, a Democrat under and I can't remember his name, but that was a Democrat. The guy who was his lieutenant governor was a Democrat. Well, so Rick Perry was a Democrat. I mean, so these guys, it's just the same kind of mentality. But I'm saying that, uh, you know, getting back to our Congress, um, Ted Cruz's adventures uh, kind of hid the fact that the entire Senate went on vacation. I mean, you would have thought that this emergency is going on. Maybe they would have called an emergency session. And Congress can do right now is very easily they can undo that law that Pappy Bush signed. They can just undo that act. They could just, you know, say, hey, look, you know, you can't have this kind of um, suffering being unnecessarily imposed on our citizens just out of greed. They can do things. They can do more than just ceremonial things. I mean, it's I don't know what it is. I think they're still kind of traumatized by Republicans ever since Reagan. But the Democrats had better learn to like take some freaking initiative. And I mean, not this, this, this kind of incremental kind of policy work around the edges sort of nonsense. It's, 
Would you say it's, I, I think it's fair to maintain that the Republicans are honest. They're upfront. We know who they are. And the Democrats, at least the people running the Democratic Party, won't stand for nothing other than themselves and their resume. Well, they're, they're paid to. I mean, it's like, you know, I know that there are several of our friends and my friends that are just are, are so relieved that Trump is out of office and that we might have competent people coming in. But I'm telling I'm trying to tell them, like, intellectually, you've got to know the people coming in. They're, they're paid for by the same donors. So the A team gets a little, you know, gets a little out of line. So the B team has to come in and clean up after them. And uh, and I think it's just uh, we need to we need to keep pushing this progressive not only agenda but this model where you don't take corporate cash. Oh my God! I so want John Lash to win the mayoral because that would shake up so much around here. Because there is just classic pay to play. When is the primary? Yeah. Oh, the primary is tomorrow, but it's not. But the mayoral race, since there's only three of them running, they aren't. Um, when is the primary? The primary is there's a primary tomorrow. And that's for uh, that's for partisan seats. You know, you can pull, pull either a Democratic uh, Democrat or a Republican ballot. And there are some like township seats and there are some um uh, community college board seats. So I've got my little list of people that I'm going to vote for tomorrow. But the mayoral races, unless they had four or more people running, then they would have a then they would have a runoff tomorrow. But they only have three, so um, they they don't. So you vote for mayor uh, on on April sixth. Mm. Hey, let me play a voicemail that we we got. If you go to davidfeldmanshow.com. Uh, there's a section called Talk to Me, and oh. there's a there's a thing, Call Me, and the number is 202-670-2752. I forgot we had this. Oh. So there have been some voicemails that I forgot to check, so oh. I apologize. Uh, I don't know if you've noticed, Professor Marianne, but I tend to drop the ball a lot around here. So the phone number is 202-670-2752. And uh, I will do a better job of uh, listening to the voicemails. Respond to this, please. Hi, David. It's Jerry calling from Philly. I appreciate your thoughts on the capital insurrectionists and their economic situations uh, over the past few programs. You made the point that many of them were in debt and Jim Orrell has uh, certainly backed the notion that economic inequality and the poor social safety net were at the heart of the discontent that led to the insurrection. And, and all this, this whole narrative is really, it, it all rings true to me. So that's why I'm kind of confused, and I'm curious your take on the findings of C-Post, a project from uh, the University of Chicago project on security and threats. Uh, they compared the economic situations for folks at the Capitol insurrection versus uh, right-wing extremists 
in general over the last five years, and they found that right-wing extremists in general over the last five years had a 25% unemployment rate, while at the Capitol Hill insurrection, those folks had a 9% unemployment rate, so much lower. Do you think this is an issue with the data and the point you made around how many of the insurrectionists were business owners, small business owners who had, who are deeply in debt? Um, or, yeah, what do you make of this, uh, this, this data from University of Chicago, uh, considering sort of the, the narrative? Curious, uh, your thoughts. Well, before I ask the professor to answer, I said at the top of the show, in what universe is America living under a 6% unemployment rate? That's what they say. 6% of Americans are unemployed. Jerome Powell, who runs the Federal Reserve, says, yeah, that number is probably twice that, which means it's probably twice what Jerome Powell thinks. So we're at, you know, the Great Depression, 25% unemployment uh, during the Great Depression, 20% during the Great Depression. This is worse than the Great Depression. It's just worse. And they can't possibly tell us the truth. They're not counting unemployment. They won't tell us what the real unemployment rate is because we don't know uh we don't measure who's... No, I think people do know what the real unemployment rate is. There's a lot of like fantastic, fantastic metrics kept by even the Census Bureau. If you go on their website and want to like navigate that. But I think the important thing is the uh, labor participation rate. It's now at like a 45-year low, which means the number and they... and. It's the number of people 20 and older, between 20 and 65, who could work. So they're not talking about people who are incarcerated. They're not talking about people in the military. They're not talking about disabled people. They're talking about people who could work but are not in the labor force. They're not even looking. Because they don't want to be the working poor. Well, or you just, if you get unemployment, you... And if you uh, run out of your unemployment, you just roll off of that. Now, a lot of people, small businesses, this has been particularly pernicious right around here. I mean, the people around here who have lost businesses and a couple, you know, they're just coming out of the pandemic. And then we had the Black Lives Matter uh, protests. We had looters, had nothing to do with the protests that the people I knew were organizing. But nonetheless, the police were around, were, were having a ring around the peaceful protesters in two blocks away, just letting looters just destroy businesses. And one gal said, I'm done. So all of these people, if there's up to upwards of 30% of small businesses, these are people that, you know, weren't, you know, they weren't employed by other people that that business was their livelihood. So they can't, they can't apply for unemployment. There, you know, there are people who are, really falling through the cracks of our systems. So, um, by the way, that uh, number, I think they took it from the people uh, January 6th, people among the people who were arrested. So I think like, what, upwards of 400 people now have been arrested. So obviously people who not only were there and there was like 1,500 to 2,000 people who surrounding 
the building, but uh, these were the people who were the, uh, in one way or the other, the most forward, you know, the most right. enthusiastic participants. And uh, yeah, having having either lost businesses or having a lot of trouble in a way that they never anticipated they would, would be a source of anger. Um, by the way, the guy, the Enron guy who was wealthy on Enron stocks and ended up impoverished, he never stopped being a Republican, hmm. but they were angry. I mean, there was, there was an, that's angry. what the insurrection that the Dr. Fraud talks about that, that and, uh, it, you, know, you know, if you're born thinking you're white male and living in the most powerful country in the world, but you owe $40,000 to your government, you're going to be violent. You're, we have to wrap it up. We, I'm yes. sorry. I'm but sorry. anyway, that, that's, uh, that, that was just my point. And, um, you know, anyway, things like what happened last week didn't happen in a vacuum. Uh, Congress, a democratically controlled Congress, can do something about this. Right yes. Now. Yes. I'll see you Thursday, I hope. Yep. Thank you so much, Professor Marianne Cummings. Let's uh, teach Professor Mike Steinell a lesson in personal responsibility, something the people of Texas seem to have forgotten about. How are you, sir? Pretty good, David. Can you hear me okay? Yes. Are you being personally responsible down there? Well, I have a question. How does a guy get $207 million real quick? Yeah. Because that's the problem. Yeah. Our little city, can you believe this? Our little city last week, it's, we have our own power company. We draw off from the grid, but it's Denton Municipal Electric, DME. And we had to buy electricity off the grid, and the bill was $207 million. Our normal budget for a whole year is $243 million. That sounds okay to now, me. That sounds, that sounds reasonable. <laughs> so it's supply and demand. What are you complaining about? What, what's the problem? The, I, I, you know, I've heard a lot of people talking about this. I've done a lot of reading in the last couple of days. Have you heard about PUCT, P-U-C-T? No. Okay. PUCT was the problem. The Public Utility Commission of Texas mm. on Monday. If you go, I started, you know, the, the, the news story was about this poor guy in Houston who uh, he gets his power bill and it's like $16,000. Yeah. Well, that was because, and his company was gritty. This is, goes way back. And I remember when we had uh, acquaintances who lived out in the rural areas around here, we were locked into, we had to use Denton Municipal Tech uh, uh, Electricity, which was a little higher than some people could get. But in 1999, they deregulated. And you know, the here's the guy. Okay, I'm going to wander around on this, but you're going to love this. Here is the guy that set it all up. That's the guy. William Hogan, Raymond Plank Research Professor of Global Energy Policy. And at Harvard. At Harvard University. Here's what he was quoted over the weekend saying, William H. Hogan, W. Hogan, considered the architect of tennis, Texas energy market design, said in an interview this past week that the high prices reflected the market performing as it was designed. 
The rapid loss of power, more than a third of the state's available electricity production, was offline at one point. Increased the risk that the entire system would collapse, causing the prices to rise, said Mr. Hogan, a professor of global energy policy at Harvard Kennedy's Business School. He, here's where he says, quote, as you get closer and closer to the bare minimum, these prices get higher and higher, which is what you want. <laughs> and then this other guy says who uh, from Portland says that's an idiotic thing. But the gritty on their website, that, that's the people that charge that guy $16,000, basically 600 a day for the duration. Um, they said that on Monday pucked, we really got pucked on this one. Yes, tell you we what. did. Or you did. <laughs> P-U-C-T. Uh, assumed authority from Encore to raise prices. And they set the price at $9. Normally, it's, it's 0.3 cents per kilowatt hour. That's what we normally play. That's what gritty customers would normally uh, have to pay. It went to $9 an hour and stayed there all last week. And that's why you have these, that's why our, our little town of like, I don't know, we're probably 150,000, you know, but 50,000 of that is, is college kids who were in dorms without heat, uh, without food. Um, Turn your lights mess. off. Come on. It's personal responsibility. <laughs> How many times have I told my kids, turn the light off? I'm not pucked. Oh, David, David, David. No, there. You know what? This is a lesson that people need to learn. And if it costs fourteen thousand dollars, I guarantee you, the kids will 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 turn the lights off. <laughs> well, turn your I lights off. It's all personal responsibility, and you from Texas should know that. I do know that. I took response. I I cranked all the lights up to. Here's the here's the deal. Somebody in this whole deal made a lot of money. You think? An amazing amount of money. Gee, and uh, I looked at who's on the pucked board. Hmm. Deanne Walker. You know, these people, you... you who's you Deanne Google. Walker? She's the, she's the head of it. She's appointed by the governor. But you go online and try to find... She, she's a lawyer. She went to the um, University of Texas... She got a law degree, some South South Texas University. I'm not sure where that is, and um, she. I want to know who she related to. Right. How is she related to Abbott, or who? Who's? Who, is her husband an oil person? Is her husband an? Uh, you know. But um, this idea. Here's the thing. Nobody understands where their food comes from. Nobody understands where their electricity comes from. They That's have right. made it really complicated. They've added layer upon layer of bureaucracy. So only somebody who has a degree from Harvard or a lawyer can disentangle this network of nonsense. Yeah. And that's why they get away with charging for you know, $8 an hour. The, the, we need a cultural revolution in America. We need to look at people with degrees. We need to see their degrees as character flaws. Unless you're a doctor or a dentist. How about a jazz professor? Can you jazz, that? Yes, that's fine. We get it, we're exempt from the, the public shaming? Just because you have a law degree 
it doesn't mean you're smart. In fact, it means you're a coward. It means you're probably evil. People who have these degrees, they, they can work as lawyers, they can work as accountants, but they can't be in government. They are not to be trusted. They make things, they, they, they get in there and convince everybody else that they're too stupid to understand how their tax dollars are being spent. And it's one big grift. It yeah. is, you know, you have a union, the guy running your union, if you need a lawyer, hire a lawyer. I don't want a lawyer running my union. I want me, a guy like me running my union who says, what is, hey, what if it's explain a, a it to of, me. What if it's a union of lawyers? <laughs> the, <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> they still can't disbar Rudy. Uh, what's his name? The guy, uh, oh, Lynn. The, uh, yeah. I forgot the, the Trump lawyer. He still has a law degree. A law, he's still allowed to practice law. What does it take? Well, you, you, these guys led an insurrection. And the, and the American Bar Association is going, well, you know, we're, we're, let's yeah, see. Let's, yeah, you know, yeah. let's, let's hear the man first. But anyway. How's Ted Cruz doing? Did you get my song? Yes, I did. Him? Okay, okay. Uh, you know, I, I I sort of, as I was making that today, I thought, well, this is old news already. It's no, already it's Thursday. It seems like ancient history. No, it's but, brand uh, new. I think you're right. I don't think it'll, uh, I don't think, you, you know, I just get the feeling people aren't paying attention to anything. Do you get that feeling? Uh, I think people are pissed off. And I do think they're paying attention and they don't understand. They, they, they're not quite sure what to do. And yeah. I'm telling you, you need to be angry. You know, I, I would really like to. Oh, by the way, did you read Bruni and uh, Douthat this, this week? No, I've stopped. I, I, you know what? Uh, you don't the read the news? I, the Times uh, really has become irrelevant to me. But go ahead. Well, they both, you know, like I read Jacobin. Okay, I'll, I'll, I'll check that out. Um, uh, they both talked about Rush Limbaugh and uh, both had different takes, interesting takes. And, and kind of Bruni took your take like uh, his, I think the headline was, Must We Dance on the Grave of Rush Limbaugh? And he was kind of praising the New York Times the way they handled it. And then, but Douthat, Douthat really, uh, he... He's the resident conservative along with right. Brooks. Right. And, yeah. and, and I, I always kind of never know. He's hard to read between the lines, but he talked about, um, he, he thought that after 1999 that the, the left had taken over. He said when Reagan was uh, popular, he had 55% of the, of the American public was behind him. And he said by the time Rush Limbaugh got going, it was down to 45 and he said, uh, I got to close something here on my screen. And Almost while you're doing it. that, his definition of the left is Nancy Pelosi. So, OK. But anyway, but he meant this. He said um, Linbaugh's political legacy feels like the result of an unfortunate encounter between the 1980s young Republican and a tempting monkey's paw. Did you right. get that reference A monkey's paw? You know what that is? No. Well, it's a myth from a story in 1902 where the person with this monkey's paw has magical powers and you get three wishes. 
So then there's this next quote from this young Republican. I wish there was a conservative media infrastructure to compete with the mainstream media, our youthful conservative wishes. I wish the right had a bigger footprint in the culture than George Will columns in National Review. I wish my movement was rich and powerful and a veritable unit unto itself. And then Douthat writes, granted. <laughs> yeah, we need to define the terms. Uh, the, left, the left, the, yeah. w- what it means to be a leftist. And it means you believe in big government and not the decimation of corporate wealth, but believe you, if you're a leftist, you believe in big taxes and little corporations and big government. Nobody. There's no left. There's yeah. no leftist media. There's no left well, it's probably to the right's advantage to feel like the left has more power because then you're aggrieved, yeah. then you're the victim, you know. And that was Linbaugh's whole thing. I like what you I'd said like about- to, i just like to see Nancy Pelosi asked what she believes. I'd like to see Chuck Schumer, somebody sit down and go over the issues with, with him and get a straight answer. And then you would see that these people are anything but leftists. There's no difference between- Chuck Schumer, except on, you know, big issues like abortion and, uh, you know, social issues, some social issues. And they're important. But on the stuff that, you know, there's very little sunlight between Chuck Schumer and Rush Limbaugh. Yeah. You know, let's define the terms before we start saying that the media is controlled by the left. Jesus, you know. Yeah. And, And why doesn't the Times bother? To correct that, because the Times is anything but they're liberal, which is not well, the left. Don't confuse worried, liberal with left. They're also worried about the low, the declining sperm count in America. Did you know that? And penises are getting smaller. I knew I noticed something. <laughs> <laughs> is that true? <laughs> yes. Alligator penises are getting smaller. It's, it's Nicholas Kristoff. It's because of the plastics, he's saying. Hmm. Plastics. Yes, not just in humans. Scientists report genital and, and anomalies in a range of species, including unusual, unusually small penises in alligators, otters, and minks. Which There's explains a, why we can't get rid of the guns in this country. Dang it. I know, just when you think things are getting better. Hey, I get my shot, my second shot. We get our second shot Friday. Wow. It's still on schedule, right on schedule. Same arm? Yeah. yeah. Which arm do they give it to? You should get it in the arm you don't use so much. Because okay. I don't I use either f- one. So <laughs> I like what you said about uh, Howard Stern. I got some, some complaints about that. People. Well, I thought you, the one little thing you said about um, Howard Stern didn't have a political agenda. And you said that was a pl- that caused uh, apathy, you know, and indifference to political things. And I think that was very astute. The other thing is he was getting fined hundreds of thousands of dollars for being disgusting. And earlier we were talking about this comedian, Mike Ward. Yeah, I heard that. I was listening. Yeah. Yeah. Who was making fun of a a kid with congenital birth deformities and treacherous, treacherous syndrome, treacherous syndrome. Yeah. And I keep hearing this argument, you know, it's a slippery slope. We have to defend 
people's right to say something stupid because next thing you know, they're going to take away your right to, to criticize the government. They have taken away our right to criticize the people in power. You can't, yeah. you can't, as a comedian, you can't go on national television and hold ExxonMobil accountable for, for climate change. You can't go after Aetna for killing people. Could you make a pucked joke? I think you could do that, maybe. Maybe, but you can't. <laughs> you're, you're not allowed. Yeah. You're not allowed to make fun of the people who own this country. And so every time we hear about these comedians fighting for our First Amendment rights to use the N-word and make fun of rape or kids with deformities, it's a slippery slope. It's, we're there already. We Don't, slipped. Yeah. I, I, you know, this... It's, it's the illusion of freedom. You have the freedom to make fun of the mentally retarded. That's it. You're not free. It's as far as it goes. That's as far as it goes. Anyway, should we play? I was going to say, hey, yeah, speaking of... First, I want to show you something. I want to show you this is uh, the town where I grew up near, the, near that center of... Uh, that's the biggest ball of twine in the world in Cocker City. In where? Cocker City. How do you spell that? Did. Cocker. <laughs> Seriously, I, what? What do you want? <laughs> well, like, not Joe Cocker. It's C A W K E R. Cocker. And and no and yeah and nobody made fun of you for being a cocker. I was too young to. I was. I was. Uh, I left in fourth grade. I don't remember much about it really, except I had really good buddies. And where where uh, is Cocker? Well, that's about you know that where that uh, center of the thing is. It's oh, where Bruce Springsteen. Yes, yeah, forty-eight out. miles. You know that's that's kind of where I grew up. By the way, I have Arthur Treacher syndrome. Yeah. Uh, uncontrollable desire to have fish and chips with extra burnt vinegar. Uh, will anybody get that joke? Yes. As a matter of fact, <laughs> yours is better than Mark Breslin's version of that. Well, thank you. Mark thank Breslin you. did the same joke earlier. Yeah. Right. Yeah. How I could you it, so. make how could you make a joke like that? Don't you know <laughs> that fish are exploited in order to make fish and trip chips? Uh, yeah. You want to play the song? Do you have water? Yeah. Oh yeah, we've had water all along. It was it just wasn't very but, good water. And it's expensive, right? And your heat is expensive, right? I haven't seen the bill yet. But you know that two hundred and seven million they gotta pass along to somebody. Is there any they, way you just don't pay it? Yeah, they cut your cut your um, power off. I, I I'm assuming isn't, that isn't gonna, price gouging. I mean, I thought you're not allowed to price gouge. They're going to have to fix this. They're going to have to. It has to be investigated. Somebody really stepped over the line, and and I think it was the PUCT. Uh, but it nobody, Professor Mike Steinell. Yes. No, the person who did this. Will not. Of go course, to jail. yeah. We hardly even know her name, Deanne Walker. I'll say it again. There's two other. It's three people on the pucked board. Man, who's the low hanging fruit? We were talking early about Heckaba Job Brownie after Katrina. Remember, he yeah. became the scapegoat, right? Because he was the head of FEMA, right? And he went down. He took the hit. Turns yeah. out, Heckaba Job Brownie did his job. There are tapes of heck of a job Brownie before Katrina hit land of him saying, this is the big one, folks. 
that yeah. we, you know, we have to bring out the National Guard. We have to evacuate New Orleans. We have to, I'm telling you that, and he's on tape and uh, Chertoff, I think he was the head of Homeland Security at the time. And yeah. uh, what's his name? Bush and Cheney were twiddling their thumbs. But because heck of a job, Brownie was a loyal foot soldier. He was the low-hanging fruit, and he was the scapegoat. They always find the the idiot, the weak idiot, to blame. Even RussiaGate. If you look at who went to prison, yeah, for RussiaGate, Manafort, Stone, he got pardoned, uh, Michael Cohn. These are intellectual pygmies, lightweights. Eric Prince, he's not going to jail. And what do you think is going to happen first? They're going to double the minimum wage to $15 an hour, or Cyrus Vance is going to grow a pair and prosecute Donald Trump. You really think Cyrus Vance is going to prosecute Donald Trump? No. You know, it he, doesn't, Donald it doesn't Trump feel is like not, it. No, of course not. You know who's no unhappy one. about the Supreme Court releasing Donald Trump's tax returns? Cyrus Vance. He didn't want to deal with it, you think? Letitia, the, the uh, attorney they general of New Now York. what do we do? Now, now, what do we, now do? we have to do our job. They yeah. don't want to. He's not going to jail. You know who's going to jail? Cyrus Vance and uh, the attorney general, Letitia. By the time this is all over, Andrew Cuomo... Letitia and Cyrus will all be in prison. I guarantee you. And, and Donald will be speaking at CPAC and doing just fine. Well, who knows? I know. I'm telling you, they're not okay. going to double the minimum wage. And Donald yeah, Trump don't think is not it. going to jail. Well, you know, Michael Cohen today on the news on uh, MSNBC, he was saying he needs to get fitted for a new jumpsuit. Because <laughs> he's an idiot. <laughs> Michael Cohen. Michael yes, Cohen. Yeah. He, he went yeah. to like, you know, he, even Michael Cohen says he went to something Cooley Law School. It's like the lowest run. That sounds real cool. Yeah. It, it, he, Michael Cohn <clears throat> passed the bar, but he went to one of the worst law schools in the country. He's not connected. Well, he's connected to the mafia, but Michael Cohn isn't part of that club. No, I thought that was pretty, it was a little outrageous. They get the low hanging fruit. Yeah, he was, that was him. Yeah. Steal a little money. They throw you in jail, steal a lot and they make you king. Yeah. Bob Dylan. Bob Dylan. There you go. It's all gets back to Dylan. Let's listen to this song. Mr. Cruz. Okay. You had us all fooled But we knew all along That it was you Mr. Cruz Some folks 
didn't have enough heat. Some folks didn't have enough water. What did you do? You flew out of town to a place where it was hotter. You thought you'd slip away and nobody would notice. But then there you were on the news, Mr. <coughs> You back, you might need somebody gaining. In 2024, you might need to do some explaining. Remember that guy named Beto? He gave you a run for the money. As I recall, he almost knocked you off your shoes, Mr.
You're the best. You're the best. You're the best. That was a little long. I'm, I'll come no, on. No, uh, I could that. listen to you. I could <laughs> your trumpet solos. I could just listen to that all day. Oh, I, I just wish nice I had say. that. I wish I had my own soundtrack as I go through the day. It was just Professor Mike Steinell <laughs> playing the horn behind me. I should have you with on with Gerald Horn. He was on earlier. Yeah, I saw, I saw that. Yeah, he's amazing. That's good. Yeah, yeah. good yeah, horn section good. today. Yeah, you. Uh, it, it, you I, I caught most of the show. I was kind of in and out doing stuff. I try to, you know, like watch it if I'm going to be on because maybe we something happened and we can talk yeah. about it. You know, it was a great show today. It really was. I, I agree. I agree. Yeah. Hey, you know, you talked last time about creativity and genius and all that, and perfect pitch. You always keep coming to, to perfect pitch. I want to tell you about my wife. I think she might have perfect pitch. She doesn't know it though, because. We'll be watching a show. We're getting ready to watch like Monk or something like that or uh, some show on PBS where she knows the theme and she'll sit, start singing the theme and she's always in the right key, always hmm. in the right key. And I just looked at her yesterday. I said, how'd you know it was going to be that? And then we, when, we, uh, when we Zoom, when we uh, FaceTime the, the grandson, there's a little ditty that goes on with FaceTime, the ringtone. Mm -hmm. And it's kind of interesting. And, and <clears throat> she'll always start singing that before it comes on. And she's always on the right, right key. I don't have that. I, I'm so far off so most of the time. How's you your know? grandkid? He's the best. You still like him? Oh, yeah. How old is he? Well, it's uh, like 16 months. 16, 16 months. months. He's still yeah, cute? Yeah. He, he's so cute. And you love him. <laughs> Absolutely. Still. Now, why do you keep asking those questions? <laughs> What's going on with those questions? I just like to ask people if they still love their kids. Like, I always think there's like an expiration date on love for children. I always it's like not to, like a Marin. It's a Mark Marin thing. You, you, you still, is your, are your folks still around? <laughs> and then you go, you, you get on with you, you like them? You get on with them? You, you get along okay? <laughs> That's funny. I tell my kids when I hang up on the phone, I still love you. I still love you. <laughs> like, just let, let them know that, you know, it could go away. My love for. Uh, and what does your son say when he when he doesn't hang up? He says, "Oh, uh, he's a genius." He goes, "I'll let you go." No, or, what is he? he he's a genius. About. He goes, so I'll, I'll talk to him for like an hour, and he goes, "All right, I'll talk to you. I'll talk to you right now." Hello. Wait, <laughs> 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 because like after an hour of talking, all right, I'll talk to you right now. Hello. He's That's so good, you guys. That good, you guys talk a lot. Yeah, well, not too yeah. much. I don't want, you know what? I don't want, you know, you, the, the secret to raising kids is always keep them guessing. They're, you know, the same way, like, you know, they're like employees. You don't want them to get a little too comfortable because then oh, they good. organize against you. <laughs> and you try to divide, always divide work one kid against the other so you stay on top. And, uh, well, that sounds I put like out a, a list. Thing. This sounds is like one... a horrible way to go about it, actually. <laughs> you know what? It's the American way, Professor. I put out a monthly scorecard of who I love the most. And uh, it's just, I think it helps. I think it, you know. Keeps them in line. Yeah. Keeps them in line. Yeah. Some, some kids have a better month than others. Depends on who obeyed uh, me. They have a little parking spot in front of your apartment. Yeah. <laughs> Child of the month. Child of the month. 
That's a great idea. Child of the month. Yeah, Put a picture. Know. Oh, well, I wish I had done that when they were young. That is so great <laughs> to, to have child of the month and have a picture. Oh, I wish I thought of that. I love how you uh, get to, you relish the opportunity to torture them. No, but somebody <laughs> should do that. If you have anybody listening who has kids, you should take you should have a frame that says child of the month and every month <laughs> replace it. Oh, and if you only have one kid, every now and then just leave a blank. <laughs> no, no picture in it. <laughs> That'd be good. Uh, that's, kids. that's horrible. What's the, that's, no, it isn't. The whole point of having kids is to tease them. Why else would you have kids if you can't? Te I teased my kids the minute they were born. I was teasing them. I would say things I didn't mean like, I love you. I love you. <laughs> <laughs> Professor Mike Steinel, go to MikeSteinel.com and buy. What's your new book? It's called Running the Changes. And uh, we're, get, you know, it's, it's going to be a while before it comes out. But I'm thinking of putting out a little, uh, put a, do a website and put some extra stuff on there and also promote it through that. I don't know. Your stuff is so great. I mean, it's just the, the, the stuff you recorded teaching musical theory, that, that would make a great album. Professor Mike Steinell is a jazz trumpeter, composer, educator. He is the author of the highly acclaimed Essential Elements for Jazz Ensemble and Building a Jazz Vocabulary. And you can spend your days the way I do, listening to the Mike Steinell Quintet featuring Rosanna Eckert. It's a album called Song and Dance. It came out two years ago and uh, go to MikeSteinell.com to purchase it or listen to it on Spotify. That's where I listen to it. I love you, buddy. Thank you. Same here. I'm right glad you're you. okay. We're just, great. Just We're great. tell the people of Texas a little more personal responsibility, please. I'm going to go out in the front door and yell it right now. <laughs> okay. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. All right. Bye -bye. I was going to, John, I was going to play your slideshow. I'll fix it for next week, even though you're the one who misspelled your, uh, your name, not me. It's J-O-H-N, not J-O-N. All right. I think we're done. And I think Dan is done. Dan is gone. I want to thank everybody for coming into the Zoom room today. If you would like to sit in the Zoom room, be a part of our virtual studio audience, please go to davidfeldmanshow.com and hit the attend a live taping menu and we'll send you a link and that way you'll be able to go into Andy Brown's Discord channel and participate in the conversation. I'd like to thank Rodrigo for getting us our friend, our new friend from Jacobin. Office hours is this Friday. We start at 8 p.m. I will start it at 8 p.m. That's when office hours starts. And no pay-per-view this weekend. If you would like to sign up for my newsletter, please go to davidfeldmanshow.com and hit the uh, sign up for a newsletter. Uh, yes, John? With an H? I think you're confusing me with uh, John from Massachusetts, J.O.N. Yeah, I know. I know. Look how great, but look how great this is. Even misspelled. John Hayes, your memes and photographs 
this is great stuff. I'll, I'll recut it with the proper. Uh, you're really great. The, and your Bernie memes are fantastic. But I will, I will uh, fix that. You deserve. I'll send you some more. Uh, you know, I'm used to have my last name misspelled, so this was a unique surprise. Thank you. Did I? There's Jeff Bozos. Uh, so I misspelled by. Okay, I spelled Hayes properly. All right. Yes. There we go. All right. How are things in uh, L.A. today? 81 degrees was the high today. It's ridiculous. The other extreme of winter weather. It's freezing here. Well, we had a great show. I want to thank Jackie, the joke man, Martling. How great was he? He's back. David Citizen Bacon. He's running for select man in New Hampshire. Kale Brooks, our new best friend from Jacobin. Jacob Morrison from the Valley Labor Report. He will be coming back to discuss the Amazon workers in Bessemer, Alabama, voting to unionize. Remember, to boycott Amazon, do the best you can. It's not easy to quit Amazon all at once. You know, you got to get the Amazon patch to quit it. Mark Breslin, founder and president of Yuck Yucks. Howie Klein wasn't with us today, but he did introduce us to Shervon Azami. How great was he, John? He was fantastic. I was, uh, yeah, pushed myself to uh, donate to him before, and I'll do it again. Yeah. One meager amount I can donate, but hey, it yeah. helps. Uh, Comic Laura House, Dr. Harriet Fraud, Dr. Gerald Horn, so great. Please do me a favor, everybody. Pick up the bittersweet science, racism, racketeering, and the political economy of boxing. It's published by international publishers. Go to wherever you buy your books and pick up a book by Dr. Gerald Horn, H O. R-N-E. Please buy one of his books. He's fantastic. It's overwhelming how fantastic he is. Of course, Professor Adnan Hussein. He's got two podcasts, Guerrilla History and The Mudgeless. And uh, I don't know if you know who Henry Huckamacki is, but uh, he's uh, got a newsletter. Go to patreon.com forward slash patreon.com forward slash Huck 1995. He also co-hosts Guerrilla History with Professor Adnan Hussein, Professor Marianne Cummings, Parks Commissioner of Aurora, Illinois, and of course, Professor Mike Steinel. Always a pleasure. Where, where's my face? What happened? Well, there you are. I disappeared. I apologize. Was that scary, John? Very scary. <laughs> no, I. I'm what would the, you be uh, doing if you were looking out the window and you saw that? Well, that's what I was thinking. It's like the person who was holding their, uh, I guess, cell phone camera to that window must have been very calm. I figured that would be shaking like the engine's shaking. I know. Look at that. It is kind of cool. Yeah. Anyway. Yeah, it almost looks animated. Yeah, it looks. It looks fake. All right. Thank you, everybody, for, for listening. I'll see you here in the of oh, JJ. Yes. Hang on. Let's let's go to JJ. Yes, JJ. I quoted you the other day. JJ. What'd you say? Yeah. What'd you say? At uh, Co uh, COVID Town Squares, Henry did like a five minute presses on immunology that went so deep and it was so bright. And I said, there's this guy, JJ, and when Henry first started doing the show, you wrote in the chat room, 
Wouldn't it be great if Henry were completely full of shit? That wasn't me. Yes, it was. Yes, no. it, yes, it was. You're going to you're gonna, you're gonna have to dig back through the logs and see what actually happened. You said it. I remember it made me laugh really well, hard. Maybe, maybe you misspelled JJ. Yeah, that, that's probably correct. What's, uh, what's on your How's your sister, JJ? I don't have a sister, to be honest. Perfectly honest. Perfectly honest. Yeah. But if you did have a sister, JJ, what would her name be? Chantel, probably Chantel. Uh, let's say she had a catchphrase that uh, went "Gyno might." What would her name then be, JJ? Maybe Skyler. Uh, did you ever see Good Times? <laughs> did you ever see Good Times, no. JJ? No, I didn't. Remember no, I didn't. Jimmy? Remember Jimmy Walker? Oh my gosh! Jeez, Louise. And he no, played I, JJ. So yeah. if he had a sister and her catchphrase was gyno might, what would her name be? I guess it would have had to been there. I just don't really guess you would have had to have been there, huh? Yeah. It would be the JJ, wouldn't it, JJ? <laughs> wouldn't it be the JJ? Wouldn't JJ's sister be the JJ? Huh? Not, if she went to the VA. <laughs> hmm? Not necessarily. I don't think so. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of different names for sisters in the world. <laughs> I, I can't even break the pencil. I have a question for you, though. Yes, sir. Okay? Yes. I wanted to ask you. About, I wanted to ask you about your um, your air shaft. Yes. It overlooks a that? parking garage. What is an air shaft? Like I looked it up on the internet, but I really don't understand it. Uh, in New York City, they build apartment after apartment, and there are no views, and your windows overlook, if you're lucky, they overlook another building. In my case, it's a parking garage and brick. I, have the, I think there are prisoners in Rikers who have a better view than I do. You do have a window? I do have a window, Yes. And if you look out the window, like how far away is the next wall? Like, is it below? Uh, the, the one wall is a car length. So one, a car can get to the garage. It's a red brick wall. I should go does, outside. Does, does sun shine down into no, this I don't little have area? It. No vitamin D. No vitamin D. No. I think JJ's uh, on a nearby roof looking, trying to find you on his binoculars, <laughs> giving a little more detail. Yeah. Wave a, wave a little handkerchief out the window so I can see where you're at. But no, let's say that like somebody was like, like, like six blocks away from you. Yeah. And they were, and they were looking at you like trying, could they see you if they're at your same height? Are no, you like, no. Are you look, are you looking down on something or are you looking? Well, I always look down. I look down on everybody. Well, I mean, no, literally punching not. down and I punch down. You know that there's nothing funny about punching up. No, you can't. The only you can see people in other apartment buildings can can see me. That sounds so cool. Really? I, I imagine you like, yeah, it does. Because I, I imagine like being a little kid. And you could go up the 
the stairs and you could jump from building to building. Could yes. you do that? I encourage people to do There are a lot of kids in my building and I tell them to do that. <laughs> but but you could. I tell them you can fly. No, I, I wouldn't do that. That would, I, I wouldn't do that. I wouldn't tell kids to do that. Could they though? Like, no. like reasonably? No. no it's too far? There's just enough of a drop and I don't think we're allowed on the roof. Oh, because they have those old movies where there was people. Yeah. And they were like they De Niro. Yes. Killing the, the black hand in Godfather 2. He's jumping from roof to roof. And he falls a bit and he rolls. And... Yeah. Yeah. I have, awesome. I have no nature. In, I, I, I have no nature. I have a, a mouse named Kevin who keeps me company. That's it. And that fly, is he still alive? The fly dot. Why would you bring that up? You know that I'm oh, sorry. Sorry. But can you open your window? Uh, yes. Like, do you ever do that? Yes. But I can't fit through it. So what's the <laughs> point? <laughs> okay. So you're still here with us. Then. I'm still, yeah, but I, I'm, uh, yeah. You don't want okay. to live in New York City. It, it's it, it, it's it, there. It is. It's going to be in five years a, a, a post-apocalyptic wasteland, and rightfully so because New York City, especially the tip of Manhattan, has destroyed America. They they sit all day trading paper and pressing buttons and putting people out of work. And now, because of Zoom, people will no longer be working in New York City, and uh, it's going to be bad. Kurt Russell and Ernest Borgnine are going to be cab drivers charging thousands of dollars to get me out of here. Hello? Hmm. I'm dying yeah, sounds here. Like a, sounds like a hellhole. No, but like... Like in the there's there's nothing in New, New York. There's nothing in New York. There's the, the theaters are closed and the theaters that were open were overpriced. Bruce was charging like three thousand dollars. Mr. Working class man, Bruce Springsteen, to see him on Broadway was like three grand. Broadway was always overpriced. The museums, the art is purchased by oil executives or pharmaceutical giants. The art says nothing. The city, it's, the city has no values. The city, New York City destroyed America. Or America destroyed New York City. No, no, maybe. New York City destroyed America. New York City in the 70s got rid of manufacturing and went into paper, moving paper, shuffling paper. And that's all anybody does in New York City. They shuffle paper back and forth. They trade paper. And they create nothing. They make nothing. They're coming for me to hear that. And they destroy people's lives. Every time somebody trades paper, somebody's life is being destroyed. Some company is going out of business. That's what New York does. The insurance business, New York. Wall Street, finance, real estate. It's like 30, 35% of our gross domestic product 
finance. It's strangling this country. And it all emanates from New York City, from the tip of New York City. I don't think that the Ramones would have existed without uh, the destruction of New York City. That was the 70s. 70s. Yeah, that was CBGBs, the Ramones. Those, yeah, that's when New York City was quote unquote unlivable. But the way they came back, the way Koch brought the city back, is he bent over and took it from Wall Street. They catered to Wall Street at the expense of the 8 million other people trying to live here. I see. So the 1970s um, kind of. Ed Koch was the mayor. And he, but the garbage the garbage strike era era was like unions. Um, you mean you mean unions that, yeah. that unions that stood up for themselves? That was a glorious era. It wasn't it wasn't the strikes that were, was destroying New York City. It was the it was the deal with the devil that Ed Koch made with Wall Street. When did he make that that deal? In well, uh, New York. Went belly up in 75 when Beam was mayor. And then Beam didn't get reelected. And Koch came in and sucked off the teat of Wall Street. And they just started creating all these different securities to trade back and forth. And Wall Street convinced City Hall that they create jobs. They do. Lousy jobs. Bad, low-paying jobs while they're taking jobs away from the rest of America. So Wall Street creates a job for a guy who will make a sandwich at a diner near Merrill Lynch. Not a bad job, but not a livable wage. And he, he, he gives coffee and a sandwich to some piece of shit broker who goes back upstairs, presses a button, and destroys a company in Pittsburgh. It seems to me being a broker would be one of the most tedious and, and frustrating jobs imaginable. Unless, I, I just, unless you're a, a sociopath who enjoys ripping people off. Yeah, I guess they have a very limited repertoire of interests. Right. That's all they're interested in. If, if you work as a stockbroker, you're... You get, like, it's like, I can't believe I ripped this idiot off. Like... They love going after doctors, brokers. They love outsmarting really bright people because they hate doctors. Doctors are always taken advantage of by stockbrokers because doctors think they're smarter than the broker. And they, the doctors have these big egos, but the brokers are the croupiers. They're dealing the cards. They know how it's stacked. But doctors... They think they can outsmart the broker. The brokers love ripping off doctors because they hate doctors for being smarter than they are. So, well, I'll send you some photos from Manhattan. Send me some photos from Manhattan. But back when, you know, like at St. Mark's bookstore, which I guess no longer exists, for example. (laughs) New York City is one big money laundering operation, and that's why Donald Trump will not go to prison. They will never pull on that thread. Never. Never. How long have you how long have you lived in uh, New York? Too long. I hate it. 
What, what year, though? Well, I was born in Brooklyn, but I was raised in New Jersey. And uh, then I lived in New York for a while and uh, fell in hate with it. I mean, it was I've always hated New York. But wait a second, you said it. Whoa, this doesn't make any sense because you were saying New York killed America, but like yes. it used to be good or something. I never said New York was good. <laughs> okay. New York, it's it's a trading post. Everything is transactional here. Everybody looks at somebody else. What can I get out of this? How can I outsmart this person? New York started as a Dutch trading post. They were trading with the Native Americans, and they've never stopped trading and trying to rip each other off. It's just one big scam. And then it, in the 80s, it just spread like cancer throughout the country. Suddenly, the rest of this country either became like New York or was consumed by New York. So, like, I'm sorry, I might be annoying, but like New York kind of um, was a hellhole in the 70s in terms of employment and rats and cockroaches and garbage. And it still is unless you're a Russian oligarch who can afford to live on the 80th floor. And and billionaires row. That was good for like a music scene because there could be some people that weren't really making much money and they would just. Well, rents were affordable. Um, you you could live. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So like, do you think that maybe like, like Erie, Pennsylvania or Detroit should have a great music scene going on? I think right everybody now? should move. I think now that we have Zoom, I think people should move to uh, all the red states. People like me should move to a red state and turn it blue. You don't need to be anywhere, JJ. Now with Zoom. No, come on. Like, you got to be there personally. Why? Not not, I mean, most jobs, most jobs are bullshit, as David Graeber taught us. And... Most office situations are bullshit. There's no, most office jobs, the purpose of an office is so an alpha male can swing his dick around and sexually harass men or women. That's the whole purpose well, that's of why an, I office. Have an office. Certainly. Yeah, the, the, the offices were set up so white men could leave their wife and go to a building for 10 hours, eight hours and harass women or men. It's the only purpose of an office building. So men can abuse other people. There's no work getting done in those places. Work is an accidental byproduct of the sexual harassment and assault that men commit in those buildings. And we all know that. Well, that's what I was hired for. It's my contract. Mm-hmm. No. Yeah. The, the, the office is over. I mean, there will there, there, still be like doctor's offices and dentist's offices, but these skyscrapers in Manhattan, they're never coming back. They're, they're, they already are empty. They were empty before the pandemic. So that's a good thing, actually, right? Well, they should have never been built. And the rents should have never been that high. And if you look at who's in those offices, it's all finance. 
it's not just Wall Street. You, you go up the Avenue of Americas, it's just finance doing nothing, making they nothing. They should let, let homeless people sleep in houses. Yeah. Especially in the winter. <laughs> or, or if you have a job on Wall Street, you should be made homeless. They should force uh, Wall Street brokers and, and financiers who create homelessness to live on the streets. Let them uh, reap what they sow. If you work on, anyway, the point I'm making is we have to love one another and forgive. That love is the answer, JJ and John. We just have to love one another. Well, I'd love to get Molly on the show next week. You've been asking, and I yeah, I, no, I said helping. I need some Molly. Is what I said. <laughs> <laughs> Uppercase M in this case. Yeah, okay. is she going to do? Really you'll interview her, okay? Uh, yeah, I guess so. I mean, you definitely can help me out. It's not my yeah. fort. I don't think and everybody fort, should support. Shervin Azami, congressional candidate. Has Howie Klein ever introduced us? Oh, yes, he did. Jared Golden turned out to be bad. All right, I'm going to wrap it up. I love you guys. Thank you all. Remember to uh, stay strong and protect. Where is that? Where is it? Did I? Oh, there we go. Okay, remember to stay strong and protect the weak. It's time right now. For the David Feldman Show He's talking politics and comedy too He'll tell a dirty joke if you want him to He's just a lefty from way back He's a union man with an Emmy for writing Someday he's mad and he feels like fighting It's time right now for the David Feldman Show So get your ears on right, buckle in real tight He's got a lot to say and he's coming your way He's got a lot to say and he's coming your way. He's got a lot to say and he's coming your way. He's got a lot to say and he's coming your way. He's got a lot to say and he's coming your way. He's got a lot to say and he's coming your way. He's got a lot to say and he's coming your way. He's got a